Rosa Audiobooks presents The Duke and I by Julia Quinn Narrated by Rosalind Landor Chapter 12 A duel, a duel, a duel. Is there anything more exciting, more romantic, or more utterly moronic? It has reached this author's ears that a duel took place earlier this week in Regent's Park. Because duelling is illegal, this author shall not reveal the names of the perpetrators. But let it be known that this author frowns heavily upon such violence. Of course, as this issue goes to press, it appears that the two duelling idiots, I am loath to call them gentlemen, that would imply a certain degree of intelligence, a quality which, if they ever possessed it, clearly eluded them that morning, are both unharmed. One wonders if perhaps an angel of sensibility and rationality smiled down upon them that fateful morn. If so, it is the belief of this author that this angel ought to shed her influence on a great many more men of the ton. Such an action could only make for a more peaceful and amiable environment, leading to a vast improvement of our world. Lady Whistledown's Society Papers 19th of May, 1813 Simon raised ravaged eyes to meet hers. I'll marry you, he said in a low voice. But you need to know... His sentence was rendered incomplete by her exultant shout and fierce hug. Oh, Simon, you won't be sorry, she said, her words coming out in a relieved rush. Her eyes sparkled with unshed tears, but they glowed with joy. I'll make you happy, I promise you. I'll make you so happy. You won't regret this. Stop, Simon ground out, pushing her away. Her unfeigned joy was too much to bear. You have to listen to me. She stilled, and her face grew apprehensive. You listen to what I have to say, he said in a harsh voice, and then decide if you want to marry me. Her bottom lip caught between her teeth, and she gave the barest of nods. Simon took in a shaky breath. How to tell her? What to tell her? He couldn't tell her the truth. Not all of it, at least. But she had to understand. If she married him, she'd be giving up more than she'd ever dreamed. He had to give her the opportunity to refuse him. She deserved that much. Simon swallowed, guilt sliding uncomfortably down his throat. She deserved much more than that, but that was all he could give her. Daphne, he said, her name as always soothing his frazzled mouth. If you marry me, she stepped toward him and reached out her hand, only to pull it back at his burning glare of caution. What is it? she whispered. Surely nothing could be so awful that... I can't have children. There, he'd done it. And it was almost the truth. Daphne's lips parted. But other than that, there was no indication that she'd even heard him. He knew his words would be brutal, but he saw no other way to force her understanding. If you marry me... You will never have children. You will never hold a baby in your arms and know it is yours, that you created it in love. You will never... How do you know? she interrupted, her voice flat and unnaturally loud. I just do. But I cannot have children, 
he repeated cruelly. You need to understand that. I see. Her mouth was quivering slightly, as if she wasn't quite sure if she had anything to say, and her eyelids seemed to be blinking a bit more than normal. Simon searched her face, but he couldn't read her emotions the way he usually could. Normally, her expressions were so open, her eyes startlingly honest, it was as if he could see to her very soul and back. But right now she looked shuttered and frozen. She was upset. That much was clear. But he had no idea what she was going to say. No idea how she would react. And Simon had the strangest feeling that Daphne didn't know either. He became aware of a presence to his right, and he turned to see Antony, his face torn between anger and concern. Is there a problem? Antony asked softly, his eyes straying to his sister's tortured face. Before Simon could reply, Daphne said, No. All eyes turned to her. There will be no duel, she said. His Grace and I will be getting married. I see. Antony looked as if he wanted to react with considerably more relief, but his sister's solemn face forced a strange quietude on the scene. I'll tell the others, he said, and walked off. Simon felt a rush of something utterly foreign fill his lungs. It was air, he realised dumbly. He'd been holding his breath. He hadn't even realised he'd been holding his breath. And something else filled him as well. Something hot and terrible. Something triumphant and wonderful. It was emotion, pure and undiluted. A bizarre mix of relief and joy and desire and dread. And Simon, who'd spent most of his life avoiding such messy feelings, had no idea what to do about it. His eyes found Daphne's. Are you certain? he asked, his voice whisper soft. She nodded, her face strangely devoid of emotion. You're worth it. Then she walked slowly back to her horse, and Simon was left wondering if he had just been snatched up into heaven, or perhaps led to the darkest corner of hell. Daphne spent the rest of the day surrounded by her family, Everyone was, of course, thrilled by the news of her engagement. Everyone, that was, except her older brothers, who, while happy for her, were somewhat subdued. Daphne didn't blame them. She felt rather subdued herself. The events of the day had left them all exhausted. It was decided that the wedding must take place with all possible haste. Violet had been informed that Daphne might have been seen kissing Simon in Lady Trowbridge's garden, and that was enough for her to immediately send a request to the Archbishop for a special licence. Violet had then immersed herself in a whirlwind of party details. Just because the wedding was to be small, she'd announced, it didn't have to be shabby. Eloise, Francesca and Hyacinth, all vastly excited at the prospect of dressing up as bridesmaids, kept up a steady stream of questions. How had Simon proposed? Did he get down on one knee? What colour would Daphne wear? And when would he give her a ring? Daphne did her best to answer their questions, but she could barely concentrate on her sisters, and by the time afternoon slipped into the eve, she was reduced to monosyllables. Finally, after Hyacinth asked her what colour roses she wanted for her bouquet, 
and Daphne answered, Three. Her sisters gave up talking to her and left her alone. The enormity of her actions had left Daphne nearly speechless. She had saved a man's life. She had secured a promise of marriage from the man she adored, and she had committed herself to a life without children, all in one day. She laughed, somewhat desperately. It made one wonder what she could do tomorrow as an encore. She wished she knew what had gone through her head in those last moments before she'd turned to Antony and said, There will be no duel. But in all truth, she wasn't sure it was anything she could possibly remember. Whatever had been racing through her mind, it hadn't been made up of words or sentences or conscious thought. It had been as if she was enveloped by colour, reds and yellows, and a swirling mishmash of orange where they met. Pure feeling and instinct. That's all there had been. No reason, no logic, nothing even remotely rational or sane. And somehow, as all of that churned violently within her, she'd known what she had to do. She might be able to live without the children she hadn't yet born, but she couldn't live without Simon. The children were amorphous, unknown beings she couldn't picture or touch. But Simon... Simon was real, and he was here. She knew how it felt to touch his cheek, to laugh in his presence. She knew the sweet taste of his kiss and the wry quirk of his smile. And she loved him. And although she barely dared think it, maybe he was wrong. Maybe he could have children. Maybe he'd been misled by an incompetent surgeon. Or maybe God was just waiting for the right time to bestow a miracle. She'd be unlikely to mother a brood the size of the Bridgertons, but if she could have even one child, she knew she'd feel complete. She wouldn't mention these thoughts to Simon, though. If he thought she was holding out even the tiniest hope for a child, he wouldn't marry her. She was sure of it. He'd gone to such lengths to be brutally honest. He wouldn't allow her to make a decision if he didn't think she had the facts absolutely straight. Daphne? Daphne, who had been sitting listlessly on the sofa in the Bridgerton's drawing-room, looked up to see her mother, gazing at her with an expression of deep concern. Are you all right? Violet asked. Daphne forced a weary smile. I'm just tired, she replied, and she was. It hadn't even occurred to her until that very moment that she hadn't slept in over thirty-six hours. Violet sat beside her. I thought you'd be more excited. I know how much you love Simon. Daphne turned surprised eyes to her mother's face. It's not hard to see, Violet said gently. She patted her on the hand. He's a good man. You've chosen well. Daphne felt a wobbly smile coming on. She had chosen well, and she would make the best of her marriage. If they weren't blessed with children... Well, she reasoned, she might have turned out to be barren anyway. She knew of several couples who had never had children, and she doubted any of them had known of their deficiencies prior to their marriage vows. And with seven brothers and sisters, she was sure to have plenty of nieces and nephews to hug and spoil. Better to live with the man she loved than to have children with one she didn't. Why don't you take a nap? Violet suggested. You look terribly tired. 
I hate seeing such dark smudges below your eyes. Daphne nodded and stumbled to her feet. Her mother knew best. Sleep was what she needed. I'm sure I'll feel much better in an hour or two, she said, a wide yawn escaping her mouth. Violet stood and offered her daughter her arm. I don't think you're going to be able to make it up the stairs on your own, she said, smiling as she led Daphne out of the room and up the stairs. And I sincerely doubt we'll see you in an hour or two. I shall give everyone explicit instructions that you are not to be disturbed until morning. Daphne nodded sleepily. That's good, she mumbled, stumbling into her room. Morning's good. Violet steered Daphne to the bed and helped her into it. The shoes she pulled off, but that was all. You might as well sleep in your clothes, she said softly, then bent to kiss her daughter on the forehead. I can't imagine I'll be able to move you enough to get you out of them. Daphne's only reply was a snore. Simon, too, was exhausted. It wasn't every day that a man resigned himself to death, and then to be saved by, and betrothed to, the woman who had occupied his every dream for the past two weeks. If he weren't sporting two black eyes and a sizable bruise on his chin, he'd have thought he'd dreamed the whole thing. Did Daphne realise what she'd done? What she was denying herself? She was a level-headed girl, not given to foolish dreams and flights of fancy. He didn't think she would have agreed to marry him without sorting through all the consequences. But then again, she'd reached her decision in under a minute. How could she have thought everything through in under a minute? Unless she fancied herself in love with him. Would she give up her dream of a family because she loved him? Or maybe she did it out of guilt. If he'd died in that duel... He was sure Daphne could come up with some line of reasoning that would make it seem her fault. Hell, he liked Daphne. She was one of the finest people he knew. He didn't think he could live with her death on his conscience. Perhaps she felt the same way about him. But whatever her motives, the simple truth was that come this Saturday, Lady Bridgerton had already sent him a note informing him that the engagement would not be an extended one, he would be bound to Daphne for life, and she to him. There was no stopping it now, he realised. Daphne would never back out of the marriage at this point, and neither would he. And to his utter surprise, this almost fatalistic certainty felt good. Daphne would be his. She knew of his shortcomings. She knew what he could not give her, and she had still chosen him. It warmed his heart more than he would ever have thought possible. Your Grace. Simon looked up from his slouchy position in his study's leather chair. Not that he needed to. The low, even voice was obviously that of his butler. Yes, Jeffreys. Lord Bridgerton is here to see you. Shall I inform him that you are not at home? Simon pulled himself to his feet. Damn, but he was tired. He won't believe you. Jeffreys nodded. Very well, sir. He took three steps, then turned around. Are you certain you wish to receive a guest? You do seem to be a trifle uh, indisposed. Simon let out a single humorless chuckle. If you are referring to my eyes, 
Lord Bridgerton would be the one responsible for the larger of the two bruises. Geoffrey's blinked like an owl. The larger, your grace? Simon managed a half-smile. It wasn't easy. His entire face hurt. I realise it's difficult to discern, but my right eye is actually a touch worse off than the left. Geoffrey swayed closer, clearly intrigued. Trust me. The butler straightened. Of course. Shall I show Lord Bridgerton to the drawing-room? No, bring him here. At Geoffrey's nervous swallow, Simon added, And you needn't worry for my safety. Lord Bridgerton isn't likely to add to my injuries at this juncture. Not, he added in a mutter, that he'd find it easy to find a spot he hasn't already injured. Geoffrey's eyes widened, and he scurried out of the room. A moment later, Anthony Bridgerton strode in. He took one look at Simon and said, You look like hell. Simon stood and raised a brow. Not an easy feat in his current condition. This surprises you. Antony laughed. The sound was a little mirthless, a little hollow, but Simon heard a shadow of his old friend, a shadow of their old friendship. He was surprised by how grateful he was for that. Antony motioned to Simon's eyes. Which one is mine? The right, Simon replied, gingerly touching his abused skin. Daphne packs quite a punch for a girl, but she lacks your size and strength. Still, Antony said, leaning forward to inspect his sister's handiwork, she did quite a nice job. You should be proud of her, Simon grunted. Hurts like the devil. Good. And then they were silent, with so much to say, and no idea how to say it. I never wanted it to be like this, Antony finally said. Nor I. Antony leaned against the edge of Simon's desk, but he shifted uncomfortably, looking oddly ill at ease in his own body. It wasn't easy for me to let you court her. You knew it wasn't real. You made it real last night. What was he to say? That Daphne had been the seducer, not he. That she'd been the one to lead him off the terrace and dance into the darkness of the night. None of that mattered. He was far more experienced than Daphne. He should have been able to stop. He said nothing. I hope we may put this behind us, Antony said. I'm certain that would be Daphne's fondest wish. Antony's eyes narrowed. And is it now your aim in life to grant her fondest wishes? All but one, Simon thought. All but the one that really matters. You know that I will do everything in my capabilities to keep her happy, he said quietly. Antony nodded. If you hurt her, I will never hurt her, Simon vowed, his eyes blazing. Antony regarded him with a long and even stare. I was prepared to kill you for dishonouring her. If you damage her soul, I guarantee you will never find peace as long as you live. Which, he added, his eyes turning slightly harder, would not be long. Just long enough to put me in excruciating pain, Simon asked mildly. Exactly, Simon nodded. Even though Antony was threatening torture and death, Simon could not help but respect him for it. Devotion to one's sister was an honourable thing. Simon wondered if Antony perhaps saw something in him that no one else did.
They had known each other for over half of their lives. Did Antony somehow see the darkest corners of his soul? The anguish and fury he tried so hard to keep hidden. And if so, was that why he worried for his sister's happiness? I give you my word, Simon said. I will do everything in my power to keep Daphne safe and content. Antony nodded curtly. See that you do. He pushed himself away from the desk and walked to the door. Or you'll be seeing me. He left. Simon groaned and sank back into the leather chair. When had his life grown so damned complicated? When had friends become enemies and flirtations grown to lust? And what the hell was he going to do with Daphne? He didn't want to hurt her, couldn't bear to hurt her, actually, and yet he was doomed to do so simply by marrying her. He burned for her, ached for the day when he could lay her down and cover her body with his, slowly entering her until she moaned his name. He shuddered. Such thoughts could not possibly be advantageous to his health. Your Grace, Jeffreys again. Simon was too tired to look up, so he just made an acknowledging motion with his hand. Perhaps you would like to retire for the evening, Your Grace. Simon managed to look at the clock, but that was only because he didn't have to move his head to do it. It was barely seven in the evening, hardly his usual bedtime. It's early yet, he mumbled. Still, the butler said pointedly, perhaps you'd like to retire. Simon closed his eyes. Jeffreys had a point. Maybe what he needed was a long engagement with his feather mattress and fine linen sheets. He could escape to his bedroom, where he might manage to avoid seeing a Bridgerton for an entire night. Hell, the way he felt, he might hole up there for days. Chapter 13 it's marriage for the Duke of Hastings and Miss Bridgerton. This author must take this opportunity to remind you, dear reader, that the forthcoming nuptials were predicted in this very column. It has not escaped the note of this author that when this newspaper reports a new attachment between an eligible gentleman and an unmarried lady, the odds in the betting books at gentlemen's clubs change within hours and always in favour of marriage. Although this author is not allowed in whites, she has reason to believe that the official odds concerning the marriage of the Duke and Miss Bridgerton were two to one, four. Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 21st of May, 1813. The rest of the week flew by in a rush. Daphne didn't see Simon for several days. She might have thought he'd left town except that Antony told her he'd been over to Hastings' house to settle the details of the marriage contract. Much to Antony's surprise, Simon had refused to accept even a penny as dowry. Finally, the two men had decided that Antony would put the money his father had put aside for Daphne's marriage in a separate estate with himself as the trustee. It would be hers to spend or save as she liked. You can pass it along to your children, Antony suggested. Daphne only smiled. It was either that or cry. A few days after that, Simon called upon Bridgerton House in the afternoon. 
it was two days before the wedding. Daphne waited in the drawing room after Humboldt announced his arrival. She sat primly on the edge of the damask sofa, her back straight and her hands clasped together in her lap. She looked, she was sure, the very model of genteel English womanhood. She felt a bundle of nerves. Correction, she thought, as her stomach turned itself inside out. A bundle of nerves with frayed edges. She looked down at her hands and realised that her fingernails were leaving red, crescent-shaped indentations on her palms. Second correction. A bundle of nerves with frayed edges with an arrow stuck through them. Maybe a flaming arrow at that. The urge to laugh was almost as overwhelming as it was inappropriate. She had never felt nervous at seeing Simon before. In fact, that had been possibly the most remarkable aspect of their friendship. Even when she caught him gazing at her with smouldering heat, and she was sure that her eyes reflected the same need, she had felt utterly comfortable with him. Yes, her stomach flipped and her skin tingled, but those were symptoms of desire, not of unease. First and foremost, Simon had been her friend, and Daphne knew that the easy, happy feeling she'd experienced whenever he was near was not something to be taken for granted. She was confident that they would find their way back to that sense of comfort and companionship, but after the scene in Regent's Park, she very much feared that this would occur later rather than sooner. Good day, Daphne. Simon appeared in the doorway, filling it with his marvellous presence. Well, perhaps his presence wasn't quite as marvellous as usual. His eyes still sported matching purple bruises, and the one on his chin was starting to turn an impressive shade of green. Still, it was better than a bullet in the heart. Simon, Daphne replied, how nice to see you. What brings you to Bridgerton House? He gave her a surprised look. Aren't we betrothed? She blushed. Yes, of course. It was my impression that men were supposed to visit their betrothed. He sat down across from her. Didn't Lady Whistledown say something to that effect? I don't think so, Daphne murmured. But I'm certain my mother must have done. They both smiled, and for a moment Daphne thought that all would be well again. But as soon as the smiles faded, an uncomfortable silence fell across the room. Are your eyes feeling any better? she finally asked. They don't look quite as swollen. Do you think? Simon turned so that he was facing a large gilt mirror. I rather think the bruises have turned a spectacular shade of blue. Purple. He leaned forward. Not that that brought him appreciably closer to the mirror. Purple, then. But I suppose it might be a debatable fact. Do they hurt? He smiled humorlessly. Only when someone pokes at them. I shall refrain from doing so, then, she murmured her lips quirking in a tell-tale twitch. It shall be difficult, of course, but I shall persevere. Yes, he said, with a perfectly deadpan expression. I've often been told I make women want to poke me in the eye. Daphne's smile was one of relief. Surely if they could joke about such things, everything would go back to the way it was. Simon cleared his throat. I did have a specific reason for coming to see you. Daphne gazed at him expectantly, waiting for him to continue. He held out a jeweller's box. 
This is for you. Her breath caught in her throat as she reached for the small, velvet-covered box. Are you certain? she asked. I believe betrothal rings are considered quite de rigueur, he said quietly. Oh, how stupid of me. I didn't realise. That it was a betrothal ring? Or did you think it was? I wasn't thinking, she admitted sheepishly. He'd never given her a gift before. She'd been so taken aback by the gesture, she'd completely forgotten that he owed her a betrothal ring. Owed. She didn't like that word. Didn't like that she'd even thought it. But she was fairly certain that that was what Simon must have been thinking when he'd picked out the ring. This depressed her. Daphne forced a smile. Is this a family heirloom? No, he said, with enough vehemence to make her blink. Oh. Yet another awkward silence. He coughed, then said, I thought you might like something of your own. All of the Hastings jewellery was chosen for someone else. This I chose for you. Daphne thought it a wonder she didn't melt on the spot. That's so sweet, she said, just barely managing to stifle a sentimental sniffle. Simon squirmed in his seat, which didn't surprise her. Men did so hate to be called sweet. Aren't you going to open it? he grunted. Oh, yes, of course. Daphne shook her head slightly as she snapped back to attention. How silly of me. Her eyes had glazed over slightly as she stared at the jeweller's box. Blinking a few times to clear her vision, she carefully released the box's clasp and opened it. And couldn't possibly say anything besides, Oh, my goodness! And even that came out with more breath than voice. Nestled in the box was a stunning band of white gold adorned with a large marquee-cut emerald, flanked on either side by a single perfect diamond. It was the most beautiful piece of jewellery Daphne had ever seen. Brilliant but elegant, obviously precious but not overly showy. It's beautiful, she whispered. I love it. Are you certain? Simon removed his gloves then leaned forward and took the ring out of the box. Because it is your ring, you shall be the one to wear it, and it should reflect your tastes, not mine. Daphne's voice shook slightly as she said, Clearly, our tastes coincide. Simon breathed a small sigh of relief and picked up her hand. He hadn't realised how much it meant to him that she liked the ring until that very moment. He hated that he felt so nervous around her when they'd been such easy friends for the past few weeks. He hated that there were silences in their conversations, when before she'd been the only person with whom he never felt the need to pause and take stock of his words. Not that he was having any trouble speaking now. It was just that he didn't seem to know what to say. May I put it on? he asked softly. She nodded and started to remove her glove but Simon stilled her fingers with his own, then took over the task. He gave the tip of each finger a tug, then slowly slid the glove from her hand. The motion was unabashedly erotic, clearly an abbreviated version of what he wanted to do, remove every stitch from her body. Daphne gasped as the edge of the glove trailed past the tips of her fingers. The sound of her breath rushing across her lips 
made him want her all the more. With tremulous hands, he slid the ring on her finger, easing it over her knuckle until it rested in place. It fits perfectly, she said, moving her hand this way and that, so that she could see how it reflected the light. Simon, however, didn't let go of her hand. As she moved, her skin slid along his, creating a warmth that was oddly soothing. Then he lifted her hand to his mouth and dropped a gentle kiss on her knuckles. I'm glad, he murmured. It suits you. Her lips curved, a hint of that wide smile he'd come to adore. Maybe a hint that all would be well between them. How did you know I like emeralds? she asked. I didn't, he admitted. They reminded me of your eyes. Of my... Her head cocked slightly as her mouth twisted into what could only be described as a scolding grin. Simon, my eyes are brown. They're mostly brown, he corrected. She twisted until she was facing the gilt mirror he'd used earlier to inspect his bruises and blinked a few times. No, she said slowly, as if she were speaking to a person of considerably small intellect. They're brown. He reached out and brushed one gentle finger along the bottom edge of her eye, her delicate lashes tickling his skin like a butterfly kiss. Not around the edge. She gave him a look that was mostly dubious, but a little bit hopeful, then let out a funny little breath and stood. I'm going to look for myself. Simon watched with amusement as she stood and marched over to the mirror and put her face close to the glass. She blinked several times, then held her eyes open wide, then blinked some more. Oh, my goodness, she exclaimed. I've never seen that. Simon stood and moved to her side, leaning with her against the mahogany table that stood in front of the mirror. You'll soon learn that I am always right. She shot him a sarcastic look. But how did you notice that? He shrugged. I looked very closely. You... She seemed to decide against finishing her statement and leaned back against the table, opening her eyes wide to inspect them again. Fancy that, she murmured. I have green eyes. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say... For today, she interrupted. I refuse to believe they are anything but green. Simon grinned. As you wish, she sighed. I was always so jealous of Colin. Such beautiful eyes wasted on a man. I'm sure the young ladies who fancy themselves in love with him would disagree. Daphne gave him a smirky glance. Yes, but they don't signify, do they? Simon caught himself wanting to laugh. Not if you say so. You'll soon learn, she said archly, that I am always right. This time he did laugh. There was no way he could have held it in. He finally stopped, realising that Daphne was silent. She was regarding him warmly, though. Her lips curved into a nostalgic smile. This was nice, she said, placing her hand on his. Almost like it used to be, don't you think? He nodded, turning his hand palm up so that he could clasp hers. It will be like this again, won't it? Her eyes showed a flicker of trepidation. We'll go back to the way it was, won't we? Everything will be exactly the same. Yes, he said, 
even though he knew it could not be true. They might find contentment, but it would never be just as it was. She smiled, closed her eyes, and rested her head against his shoulder. Good. Simon watched their reflection for several minutes, and he almost believed he would be able to make her happy. The next evening, Daphne's last night as Miss Bridgerton, Violet knocked on her bedroom door. Daphne was sitting on her bed, mementos of her childhood spread out before her when she heard the rap. Come in, she called out. Violet poked her head in, an awkward smile pasted on her face. Daphne, she said, sounding queasy. Do you have a moment? Daphne looked at her mother with concern. Of course. She stood as Violet edged into the room. Her mother's skin was a remarkable match with her yellow dress. Are you quite all right, mother? Daphne inquired. You look a little green. I'm fine. I just... Violet cleared her throat and steeled her shoulders. It's time we had a talk. Oh, Daphne breathed, her heart racing with anticipation. She'd been waiting for this. All her friends had told her that the night before one's wedding, one's mother delivered all the secrets of marriage. At the last possible moment, one was admitted into the company of womanhood and told all those wicked and delicious facts that were kept so scrupulously from the ears of unmarried girls. Some of the young ladies of her set had, of course, already married, and Daphne and her friends had tried to get them to reveal what no one else would. But the young matrons had just giggled and smiled, saying, You'll find out soon. Soon had become now, and Daphne couldn't wait. Violet, on the other hand, looked as if she might lose the contents of her stomach at any moment. Daphne patted a spot on her bed. Would you like to sit here, mother? Violet blinked in a rather distracted manner. Yes, yes, that would be fine. She sat down, half on and half off the bed. She didn't look very comfortable. Daphne decided to take pity on her and begin the conversation. Is this about marriage? she asked gently. Violet's nod was barely perceptible. Daphne fought to keep the fascinated glee out of her voice. The wedding night? This time Violet managed to bob her chin up and down an entire inch. I really don't know how to tell this to you. It's highly indelicate. Daphne tried to wait patiently. Eventually her mother would get to the point. You see, Violet said haltingly, there are things you need to know, things that will occur tomorrow night, things, she coughed, that involve your husband. Daphne leaned forward, her eyes widening. Violet scooted back, clearly uncomfortable with Daphne's obvious interest. You see, your husband, that is to say, Simon, of course, since he will be your husband... Since Violet showed no sign of finishing that thought, Daphne murmured, Yes, Simon will be my husband. Violet groaned, her cornflower blue eyes glancing everywhere but Daphne's face. This is very difficult for me. Apparently so, Daphne muttered. Violet took a deep breath and sat up straight, 
her narrow shoulders thrown back as if she were steeling herself for the most unpleasant task. On your wedding night, she began, your husband will expect you to do your marital duty. This was nothing Daphne didn't already know. Your marriage must be consummated. Of course, Daphne murmured. He will join you in your bed. Daphne nodded. She knew this as well. And he will perform certain... Violet groped for a word, her hands actually waving through the air. Intimacies upon your person. Daphne's lips parted slightly, her short, indrawn breath, the room's only sound. This was finally getting interesting. I am here to tell you, Violet said, her voice turning quite brisk, that your marital duty need not be unpleasant. But what was it? Violet's cheeks blazed. I know that some women find the, uh, act distasteful, but they do, Daphne asked curiously. Then why do I see so many maids sneaking off with the footman? Violet instantly went into outraged employer mode. Which maid was that? she demanded. Don't try to change the subject, Daphne warned. I've been waiting for this all week. Some of the steam went out of her mother. You have. Daphne's look was pure. What did you expect? Well, of course. Violet sighed and mumbled. Where was I? You were telling me that some women find their marital duty unpleasant. Right. Well, hmm. Daphne looked down at her mother's hands and noticed that she'd practically shredded a handkerchief. All I really want you to know, Violet said, the words tumbling out as if she could not wait to be rid of them, is that it needn't be unpleasant at all. If two people care for one another, and I believe that the Duke cares for you very much. And I for him, Daphne interrupted softly. Of course. Right. Well, you see, given that you do care for each other, it will probably be a very lovely and special moment. Violet started scooting to the foot of the bed, the pale yellow silk of her skirts spreading along the quilts as she moved. And you shouldn't be nervous. I'm sure the Duke will be very gentle. Daphne thought of Simon's scorching kiss. Gentle didn't seem to apply. But... Violet stood up like a shot. Very well. Have a good night. That's what I came here to say. That's all. Violet dashed for the door. Uh, yes... Her eyes shifted guiltily. Were you expecting something else? Yes! Daphne ran after her mother and threw herself against the door so she couldn't escape. You can't leave telling me only that. Violet glanced longingly at the window. Daphne gave thanks that her room was on the second floor. Otherwise, she wouldn't have put it past her mother to try to make a getaway that way. Daphne, Violet said her voice sounding rather strangled. But what do I do? Your husband will know, Violet said primly. I don't want to make a fool of myself, Mother. Violet groaned. You won't. Trust me. Men are... Daphne seized upon the half-finished thought. Men are what? What, Mother? What were you going to say? By now, Violet's entire face had turned bright red, and her neck and ears had progressed well into the pinks. 
Men are easily pleased, she mumbled. He won't be disappointed. But, but enough, Violet finally said firmly. I have told you everything my mother told me. Don't be a nervous ninny and do it enough so you'll have a baby. Daphne's jaw dropped. What? Violet chuckled nervously. Did I forget to mention the bit about the baby? Mother. Very well. Your marital duty, the, uh, consummation, that is, is how you have a baby. Daphne sank against the wall. So you did this eight times, she whispered. No! Daphne blinked in confusion. Her mother's explanations had been impossibly vague, and she still didn't know what marital duty was precisely, but something wasn't adding up. But wouldn't you have had to do it eight times? Violet began to fan herself furiously. Yes, no, Daphne, this is very personal. But how could you have had eight children if you... I did it more than eight times, Violet ground out, looking as if she wanted to melt right into the walls. Daphne stared at her mother in disbelief. You did? Sometimes, Violet said, barely even moving her lips, and certainly not moving her eyes off a single spot on the floor. People just do it because they like to. Daphne's eyes grew very wide. They do? she breathed. Uh, yes. Like when men and women kiss? Yes, exactly, Violet said, sighing with relief. Very much like... her eyes narrowed. Daphne? she said, her voice suddenly shrill. Have you kissed the Duke? Daphne felt her skin turning a shade that rivaled her mother's. I might have done, she mumbled. Violet shook her finger at her daughter. Daphne Bridgerton, I cannot believe you would do such a thing. You know very well I warned you about allowing men such liberties. It hardly signifies now that we're to be married. But still... Violet gave a deflating sigh. Never mind. You're right. It doesn't signify. You're to be married, and to a duke, no less. And if he kissed you, well, then, that was to be expected. Daphne just stared at her mother in disbelief. Violet's nervous, halting chatter was very much out of character. Now then, Violet announced, as long as you don't have any more questions... I'll just leave you to your... Uh, she glanced distractedly at the mementos Daphne had been shuffling through. Whatever it is that you're doing. But I do have more questions. Violet, however, had already made her escape. And Daphne, no matter how desperately she wanted to learn the secrets of the marital act, wasn't about to chase her mother down the hall in full view of all the family and servants to find out. Besides... Her mother's talk had raised a new set of worries. Violet had said that the marital act was a requirement for the creation of children. If Simon couldn't have children, did that mean he couldn't perform those intimacies her mother had mentioned? And dash it all, what were those intimacies? Daphne suspected they had something to do with kissing, since society seemed so determined to make sure that young ladies keep their lips pure and chaste. And, she thought, 
a blush stealing over her cheeks as she remembered her time in the gardens with Simon, they might have something to do with a woman's breasts as well. Daphne groaned. Her mother had practically ordered her not to be nervous, but she didn't see how she could be otherwise, not when she was expected to enter into this contract without the slightest idea of how to perform her duties. And what of Simon? If he could not consummate the marriage, would it even be a marriage? It was enough to make a new bride very apprehensive, indeed. In the end, it was the little details of the wedding that Daphne remembered. There were tears in her mother's eyes, and then eventually on her face, and Antony's voice had been oddly hoarse when he stepped forward to give her away. Hyacinth had strewn her rose petals too quickly, and there were none left by the time she reached the altar. Gregory sneezed three times before they even got to their vows, and she remembered the look of concentration on Simon's face as he repeated his vows. Each syllable was uttered slowly and carefully. His eyes burned with intent, and his voice was low but true. To Daphne, it sounded as if nothing in the world could possibly be as important as the words he spoke as they stood before the archbishop. Her heart found comfort in this. No man who spoke his vows with such intensity could possibly view marriage as a mere convenience. Those whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. A shiver raced down Daphne's spine, causing her to sway. In just a moment, she would belong to this man forever. Simon's head turned slightly, his eyes darting to her face. Are you all right? his eyes asked. She nodded, a tiny little jog of her chin that only he could see. Something blazed in his eyes. Could it be relief? I now pronounce you... Gregory sneezed for a fourth time, then a fifth and sixth, completely obliterating the archbishop's man and wife. Daphne felt a horrifying bubble of mirth pushing up her throat. She pressed her lips together, determined to maintain an appropriately serious facade. Marriage, after all, was a solemn institution, and not one to be treating as a joke. She shot a glance at Simon, only to find that he was looking at her with a queer expression. His pale eyes were focused on her mouth, and the corners of his lips began to twitch. Daphne felt that bubble of mirth rising ever higher. You may kiss the bride. Simon grabbed her with almost desperate arms, his mouth crashing down on hers with a force that drew a collective gasp from the small assemblage of guests. And then both sets of lips, bride and groom, burst into laughter, even as they remained entwined. Violet Bridgerton later said it was the oddest kiss she'd ever been privileged to view. Gregory Bridgerton, when he finished sneezing, said it was disgusting. The Archbishop, who was getting on in years, looked perplexed. But Hyacinth Bridgerton, who at ten should have known the least about kisses of anyone, just blinked thoughtfully and said, I think it's nice. If they're laughing now, they'll probably be laughing forever. She turned to her mother. Isn't that a good thing? Violet took her youngest daughter's hand and squeezed it. Laughter is always a good thing, Hyacinth. And thank you for reminding us of that.
And so it was that the rumour was started that the new Duke and Duchess of Hastings were the most blissfully happy and devoted couple to be married in decades. After all, who could remember another wedding with so much laughter? Chapter 14 We are told that the wedding of the Duke of Hastings and the former Miss Bridgerton, while small, was most eventful. Miss Hyacinth Bridgerton, ten years of age, whispered to Miss Felicity Featherington, also aged ten, that the bride and groom actually laughed aloud during the ceremony. Miss Felicity then repeated this information to her mother, Mrs. Featherington, who then repeated it to the world. This author shall have to trust Miss Hyacinth's account, since this author was not invited to view the ceremony. Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 24th of May, 1813. There was to be no wedding trip. There hadn't, after all, been any time to plan one. Instead, Simon had made arrangements for them to spend several weeks at Cliveden Castle, the Bassett's ancestral seat. Daphne thought this a fine idea. She was eager to get away from London and the inquiring eyes and ears of the ton. Besides, she was oddly eager to see the place where Simon had grown up. She found herself imagining him as a young boy. Had he been as irrepressible as he now was with her? Or had he been a quiet child, with the reserved demeanour he showed to most of society? The new couple left Bridgerton House amidst cheers and hugs, and Simon quickly bundled Daphne into his finest carriage. Although it was summer, there was a chill in the air and he carefully tucked a blanket over her lap. Daphne laughed. Isn't that a bit much? she teased. I'm unlikely to catch a chill on the few short blocks to your home. He regarded her quizzically. We travel to Cliveden. Tonight? She could not disguise her surprise. She had assumed they would embark on their journey the following day. The village of Cliveden was located near Hastings, all the way down on England's southeastern coast. It was already late afternoon. By the time they reached the castle, it would be the middle of the night. This was not the wedding night Daphne had envisioned. Wouldn't it make more sense to rest here in London for one night, and then travel on to Clifton? she asked. The arrangements have already been made, he grunted. I see. Daphne made a valiant attempt to hide her disappointment. She was silent for a full minute, as the carriage lurched into motion, the well-sprung wheels unable to disguise the bumps from the uneven cobbles beneath them. As they swung around the corner to Park Lane, she asked, Will we be stopping at an inn? Of course, Simon replied. We need to eat supper. It wouldn't do for me to starve you on our first day of our marriage, would it? Will we be spending the night at this inn? Daphne persisted. No, we... Simon's mouth clamped shut into a firm line, then inexplicably softened. He turned to her with an expression of heart-melting tenderness. I've been a bear, haven't I? She blushed. She always blushed when he looked at her like that. No, no. It's just that I was surprised that... No, you're right. We will rest the night at an inn. I know of a good one halfway down to the coast. The Hare and Hounds... The food is hot and the beds are clean. He touched her on the chin. 
I shan't abuse you by forcing you to make the entire trip to Cliveden in one day. It's not that I'm not hardy enough for the trip, she said, her face colouring even further as she considered her next words. It's just that we did get married today, and if we don't stop at an inn, we'll be here in the carriage when night falls and... Say no more, he said, placing a finger to her lips. Daphne nodded gratefully. She didn't really wish to discuss their wedding night like this. Besides, it seemed the sort of topic that the husband ought to bring up, not the wife. After all, Simon was certainly the more knowledgeable of the two on that subject. He couldn't possibly be any less knowledgeable, she thought, with a disgruntled grimace. Her mother, despite all her hemming and hawing, had managed to tell her absolutely nothing. Well, except for the bit about the creation of children, not that Daphne understood any of the particulars. But on the other hand, maybe... Daphne's breath caught in her throat. What if Simon couldn't? Or what if he didn't want to? No, she decided firmly. He definitely wanted to. Moreover, he definitely wanted her. She hadn't imagined the fire in his eyes or the fierce pounding of his heart that night in the gardens. She glanced out the window, watching as London melted into the countryside. A woman could go mad obsessing over such things. She was going to put this from her mind. She was absolutely, positively, forever going to put this from her mind. Well, at least until that night. Her wedding night. The thought made her shiver. Simon glanced over at Daphne. His wife, he reminded himself, although it was still a bit difficult to believe. He'd never planned to have a wife. In fact, he'd planned quite specifically not to have one. And yet here he was, with Daphne Bridgerton. No, Daphne Bassett. Hell, she was the Duchess of Hastings, that's what she was. That was probably the strangest of all. His dukedom hadn't had a duchess in his lifetime. The title sounded odd. Rusty. Simon let out a long, calming exhale, letting his eyes rest on Daphne's profile. Then he frowned. Are you cold? he asked. She'd been shivering. Her lips were slightly parted, so he saw her tongue press up against the roof of her mouth to make an N sound. Then she moved ever so slightly and said, Yes, yes, but just a touch. You needn't... Simon tucked the blanket a bit more closely around her, wondering why on earth she would lie about such an innocuous fact. It's been a long day, he murmured, not because he felt it, although when he did stop to think about it, it had been a long day, but because it seemed like the right type of soothing remark for the moment. He'd been thinking a lot about soothing remarks and gentle consideration. He was going to try to be a good husband to her. She deserved at least that much. There were a lot of things he wasn't going to be able to give Daphne. True and complete happiness, unfortunately, among them. But he could do his best to keep her safe and protected and relatively content. She had chosen him, he reminded himself. Even knowing that she would never have children, she had chosen him. Being a good and faithful husband seemed the least he could do in return. I enjoyed it, Daphne said softly. He blinked and turned to her with a blank expression. 
I beg your pardon? The shadow of a smile touched her lips. It was a sight to behold. Something warm and teasing and just a little bit mischievous. It sent jolts of desire straight to his midsection, and it was all he could do to concentrate on her words as she said, You said it had been a long day. I said I enjoyed it. He looked at her blankly. Her face screwed up with such enchanting frustration that Simon felt a smile tugging at his lips. You said it had been a long day, she said yet again. I said I enjoyed it. When he still didn't speak, she let out a little snort and added, Perhaps this will all seem more clear if I point out that I implied the words yes and but, as in yes, but I enjoyed it. I see, he murmured, with all the solemnity he could muster. I suspect you see a great deal, she muttered, and ignore at least half of it. He quirked a brow, which caused her to grumble to herself, which, of course, caused him to want to kiss her. Everything made him want to kiss her. It was starting to grow quite painful, that. We should be at the inn by nightfall, he said crisply, as if a business-like mean would relieve his tension. It didn't, of course. All it did was remind him that he'd put off his wedding night by a full day. A full day of wanting, needing, of his body screaming for release. But he was damned if he was going to take her in some roadside inn, no matter how clean and tidy it might be. Daphne deserved better. This was her one and only wedding night, and he would make it perfect for her. She shot him a slightly startled look at the sudden change of subject. That will be nice. The roads really aren't safe these days after dark, he added, trying not to remind himself that he'd originally planned on pushing straight through to Clifton. No, she agreed. And we'll be hungry. Yes, she said, starting to look puzzled at his current obsession with their newly scheduled stop at the inn. Simon couldn't blame her but it was either discuss the travel plans to death or grab her and take her right there in the carriage, which was not an option. So, he said, they have good food. She blinked once before pointing out, You said that. So I did. He coughed. I believe I'll take a nap. Her dark eyes widened and her entire face actually bobbed forward as she asked, Right now? Simon gave a brisk nod. I do seem to be repeating myself, but I did, as you so thoughtfully reminded me, say it had been a long day. Indeed. She watched him curiously as he shifted in his seat, looking for the most comfortable position. Finally, she asked, Are you truly going to be able to fall asleep here in the moving carriage? Don't you find the ride a bit bumpy? He shrugged. I'm quite good at falling asleep whenever I wish to. Learned how on my travels. It's a talent, she murmured. Jolly good one, he agreed. Then he closed his eyes and faked sleep for the better part of three hours. Daphne stared at him, hard. He was faking it. With seven siblings, she knew every trick in the book, and Simon was definitely not asleep. His chest was rising and falling in an admirably even manner, 
and his breath contained just the right amount of whoosh and wheeze to sound like he was almost, but not quite, snoring. But Daphne knew better. Every time she moved, made a rustling sound, or breathed just a little too loudly, his chin moved. It was barely perceptible, but it was there. And when she yawned, making a low, sleepy, moaning noise, she saw his eyes move under his closed lids. There was something to admire, however, in the fact that he'd managed to keep up the charade for over two hours. She'd never lasted past twenty minutes herself. If he wanted to feign sleep, she decided in a rare fit of magnanimity, she might as well let him. Far be it from her to ruin such a marvellous performance. With one last yawn, a loud one, just to watch his eyes snap to attention under his eyelids, she turned to the carriage window, drawing the heavy velvet curtain back so she could peer outside. The sun sat orange and fat on the western horizon, about one-third of it already resting below the edge of the earth. If Simon had been correct in his estimation of their travelling time, and she had the feeling that he was frequently correct about such things, people who liked mathematics usually were, then they should be almost at the halfway point of their journey, almost to the hare and hounds, almost to her wedding night. Good God, she was going to have to stop thinking in such melodramatic terms. This was getting ridiculous. Simon, he didn't move. This irritated her. Simon, a little louder this time. The corner of his mouth twitched slightly, pulling down into a tiny frown. Daphne was positive he was trying to decide if she'd spoken too loudly for him to continue to feign sleep. Simon! She poked him, hard, right where his arm joined with his chest. There was no way he could possibly think a person could sleep through that. His eyelids fluttered open, and he made a funny little breathy sound, the sort people made when they woke up. He was good, Daphne thought, with reluctant admiration. He yawned. Durf! She didn't mince words. Are we there yet? He rubbed non-existent sleep from his eyes. I beg your pardon? Are we there yet? Ah! Uh, he glanced around the inside of the carriage. Not that that would tell him anything. Aren't we still moving? Yes, but we could be close. Simon let out a little sigh and peered out the window. He was facing east, so the sky looked considerably darker than it had through Daphne's window. Oh, he said, sounding surprised. Actually, it's just up ahead. Daphne did her best not to smirk. The carriage rolled to a halt, and Simon hopped down. He exchanged some words with the driver, presumably informing him that they had changed their plans and now intended to spend the night. Then he reached up for Daphne's hand and helped her down. Does this meet with your approval? he asked, with a nod and a wave toward the inn. Daphne didn't see how she could render judgment without seeing the interior, but she said yes anyway. Simon led her inside, then deposited her by the door when he went to deal with the innkeeper. Daphne watched the comings and goings with great interest. Right now, a young couple, they looked to be landed gentry, were being escorted into a private dining room, and a mother was ushering her brood of four up the stairs. Simon was arguing with the innkeeper, 
and a tall, lanky gentleman was leaning against her. Daphne swung her head back toward her husband. Simon was arguing with the innkeeper. Why on earth would he do that? She craned her neck. The two men were speaking in low tones, but it was clear that Simon was most displeased. The innkeeper looked as if he might die of shame at his inability to please the Duke of Hastings. Daphne frowned. This didn't look right. Should she intervene? She watched them argue a few moments longer. Clearly she should intervene. Taking steps that weren't hesitant, yet could never be called determined, she made her way over to her husband's side. Is anything amiss? she inquired politely. Simon spared her a brief glance. I thought you were waiting by the door. I was, she smiled brightly. I moved. Simon sculled and turned back to the innkeeper. Daphne let out a little cough, just to see if he would turn around. He didn't. She frowned. She didn't like being ignored. Simon? She poked him in the back. Simon? He turned slowly around, his face pure thundercloud. Daphne smiled again, all innocence. What is the problem? The innkeeper held his hands up in supplication and spoke before Simon could make any explanations. We have but one room left, he said, his voice a study in abject apology. I had no idea his grace planned to honour us with his presence this eve. Had I known, I would never have let that last room out to Mrs. Weatherby and her brood. I assure you, the innkeeper leaned forward and gave Daphne a commiserating look. I would have sent them right on their way. The last sentence was accompanied by a dramatic whooshing wave of both hands that made Daphne a touch seasick. Is Mrs. Weatherby the woman who just walked by here with four children? The innkeeper nodded. If it weren't for the children, I'd... Daphne cut him off, not wanting to hear the remainder of a sentence that would obviously involve booting an innocent woman out into the night. I see no reason why we cannot make do with one room. We are certainly not as high in the instep as that. Beside her, Simon's jaw clenched until she would swear she could hear his teeth grinding. He wanted separate rooms, did he? It was enough to make a new bride feel extremely unappreciated. The innkeeper turned to Simon and waited for his approval. Simon gave a curt nod, and the innkeeper clapped his hands together in delight and presumably relief. There was little worse for business than an irate duke on one's premises. He grabbed the key and scurried out from behind his desk. If you'll follow me... Simon motioned for Daphne to go first, so she swept past him and climbed the stairs behind the innkeeper. After only a couple of twists and turns, they were deposited in a large, comfortably furnished room with a view of the village. Well now, Daphne said, once the innkeeper had seen himself out. This seems nice enough. Simon's reply was a grunt. How articulate of you, she murmured, then disappeared behind the dressing screen. Simon watched her for several seconds before it occurred to him where she'd gone. Daphne, he called out, his voice strangling on itself. Are you changing your clothing? She poked her head out. No, I was just looking around. His heart continued to thud, although perhaps not at quite as rapid a pace. Good, he grunted. 
We'll be wanting to go down for supper soon. Of course. She smiled, a rather annoyingly winning and confident smile in his opinion. Are you hungry? she asked. Extremely. Her smile wobbled just a touch at his curt tone. Simon gave himself a mental scolding. Just because he was irate with himself didn't mean he had to extend the anger toward her. She'd done nothing wrong. And you? he asked, keeping his voice gentle. She emerged fully from behind the screen and perched at the end of the bed. A bit, she admitted. She swallowed nervously. But I'm not certain I could eat anything. Well, the food was excellent the last time I ate here. I assure you... It's not the quality of the food that worries me, she interrupted. It's my nerves. He stared at her blankly. Simon, she said, obviously trying to hide the impatience in her voice, but not, in Simon's opinion, succeeding. We were married this morning. Realisation finally dawned. Daphne, he said gently, you needn't worry. She blinked. I needn't. He drew a ragged breath. Being a gentle, caring husband was not as easy as it sounded. We will wait until we reach Cliveden to consummate the marriage. We will? Simon felt his eyes widen in surprise. Surely she didn't sound disappointed. I'm not going to take you in some roadside inn, he said. I have more respect for you than that. You're not. You do. His breath stopped. She did sound disappointed. Oh, no. She inched forward. Why not? Simon stared at her face for several moments, just sat there on the bed and stared at her. Her dark eyes were huge as they returned his regard, filled with tenderness and curiosity and a touch of hesitation. She licked her lips, surely just another sign of nerves, but Simon's frustrated body reacted to the seductive movement with an instant quickening. She smiled tremulously, but didn't quite meet his eye. I wouldn't mind. Simon remained frozen, curiously rooted to the spot, as his body screamed, Tackle her! Haul her onto the bed! Do anything! Just get her under you! And then, just when his urges began to outweigh his honour, she let out a small, tortured cry and jumped to her feet, turning her back on him as she covered her mouth with her hand. Simon, who had just swiped one arm through the air to yank her to him, found himself off balance and face down on the bed. Daphne, he mumbled into the mattress. I should have known, she whimpered. I'm so sorry. She was sorry. Simon pushed himself back up. She was whimpering? What the hell was going on? Daphne never whimpered. She turned back around, regarding him with stricken eyes. Simon would have been more concerned, except that he couldn't even begin to imagine what had so suddenly upset her. And if he couldn't imagine it, he tended to believe it wasn't serious. Arrogant of him, but there you had it. Daphne, he said with controlled gentleness, what is wrong? She sat down opposite him and placed a hand on his cheek. I'm so insensitive, she whispered. I should have known. I should never have said anything. Should have known what? he ground out. Her hand fell away. 
that you can't... that you couldn't... Can't what? She looked down at her lap, where her hands were attempting to wring each other to shreds. Please don't make me say it, she said. This, Simon muttered, has got to be why men avoid marriage. His words were meant more for his ears than hers, but she heard them and, unfortunately, reacted to them with another pathetic moan. What the hell is going on? he finally demanded. You're unable to consummate the marriage, she whispered. It was a wonder his erection didn't die off in that instant. Frankly, it was a wonder he was even able to strangle out the words. I beg your pardon? She hung her head. I'll still be a good wife to you. I'll never tell a soul, I promise. Not since childhood, when his stuttering and stammering had attacked his every word, had Simon been so at a loss for speech. She thought he was impotent. Why, why, why? A stutter or plain old shock? Simon thought shock. His brain didn't seem able to focus on anything other than that single word. I know that men are very sensitive about such things, Daphne said quietly. Especially when it's not true, Simon burst out. Her head jerked up. It's not? His eyes narrowed to slits. Did your brother tell you this? No. She slid her gaze away from his face. My mother. Your mother? Simon choked out. Surely no man had ever suffered so on his wedding night. Your mother told you I'm impotent? Is that the word for it? Daphne asked curiously. And then, at his thunderous glare, she hastily added, No, no, she didn't say it in so many words. What? Simon asked, his voice clipped. Did she say exactly? Well, not much, Daphne admitted. It was rather annoying, actually. But she did explain to me that the marital act... She called it an act. Isn't that what everyone calls it? He waved off her question. What else did she say? She told me that the... Uh, whatever it is you wish to call it. Simon found her sarcasm oddly admirable under the circumstances. Is related in some manner to the procreation of children and... Simon thought he might choke on his tongue. In some manner? Well, yes, Daphne frowned. She really didn't provide me with any specifics. Clearly. She did try her best, Daphne pointed out, thinking she ought at least to try to come to her mother's defence. It was very embarrassing for her. After eight children, he muttered, you'd think she'd be over that by now. I don't think so. Daphne said, shaking her head. And then, when I asked her if she'd participated in this, she looked up at him with an exasperated expression. I really don't know what else to call it but an act. Go right ahead, he said with a wave, his voice sounding awfully strained. Daphne blinked with concern. Are you all right? Just fine, he choked. You don't sound fine. He waved his hand some more giving Daphne the odd impression that he couldn't speak. Well, she said slowly, going back to her earlier story, I asked her if that meant she'd participated in this act eight times, and she became very embarrassed and... You asked her that, 
Simon burst out, the words escaping his mouth like an explosion. Well, yes. Her eyes narrowed. Are you laughing? No, he gasped. Her lips twisted into a small scowl. You certainly look as if you're laughing. Simon just shook his head in a decidedly frantic manner. Well, Daphne said, clearly disgruntled, I thought my question made perfect sense, seeing as she has eight children. But then she told me that... He shook his head and held up a hand, and now he looked like he didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Don't tell me. I beg of you. Oh. Daphne didn't know what to say to that, so she just clamped her hands together in her lap and shut her mouth. Finally, she heard Simon take a long, ragged breath and say... I know I'm going to regret asking you this. In fact, I regret it already. But why exactly did you assume I was, he shuddered, unable to perform? Well, you said you couldn't have children. Daphne, there are many, many other reasons why a couple might be unable to have children. Daphne had to force herself to stop grinding her teeth. I really hate how stupid I feel right now she muttered. He leaned forward and pried her hands apart. Daphne, he said softly, massaging her fingers with his. Do you have any idea what happens between a man and a woman? I haven't a clue, she said frankly. You'd think I would, with three older brothers. And I thought I'd finally learn the truth last night when my mother... Don't say anything more, he said in the oddest voice. Not another word. I couldn't bear it. But his head fell into his hands, and for a moment Daphne thought he might be crying. But then, as she sat there, castigating herself for making her husband weep on his wedding day, she realised that his shoulders were shaking with laughter. The fiend! Are you laughing at me? she growled. He shook his head, not looking up. Then what are you laughing about? Oh, Daphne! he gasped. You have a lot to learn. Well, I never disputed that, she grumbled. Really, if people weren't so intent on keeping young women completely ignorant of the realities of marriage, scenes like this could be avoided. He leaned forward, his elbows resting on his knees. His eyes grew positively electric. I can teach you, he whispered. Daphne's stomach did a little flip. Never once taking his eyes off of hers, Simon took her hand and raised it to his lips. I assure you, he murmured, flicking his tongue down the line of her middle finger. I am perfectly able to satisfy you in bed. Daphne suddenly found it difficult to breathe. And when had the room grown so hot? I I'm not sure I know what you mean. He yanked her into his arms. You will. Chapter 15 London seems terribly quiet this week, now that society's favourite duke and that duke's favourite duchess have departed for the country. This author could report that Mr Nigel Burbrook was seen asking Miss Penelope Featherington to dance, or that Miss Penelope, despite her mother's gleeful urging and her eventual acceptance of his offer, did not seem terribly enamoured with the notion. But really, 
Who wants to read about Mr. Burbrook or Miss Penelope? Let us not fool ourselves. We are all still ravenously curious about the Duke and Duchess. Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 28th of May, 1813. It was like being in Lady Trowbridge's garden all over again, Daphne thought wildly, except that this time there would be no interruptions, no furious older brothers, no fear of discovery, nothing but a husband, a wife, and the promise of passion. Simon's lips found hers, gentle but demanding. With each touch, each flick of his tongue, she felt flutterings within her, tiny spasms of need that were building in pitch and frequency. Have I told you, he whispered, how enamoured I am of the corner of your mouth. No, Daphne said tremulously, amazed that he'd ever even once examined it. I adore it, he murmured, and then went to show her how. His teeth scraped along her lower lip until his tongue darted out and traced the curve of the corner of her mouth. It tickled, and Daphne felt her lips spreading into a wide, open-mouthed smile. Stop, she giggled. Never, he vowed. He pulled back, cradling her face in his hands. You have the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. Daphne's initial reaction was to say, Don't be silly. But then she thought, Why ruin such a moment? And so she just said, Really? Really. He dropped a kiss on her nose. When you smile, it takes up half your face. Simon! she exclaimed. That sounds horrible. It's enchanting. Distorted. Desirable. She grimaced, but somehow she laughed at the same time. Clearly you have no knowledge of the standards of female beauty. He arched a brow. As pertains to you, my standards are the only ones that count any longer. For a moment she was speechless. Then she collapsed against him a torrent of laughter shaking both of their bodies. Oh, Simon, she gasped. You sounded so fierce, so wonderfully, perfectly, absurdly fierce. Absurd, he echoed. Are you calling me absurd? Her lips tightened to prevent another giggle, but they weren't entirely successful. It's almost as bad as being called impotent, he grumbled. Daphne was instantly serious. Oh, Simon... You know I didn't... She gave up trying to explain, and instead just said, I'm so sorry about that. Don't be. He waved off her apology. Your mother I may have to kill, but you have nothing to apologise for. A horrified giggle escaped her lips. Mother did try her best, and if I hadn't been confused because you said... Oh, so now it's all my fault, he said with mock outrage. But then his expression grew sly, seductive. He moved closer, angling his body so that she had to arch backwards. I suppose I'll just have to work doubly hard to prove my capabilities. One of his hands slid to the small of her back, supporting her as he lowered her onto the bed. Daphne felt the breath leave her body as she looked up into his intensely blue eyes. The world seemed somehow different when one was lying down darker, more dangerous, and all the more thrilling because Simon was looming above her, filling her vision. And in that moment, 
as he slowly closed the distance between them. He became her entire world. This time his kiss wasn't light. He didn't tickle. He devoured. He didn't tease. He possessed. His hands slipped under her, cradling her derriere, pressing it up against his arousal. Tonight, he whispered, his voice hoarse and hot in her ear, I will make you mine. Daphne's breath started coming faster and faster, each little gasp of air impossibly loud to her ears. Simon was so close, every inch of him covering her intimately. She'd imagined this night a thousand times since that moment in Regent's Park when he'd said he would marry her. But it had never occurred to her that the sheer weight of his body on hers would be so thrilling. He was large and hard and exquisitely muscled. There was no way she could escape his seductive onslaught, even if she'd wanted to. How strange it was to feel such titillating joy at being so powerless. He could do with her whatever he desired, and she wanted to let him. But when his body shuddered, and his lips tried to say her name, but didn't get beyond d d deaf, she realised that she possessed her own kind of control. He wanted her so much he couldn't breathe, needed her so badly he couldn't speak, and somehow, as she revelled in her new-found strength, she found that her body seemed to know what to do. Her hips arched up to meet his, and as his hands pushed her skirts up over her waist, her legs snaked around his, pulling him ever closer to the cradle of her femininity. My God, Daphne, Simon gasped, hauling his shaking body up on his elbows. I want to, I can't, Daphne grabbed at his back, trying to pull him back down to her. The air felt cool where his body had just been. I can't go slow, he grunted. I don't care. I do. His eyes burned with wicked intention. We seem to be getting ahead of ourselves. Daphne just stared at him, trying to catch her breath. He'd sat up, and his eyes were raking across her body as one of his hands slid up the length of her leg to her knee. First of all, he murmured, we need to do something about all of your clothes. Daphne gasped with shock as he stood, pulling her to her feet along with him. Her legs were weak, her balance non-existent, but he held her upright, his hands bunching her skirts around her waist. He whispered in her ear, It's difficult to strip you naked when you're lying down. One of his hands found the curve of her buttocks and started massaging her in a circular motion. The question, he mused, is do I push the dress up or pull it down? Daphne prayed that he wasn't expecting her to actually answer his question, because she couldn't make a sound. Or, he said slowly, one finger slipping under the ribboned bodice of her dress, both. And then, before she had even a moment to react, he'd pushed her dress down, so that the entire garment encircled her waist. Her legs were bare, and were it not for her thin silk chemise, she would have been completely naked. Now this is a surprise, Simon murmured, palming one of her breasts through the silk. Not an entirely unwelcome one, of course. Silk is never as soft as skin, but it does have its advantages. Daphne's breath fled as she watched him slide the silk slowly from side to side, 
the sweet friction causing her nipples to pucker and harden. I had no idea, Daphne whispered, her every breath sliding hot and moist across her lips. Simon went to work on her other breast. No idea of what? That you were so wicked. He smiled, slow and full of the devil. His lips moved to her ear, whispering, You were my best friend's sister. Utterly forbidden. What was I to do? Daphne shivered with desire. His breath touched only her ear, but her skin prickled across her entire body. I could do nothing, he continued, edging one strap of her chemise off her shoulder, except imagine. You thought about me, Daphne whispered, her body thrilling at the notion. You thought about this? His hand at her hip grew tight. Every night, every moment before I fell asleep, until my skin burned and my body begged for release. Daphne felt her legs wobble, but he held her up. And then, when I was asleep, he moved to her neck, his hot breath as much of a kiss as the touch of his lips. That's when I was truly naughty. A moan escaped her lips, strangled and incoherent and full of desire. The second chemise strap fell off her shoulder, just as Simon's lips found the tantalising hollow between her breasts. But tonight, he whispered, pushing the silk down until one breast was bared and then the other, tonight all of my dreams come true. Daphne had time only to gasp before his mouth found her breast and fastened on her hardened nipple. This is what I wanted to do in Lady Trowbridge's garden, he said. Did you know that? She shook her head wildly, grabbing onto his shoulders for support. She was swaying from side to side, barely able to hold her head straight. Spasms of pure feeling were shooting through her body, robbing her of breath, of balance, even of thought. Of course you didn't, he murmured. You're such an innocent. With deft and knowing fingers, Simon slid the rest of her clothes from her body until she was nude in his arms. Gently, because he knew she had to be almost as nervous as she was excited, he lowered her onto the bed. His motions were uncontrolled and jerky as he yanked at his own clothing. His skin was on fire, his entire body burning with need. Never once, however, did he take his eyes off of her. She lay sprawled on the bed, a temptation like none he'd ever seen. Her skin glowed peachy smooth in the flickering candlelight, and her hair, long since released from its coiffure, fell around her face in wild abandon. His fingers, which had removed her clothing with such finesse and speed, now felt awkward and clumsy as he tried to make sense of his own buttons and knots. As his hands moved to his trousers, he saw that she was pulling the bedsheets over her. Don't, he said, barely recognising his own voice. Her eyes met his, and he said, I'll be your blanket. He peeled the rest of his clothing off, and before she could utter a word, he moved to the bed, covering her body with his. He felt her gasp with surprise at the feel of him, and then her body stiffened slightly. Shh, he crooned, nuzzling her neck, while one of his hands made soothing circles on the side of her thigh. Trust me. I do trust you, she said in a shaky voice. It's just that... His hand moved up to her hip. Just that what? He could hear the grimace in her voice as she said, 
just that I wish I weren't so utterly ignorant. A low rumble of a laugh shook his chest. Stop that, she griped, swatting him on the shoulder. I'm not laughing at you, Simon insisted. You're certainly laughing, she muttered. And don't tell me you're laughing with me, because that excuse never works. I was laughing, he said softly, lifting himself up on his elbows so that he could look into her face. Because I was thinking how very glad I am of your ignorance. He lowered his face down until his lips brushed hers in a feather-light caress. I am honoured to be the only man to touch you thus. Her eyes shone with such purity of feeling that Simon was nearly undone. Truly, she whispered. Truly, he said, surprised by how gruff his voice sounded, although honour is most likely only the half of it. She said nothing, but her eyes were enchantingly curious. I might have to kill the next man who so much as looks at you sideways, he grumbled. To his great surprise, she burst out laughing. Oh, Simon, she gasped. It is so perfectly, splendidly wonderful to be the object of such irrational jealousy. Thank you. You'll thank me later, he vowed. And perhaps, she murmured, her dark eyes suddenly far more seductive than they had any right to be. You'll thank me as well. Simon felt her thighs slide apart as he settled his body against hers, his manhood hot against her belly. I already do, he said, his words melting into her skin as he kissed the hollow of her shoulder. Believe me, I already do. Never had he been so thankful for the hard-won control he had learned to exert over himself. His entire body ached to plunge into her and finally make her his in truth. But he knew that this night, their wedding night, was for Daphne, not for him. This was her first time. He was her first lover. Her only lover, he thought, with uncharacteristic savagery, and it was his responsibility to make certain that this night brought her nothing but exquisite pleasure. He knew she wanted him. Her breath was erratic. Her eyes glazed with need. He could hardly bear to look at her face, for every time he saw her lips, half open and panting with desire, the urge to slam into her nearly overwhelmed him. So instead he kissed her. He kissed her everywhere, and ignored the fierce pounding of his blood every time he heard her gasp or mule with desire. And then finally, when she was writhing and moaning beneath him, and he knew she was mad for him, he slipped his hand between her legs and touched her. The only sound he could make was her name, and even that came out as a half-groan. She was more than ready for him, hotter and wetter than he'd ever dreamed. But still, just to be sure, or maybe it was because he couldn't resist the perverse impulse to torture himself, he slid one long finger inside her, testing her warmth, tickling her sheath. Simon! she gasped, bucking beneath him. Already her muscles were tightening, and he knew that she was nearly to completion. Abruptly he removed his hand, ignoring her whimper of protest. He used his thighs to nudge hers further apart, and with a shuddering groan positioned himself to enter her. This may hurt a little, he whispered hoarsely, but I promise you. Just do it, she groaned, her head tossing wildly from side to side. 
and so he did. With one powerful thrust, he entered her fully. He felt her maidenhead give way, but she didn't seem to flinch from pain. Are you all right? he groaned, his every muscle tensing just to keep himself from moving within her. She nodded, her breath coming in shallow gasps. It feels very odd, she admitted. But not bad, he asked, almost ashamed by the desperate note in his voice. She shook her head, a tiny, feminine smile touching her lips. Not bad at all, she whispered. But before, when you, with your fingers... Even in the dull candlelight, he could see that her cheeks burned with embarrassment. Is this what you want? he whispered, pulling out until he was only halfway within her. No, she cried out. Then perhaps this is what you want. He plunged back in. She gasped. Yes, no, both. He began to move within her, his rhythm deliberately slow and even. With each thrust, he pushed a gasp from her lips, each little moan the perfect pitch to drive him wild. And then her moans grew into squeals and her gasps into pants, and he knew that she was near her peak. He moved ever faster. His teeth gritted as he fought to maintain his control as she spiralled toward completion. She moaned his name, and then she screamed it, and then her entire body went rigid beneath him. She clutched at his shoulders, her hips rising off the bed with a strength he could barely believe. Finally, with one last, powerful shudder, she collapsed beneath him, oblivious to everything but the power of her own release. Against his better judgment, Simon allowed himself one last thrust, burying himself to the hilt, savouring the sweet warmth of her body. Then, taking her mouth in a searingly passionate kiss, he pulled out and spent himself on the sheets next to her. It was to be only the first of many nights of passion. The newlyweds travelled down to Cliveden, and then, much to Daphne's extreme embarrassment, sequestered themselves in the master suite for more than a week. Of course, Daphne was not so embarrassed that she made anything more than a half-hearted attempt to actually leave the suite. Once they emerged from their honeymoonish seclusion, Daphne was given a tour of Cliveden, which was much needed, since all she'd seen upon arrival was the route from the front door to the Duke's bedroom. She then spent several hours introducing herself to the upper servants. She had, of course, been formally introduced to the staff upon her arrival. But Daphne thought it best to meet the more important members of the staff in a more individual manner. Since Simon had not resided at Cliveden for so many years, many of the newer servants did not know him. But those who had been at Cliveden during his childhood seemed to Daphne to be almost ferociously devoted to her husband. She laughed about it to Simon as they privately toured the garden, and had been startled to find herself on the receiving end of a decidedly shuttered stare. "'I lived here until I went to Eton,' was all he said, as if that ought to be explanation enough. Daphne was made instantly uncomfortable by the flatness in his voice— did you never travel to London? When we were small, we often... I lived here exclusively. His tone signalled that he desired, no, required, an end to the conversation. But Daphne threw caution to the winds and decided to pursue the topic anyway. You must have been a darling child, she said in a deliberately blithe voice. 
or perhaps an extremely mischievous one, to have inspired such long-standing devotion. He said nothing. Daphne plodded on. My brother, Colin, you know, is much the same way. He was the very devil when he was small, but so insufferably charming that all servants adored him. Why, one time... Her mouth froze, half open. There didn't seem much point in continuing. Simon had turned on his heel and walked away. He wasn't interested in roses, and he'd never pondered the existence of violets one way or another. But now Simon found himself leaning on a wooden fence, gazing out over Cliveden's famed flower garden, as if he was seriously considering a career in horticulture, all because he couldn't face Daphne's questions about his childhood. But the truth was, he hated the memories. He despised the reminders. Even staying here at Cliveden was uncomfortable. The only reason he'd brought Daphne down to his childhood home was because it was the only one of his residences within a two-day drive from London that was ready for immediate occupancy. The memories brought back the feelings, and Simon didn't want to feel like that young boy again. He didn't want to remember the number of times he'd sent letters to his father, only to wait in vain for a response. He didn't want to remember the kind smiles of the servants, kind smiles that were always accompanied by pitying eyes. They'd loved him, yes, but they'd also felt sorry for him. And the fact that they'd hated his father on his behalf, well, somehow that had never made him feel better. He hadn't been, and to be honest, still wasn't, so noble-minded that he didn't take a certain satisfaction in his father's lack of popularity. But that never took away the embarrassment or the discomfort or the shame. He'd wanted to be admired, not pitied, and it hadn't been until he'd struck out on his own by travelling, unheralded to Eton, that he'd had his first taste of success. He'd come so far. He'd travelled to hell before he went back to the way he'd been. None of this, of course, was Daphne's fault. He knew she had no ulterior motives when she asked about his childhood. How could she? She knew nothing of his occasional difficulties with speech. He'd worked damned hard to hide it from her. No, he thought with a weary sigh. He'd rarely had to work hard at all to hide it from Daphne. She'd always set him at ease, made him feel free. His stammer rarely surfaced these days, but when it did, it was always during times of stress and anger. And whatever life was about when he was with Daphne, it wasn't stress and anger. He leaned more heavily against the fence, guilt forcing his posture into a slouch. He'd treated her abominably. It seemed he was fated to do that time and again. Simon. He'd felt her presence before she'd spoken. She'd approached from behind, her booted feet soft and silent on the grass. But he knew she was there. He could smell her gentle fragrance and hear the wind whispering through her hair. These are beautiful roses, she said. It was, he knew, her way of soothing his peevish mood. He knew she was dying to ask more. But she was wise beyond her years, and much as he liked to tease her about it, she did know a lot about men and their idiot tempers. She wouldn't say anything more, at least not today. I'm told my mother planted them, he replied. His words came out more gruffly than he would have liked, 
that he hoped she saw them as the olive branch he'd meant them to be. When she didn't say anything, he added, by way of an explanation, She died at my birth. Daphne nodded. I'd heard. I'm sorry. Simon shrugged. I didn't know her. That doesn't mean it wasn't a loss. Simon considered his childhood. He had no way of knowing if his mother would have been more sympathetic to his difficulties than his father had been, but he figured there was no way she could have made it worse. Yes, he murmured. I suppose it was. Later that day, while Simon was going over some estate accounts, Daphne decided it was as good a time as any to get to know Mrs. Colson, the housekeeper. Although she and Simon had not yet discussed where they would reside, Daphne couldn't imagine that they wouldn't spend some time there at Cliveden, Simon's ancestral home, and if there was one thing she'd learned from her mother, it was that a lady simply had to have a good working relationship with her housekeeper. Not that Daphne was terribly worried about getting along with Mrs. Colson. She had met the housekeeper briefly when Simon had introduced her to the staff, and it had been quickly apparent that she was a friendly, talkative sort. She stopped by Mrs. Colson's office, a tiny little room just off the kitchen, a bit before tea time. The housekeeper, a handsome woman in her fifties, was bent over her small desk, working on the week's menus. Daphne gave the open door a knock. Mrs. Colson? The housekeeper looked up and immediately stood. Your Grace, she said, bobbing into a small curtsy. You should have called for me. Daphne smiled awkwardly, still unused to her elevation from the ranks of mere misses. I was already up and about, she said, explaining her unorthodox appearance in the servant's domain. But if you have a moment, Mrs. Colson, I was hoping we might get to know one another better, since you have lived here for many years, and I hope to do so for many to come. Mrs. Colson smiled at Daphne's warm tone. Of course, Your Grace. Was there anything in particular about which you cared to inquire? Not at all, but I still have much to learn about Cliveden if I am to manage it properly. Perhaps we could take tea in the yellow room. I do so enjoy the decor. It's so warm and sunny. I had been hoping to make that my personal parlour. Mrs. Colson gave her an odd look. The last Duchess felt the same way. Oh, Daphne replied, not certain whether that ought to make her feel uncomfortable. I've given special care to that room over the years, Mrs. Colson continued. It does get quite a bit of sun, being on the south side. I had all of the furniture reupholstered three years ago. Her chin rose in a slightly proud manner. Went all the way to London to get the same fabric. I see, Daphne replied, leading the way out of the office. The late Duke must have loved his wife very much, to order such a painstaking conservation of her favourite room. Mrs. Colson didn't quite meet her eyes. It was my decision, she said quietly. The Duke always gave me a certain budget for the upkeep of the house. I thought it the most fitting use of the money. Daphne waited while the housekeeper summoned a maid and gave her instructions for the tea. It's a lovely room, she announced once they had exited the kitchen. And although the current Duke never had the opportunity to know his mother, I'm sure he'll be quite touched that you have seen fit to preserve her favourite room. It was the least I could do, Mrs. Colson said as they strolled across the hall. 
I have not always served the Bassett family, after all. Oh, Daphne asked curiously. Upper servants were notoriously loyal, often serving a single family for generations. Yes, I was the Duchess's personal maid. Mrs. Coulson waited outside the doorway of the yellow room to allow Daphne to precede her. And before that, her companion. My mother was her nurse. Her Grace's family was kind enough to allow me to share her lessons. You must have been quite close, Daphne murmured. Mrs. Coulson nodded. After she died, I occupied a number of different positions here at Clifton until I finally became housekeeper. I see. Daphne smiled at her and then took a seat on the sofa. Please sit, she said, motioning to the chair across from her. Mrs. Coulson seemed hesitant with such familiarity, but eventually sat. It broke my heart when she died, she said. She gave Daphne a slightly apprehensive look. I hope you don't mind my telling you so. Of course not, Daphne said quickly. She was ravenously curious about Simon's childhood. He said so little, and yet she sensed that it all meant so much. Please, tell me more. I would love to hear about her. Mrs. Coulson's eyes grew misty. She was the kindest, gentlest soul this earth has ever known. She and the Duke. Well, it wasn't a love match, but they got on well enough. They were friends in their own way. She looked up. They were both very much aware of their duties as Duke and Duchess. Took their responsibilities quite seriously. Daphne nodded understandingly. She was so determined to give him a son. She kept trying, even after the doctors all told her she mustn't. She used to cry in my arms every month when her courses came. Daphne nodded again, hoping the motion would hide her suddenly strained expression. It was difficult to listen to stories about not being able to have children, but she supposed she was going to have to get used to it. It was going to be even more strenuous to answer questions about it, and there would be questions. Painfully tactful and hideously pitying questions. But Mrs. Coulson, thankfully, didn't notice Daphne's distress. She sniffled as she continued her story. She was always saying things like, how was she to be a proper duchess if she couldn't give him a son? It broke my heart. Every month it broke my heart. Daphne wondered if her own heart would shatter every month. Probably not. She, at least, knew for a fact that she wouldn't have children. Simon's mother had her hopes crushed every four weeks. And of course, the housekeeper continued, everyone talked as if it were her fault there was no baby. How could they know that, I ask you? It's not always the woman who is barren. Sometimes it's the man's fault, you know. Daphne said nothing. I told her this time and again, but still she felt guilty. I said to her, the housekeeper's face turned pink. Do you mind if I speak frankly? Please do. She nodded. Well, I said to her what my mother said to me. A womb won't quicken without strong, healthy seed. Daphne held her face in an expressionless mask. It was all she could manage. But then she finally had Master Simon. Mrs. Coulson let out a maternal sigh then looked to Daphne with an apprehensive expression. "'I beg your pardon,' she said hastily. "'I shouldn't be calling him that. He's the Duke now.' "'Don't stop on my account,' 
Daphne said, happy to have something to smile about. It's hard to change one's ways at my age, Mrs. Coulson said with a sigh, and I'm afraid a part of me will always remember him as that poor little boy. She looked up at Daphne and shook her head. He would have had a much easier time of it if the Duchess had lived. An easier time of it, Daphne murmured, hoping that would be all the encouragement Mrs. Coulson would need to explain further. The Duke just never understood that poor boy, the housekeeper said forcefully. He stormed about and called him stupid and... Daphne's head snapped up. The Duke thought Simon was stupid, she interrupted. That was preposterous. Simon was one of the smartest people she knew. She'd once asked him a bit about his studies at Oxford and had been stunned to learn that his brand of mathematics didn't even use numbers. The Duke could never see the world beyond his own nose, Mrs. Coulson said with a snort. He never gave that boy a chance. Daphne felt her body leaning forward, her ears straining for the housekeeper's words. What had the Duke done to Simon? And was this the reason he turned to ice every time his father's name was mentioned? Mrs. Coulson pulled out her handkerchief and dabbed at her eyes. You should have seen the way that boy worked to improve himself. It broke my heart. It simply broke my heart. Daphne's hands clawed at the sofa. Mrs. Coulson was never going to get to the point. But nothing he ever did was good enough for the Duke. This is just my opinion, of course. But just then a maid entered with tea. Daphne nearly screamed with frustration. It took a good two minutes for the tea to be set up and poured, and all the while Mrs. Coulson chit-chatted about the biscuits. And did Daphne prefer them plain or with coarse sugar on top? Daphne had to pry her hands off the sofa. Lest she puncture holes in the upholstery, Mrs. Coulson had worked so hard to preserve. Finally, the maid left, and Mrs. Coulson took a sip of her tea and said, Now then, where were we? You were talking about the Duke, Daphne said quickly, the late Duke, that nothing my husband did was ever good enough for him, and in your opinion, my goodness, you were listening, Mrs. Coulson beamed. I'm so flattered. But you were saying, Daphne prompted, oh, yes, of course, I was simply going to say that I have long held the opinion that the late Duke never forgave his son for not being perfect. But Mrs. Coulson... Daphne said quietly. None of us is perfect. Of course not, but... The housekeeper's eyes floated up for a brief second in an expression of disdain toward the late Duke. If you'd known his grace, you would understand. He'd waited so long for a son, and in his mind the Bassett name was synonymous with perfection. And my husband wasn't the son he wanted? Daphne asked. He didn't want a son... He wanted a perfect little replica of himself. Daphne could no longer contain her curiosity. But what did Simon do that was so repugnant to the Duke? Mrs. Coulson's eyes widened in surprise, and one of her hands floated to her chest. Why, you don't know, she said softly. Of course you wouldn't know. What? He couldn't speak. Daphne's lips parted in shock. Beg your pardon? He couldn't speak. Not a word until he was four, and then it was all stutters and stammers. 
It broke my heart every time he opened his mouth. I could see that there was a bright little boy inside. He just couldn't get the words out right. But he speaks so well now, Daphne said, surprised by the defensiveness in her voice. I've never heard him stammer. Or if I have, I, I, I didn't notice it. See? Look, I just did it myself. Everyone stammers a bit when they're flustered. He worked very hard to improve himself. It was seven years, I recall. For seven years he did nothing but practice his speech with his nurse. Mrs. Coulson's face wrinkled with thought. Let's see. What was her name? Oh, yes, Nurse Hopkins. She was a saint, she was. As devoted to that boy as if he'd been her own. I was the housekeeper's assistant at the time, but she often let me come up and help him practice his speech. Was it difficult for him? Daphne whispered. Some days I thought he'd surely shudder from the frustration of it, but he was so stubborn. Heavens, but he was a stubborn boy. I've never seen a person so single-minded. Mrs. Coulson shook her head sadly, and his father still rejected him. It broke your heart, Daphne finished for her. It would have broken mine as well. Mrs. Coulson took a sip of her tea during the long, uncomfortable silence that followed. Thank you very much for allowing me to take tea with you, Your Grace, she said, misinterpreting Daphne's quietude for displeasure. It was highly irregular of you to do so, but very... Daphne looked up as Mrs. Coulson searched for the correct word. Kind, the housekeeper finally finished. It was very kind of you. Thank you, Daphne murmured distractedly. Oh, but I haven't answered any of your questions about Clifton, Mrs. Coulson said suddenly. Daphne gave her head a little shake. Another time, perhaps, she said softly. She had too much to think on just then. Mrs. Coulson, sensing her employer desired privacy, stood, bobbed a curtsy, and silently left the room. Chapter 16 The stifling heat in London this week has certainly put a crimp in society functions. This author saw Miss Prudence Featherington swoon at the Huxley Ball, but it is impossible to discern whether this temporary lack of verticality was due to the heat or the presence of Mr. Colin Bridgerton, who has been cutting quite a swash through society since his return from the continent. The unseasonable heat has also made a casualty of Lady Danbury, who quit London several days ago, claiming that her cat, a long-haired bushy beast, could not tolerate the weather. It is believed that she has retired to her country home in Surrey. One would guess that the Duke and Duchess of Hastings are unaffected by these rising temperatures. They are down on the coast, where the sea wind is always a pleasure. But this author cannot be certain of their comfort. Contrary to popular belief, this author does not have spies in all the important households, and certainly not outside of London. Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 2nd of June, 1813 it was odd, Simon reflected, how they'd not been married even a fortnight and yet had already fallen into comfortable patterns and routines. Just now he stood barefoot in the doorway of his dressing-room, loosening his cravat 
as he watched his wife brush her hair. And he'd done the exact same thing yesterday. There was something oddly comforting in that. And both times, he thought with a hint of a leer, he'd been planning how to seduce her into bed. Yesterday, of course, he'd been successful. His once expertly tied cravat, lying limp and forgotten on the floor, he took a step forward. Today he'd be successful too. He stopped when he reached Daphne's side, perching on the edge of her vanity table. She looked up and blinked owlishly. He touched his hand to hers, both of their fingers wrapped around the handle of the hairbrush. I like to watch you brush your hair, he said, but I like to do it myself better. She stared at him in an oddly intent fashion. Slowly, she relinquished the brush. Did you get everything done with your accounts? You were tucked away with your estate manager for quite a long time. Yes, it was rather tedious, but necessary, and... His face froze. What are you looking at? Her eyes slid from his face. Nothing, she said, her voice unnaturally staccato. He gave his head a tiny shake, the motion directed more at himself than at her. Then he began to brush her hair. For a moment, it had seemed as if she was staring at his mouth. He fought the urge to shudder. All through his childhood, people had stared at his mouth. They'd gazed in horrified fascination, occasionally forcing their eyes up to his, but always returning to his mouth, as if unable to believe that such a normal-looking feature could produce such gibberish. But he had to be imagining things. Why would Daphne be looking at his mouth? He pulled the brush gently through her hair, allowing his fingers to trail through the silky strands as well. Did you have a nice chat with Mrs. Coulson? he asked. She flinched. It was a tiny movement, and she hid it quite well, but he noticed it nonetheless. Yes, she said. She's very knowledgeable. She should be. She's been here for a... What are you looking at? Daphne practically jumped in her chair. I'm looking at the mirror, she insisted. Which was true, but Simon was still suspicious. Her eyes had been fixed and intent, focused on a single spot. As I was saying, Daphne said hastily, I'm certain Mrs. Colson will prove invaluable as I adjust to the management of Clifton. It's a large estate, and I have much to learn. Don't make too much of an effort, he said. We won't spend much time here. We won't? I thought we would make London our primary residence. At her look of surprise, he added, You'll be closer to your family, even when they retire to the country. I thought you'd like that. Yes, of course, she said. I do miss them. I've never been away from them for so long before. Of course, I've always known that when I married, I would be starting my own family, and... There was an awful silence. Well, you're my family now, she said, her voice sounding just a bit forlorn. Simon sighed, the silver-backed hairbrush halting its path through her dark hair. Daphne, he said, your family will always be your family. I can never take their place. No. She agreed. She twisted around to face him, her eyes like warm chocolate as she whispered, But you can be something more. And Simon realized that all his plans to seduce his wife were moot, 
because clearly she was planning to seduce him. She stood, her silk robe slipping from her shoulders. Underneath she wore a matching negligee, one that revealed almost as much as it hid. One of Simon's large hands found its way to the side of her breast, his fingers in stark contrast with the sage-green fabric of her nightgown. You like this colour, don't you? he said in a husky voice. She smiled, and he forgot to breathe. It's to match my eyes, she teased. Remember? Simon managed a returning smile, although how he didn't know. He'd never before thought it possible to smile when one was about to expire from lack of oxygen. Sometimes the need to touch her was so great it hurt just to look at her. He pulled her closer. He had to pull her closer. He would have gone insane if he hadn't. Are you telling me, he murmured against her neck, that you purchased this just for me? Of course, she replied, her voice catching as his tongue traced her earlobe. Who else is going to see me in it? No one, he vowed, reaching around to the small of her back and pressing her firmly against his arousal. No one. Not ever. She looked slightly bemused by his sudden burst of possessiveness. Besides, she added, it's part of my trousseau. Simon groaned. I love your trousseau. I adore it. Have I told you that? Not in so many words, she gasped. But it hasn't been too difficult to figure it out. Mostly, he said, nudging her toward the bed as he tore off his shirt. I like you out of your trousseau. Whatever Daphne had meant to say, and he was certain she'd meant to say something because her mouth opened in a most delightful manner, was lost as she toppled onto the bed. Simon covered her in an instant. He put his hands on either side of her hips, then slid them up, pushing her arms over her head. He paused on the bare skin of her upper arms, giving them a gentle squeeze. You're very strong, he said. Stronger than most women. The look Daphne gave him was just a bit arch. I don't want to hear about most women. Despite himself, Simon chuckled. Then, with movements quick as lightning, his hands flew to her wrists and pinned them above her head. But not, he drawled, as strong as I. She gasped with surprise, a sound he found particularly thrilling, and he quickly circled both her wrists with one of his hands, leaving the other free to roam her body. And roam he did. If you aren't the perfect woman, he groaned, sliding the hem of her nightgown up over her hips, then the world is... Stop, she said shakily. You know I'm not perfect. I do. His smile was dark and wicked as he slid his hand under one of her buttocks. You must be misinformed. Because this, he gave her a squeeze, is perfect. Simon! And as for these, he reached up and covered one of her breasts with his hand, tickling the nipple through the silk. Well, I don't need to tell you how I feel about these. You're mad. Quite possibly, he agreed. But I have excellent taste. And you... He leaned down quite suddenly and nipped at her mouth. Taste quite good. Daphne giggled, quite unable to help herself. Simon wiggled his brows. Dare you mock me? 
Normally I would, she replied, but not when you've got both my arms pinned over my head. Simon's free hand went to work on the fastenings of his trousers. Clearly I married a woman of great sense. Daphne gazed at him with pride and love as she watched his words trip effortlessly from his lips. To hear him speak now, one could never guess that he'd stammered as a child. What a remarkable man she'd married. To take such a hindrance and beat it with sheer force of will. He had to be the strongest, most disciplined man she knew. I am so glad I married you, she said in a rush of tenderness. So very proud you're mine. Simon stilled, obviously surprised by her sudden gravity. His voice grew low and husky. I'm proud you're mine as well. He yanked at his trousers. And I'd show you how proud, he grunted, if I could get these damned things off. Daphne felt another bubble of laughter welling up in her throat. Perhaps if you used two hands, she suggested. He gave her an I'm-not-as-stupid-as-that sort of look. But that would require my letting you go. She cocked her head coyly. What if I promised not to move my arms? I wouldn't even begin to believe you. Her smile turned wickedly suggestive. What if I promised I would move them? Now that sounds interesting. He leapt off the bed with an odd combination of grace and frantic energy and managed to get himself naked in under three seconds. Hopping back on, he stretched out on his side, all along the length of her. Now then, where were we? Daphne giggled again. Right about here, I believe. Uh-huh, he said, with a comically accusing expression. You haven't been paying attention. We were right. He slid atop her, his weight pressing her into the mattress. Here. Her giggles exploded into full-throated laughter. Didn't anyone tell you not to laugh at a man when he's trying to seduce you? If she'd had any chance of stopping her laughter before, it was gone now. Oh, Simon, she gasped. I do love you. He went utterly still. What? Daphne just smiled and touched his cheek. She understood him so much better now. After facing such rejection as a child, he probably didn't realise he was worthy of love, and he probably wasn't certain how to give it in return. But she could wait. She could wait forever for this man. You don't have to say anything, she whispered. Just know that I love you. The look in Simon's eyes was somehow both overjoyed and stricken. Daphne wondered if anyone had ever said the words, I love you, to him before. He'd grown up without a family, without the cocoon of love and warmth she'd taken for granted. His voice, when he found it, was hoarse and nearly broken. D Daphne, I... Shh, she crooned, placing a finger to his lips. Don't say anything now. Wait until it feels right. And then she wondered if perhaps she had said the most hurtful words imaginable. For Simon, did speaking ever feel right? Just kiss me, she whispered hurriedly, eager to move past what she was afraid might be an awkward moment. Please, kiss me. And he did. 
he kissed her with ferocious intensity, burning with all the passion and desire that flowed between them. His lips and hands left no spot untouched, kissing, squeezing and caressing until her nightgown lay tossed on the floor and the sheets and blankets were twisted into coils at the foot of the bed. But unlike every other night, he never did quite render her senseless. She'd been given too much to think about that day. Nothing, not even the fiercest cravings of her body, could stop the frantic pace of her thoughts. She was swimming in desire, every nerve expertly brought to a fever pitch of need, and yet still her mind whirred and analysed. When his eyes, so blue they glowed even in the candlelight, burned into hers, she wondered if that intensity were due to emotions he didn't know how to express through words. When he gasped her name, she couldn't help but listen for another tiny stammer. And when he sank into her, his head thrown back until the cords of his neck stood out in harsh relief, she wondered why he looked like he was in so much pain. Pain? Simon, she asked tentatively, worry putting a very slight damper on her desire. Are you all right? He nodded, his teeth gritted together. He fell against her, his hips still moving in their ancient rhythm, and whispered against her ear, I'll take you there. It wouldn't be that difficult, Daphne thought, her breath catching as he captured the tip of her breast in his mouth. It was never that difficult. He seemed to know exactly how to touch her, when to move, and when to tease by remaining tauntingly in place. His fingers slipped between their bodies, tickling her hot skin, until her hips were moving and grinding with the same force as his. She felt herself sliding toward that familiar oblivion. And it felt so good. Please, he pleaded, sliding his other hand underneath her, so that he might press her even more tightly against him. I need you to... Now, Daphne, now! And she did. The world exploded around her, her eyes squeezing so tightly shut that she saw spots and stars and brilliant streaming bursts of light. She heard music. Or maybe that was just her own high-pitched moan as she reached completion, providing a melody over the powerful pounding of her heart. Simon, with a groan that sounded as if it were ripped from his very soul, yanked himself out of her with barely a second to spare before he spilled himself, as he always did, on the sheets at the edge of the bed. In a moment, he would turn to her and pull her into his arms. It was a ritual she'd come to cherish. He would hold her tightly against him, her back to his front, and nuzzle his face in her hair. And then... After their breathing had settled down to an even sigh, they would sleep. Except tonight was different. Tonight, Daphne felt oddly restless. Her body was blissfully weary and sated. But something felt wrong. Something niggled at the back of her mind, teasing her subconscious. Simon rolled over and scooted his body next to hers, pushing her toward the clean side of the bed. He always did that using his body as a barrier so that she would never roll into the mess he made. It was a thoughtful gesture, actually. And Daphne's eyes flew open. She almost gasped. A womb won't quicken without strong, healthy seed. 
Daphne hadn't given a thought to Mrs. Colson's words when the housekeeper had uttered the saying that afternoon. She'd been too consumed with the tale of Simon's painful childhood, too concerned with how she could bring enough love into his life to banish the bad memories forever. Daphne sat up abruptly, the blankets falling to her waist. With shaking fingers, she lit the candle that sat on her bedside table. Simon opened a sleepy eye. What's wrong? She said nothing, just stared at the wet spot on the other side of the bed. His seed. Duff? He'd told her he couldn't have children. He'd lied to her. Daphne, what's wrong? He sat up. His face showed his concern. Was that, too, a lie? She pointed. What is that? she asked, her voice so low it was barely audible. What is what? His eyes followed the line of her finger and saw only bed. What are you talking about? Why can't you have children, Simon? His eyes grew shuttered. He said nothing. Why, Simon? She practically shouted the words. The details aren't important, Daphne. His tone was soft, placating with just a hint of condescension. Daphne felt something inside of her snap. Get out, she ordered. His mouth fell open. This is my bedroom. Then I'll get out. She stormed out of the bed, whipping one of the bedsheets around her. Simon was on her heels in a heartbeat. Don't you dare leave this room, he hissed. You lied to me. I never. You lied to me, she screamed. You lied to me, and I will never forgive you for that. Daphne, you took advantage of my stupidity. She let out a disbelieving breath, the kind that came from the back of one's throat right before it closed up in shock. You must have been so delighted when you realised how little I knew about marital relations. It's called making love, Daphne, he said. Not between us, it's not. Simon nearly flinched at the rancour in her voice. He stood, utterly naked, in the middle of the room, desperately trying to come up with some way to salvage the situation. He still wasn't even certain what she knew or what she thought she knew. Daphne, he said, very slowly, so that he would not let his emotions trip up his words. Perhaps you should tell me exactly what this is about. Oh, we're going to play that game, are we? She snorted derisively. Very well. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was... The scathing anger in her voice was like a dagger in his gut. Daphne, he said, closing his eyes and shaking his head. Don't do it like this. Once upon a time, she said, louder this time. There was a young lady. We'll call her Daphne. Simon strode to his dressing room and yanked on a robe. There were some things a man didn't want to deal with naked. Daphne was very, very stupid. Daphne. Oh, very well. She flipped her hand through the air dismissively. Ignorant, then. She was very, very ignorant. Simon crossed his arms. Daphne knew nothing about what happened between a man and a woman. She didn't know what they did, except that they did it in a bed, and that at some point the result would be a baby. This is enough, Daphne. 
The only sign that she heard him was the dark, flashing fury in her eyes. But you see, she didn't really know how that baby was made. And so when her husband told her he couldn't have children... I told you that before we married. I gave you every option to back out. Don't you forget that, he said hotly. Don't you dare forget it. You made me feel sorry for you. Oh, now that's what a man wants to hear, he sneered. For the love of God, Simon, she snapped. You know I didn't marry you because I felt sorry for you. Then why? Because I loved you, she replied. But the acid in her voice made the declaration rather brittle. And because I didn't want to see you die, which you seemed stupidly bent upon doing. He had no ready comment, so he just snorted and glared at her. But don't try to make this about me, she continued hotly. I'm not the one who lied. You said you can't have children, but the truth is you just won't have them. He said nothing, but he knew the answer was in his eyes. She took a step toward him, advancing with barely controlled fury. If you truly couldn't have children... It wouldn't matter where your seed landed, would it? You wouldn't be so frantic every night to make certain it ended up anywhere but inside me. You don't know anything ab about this, Stephanie. His words were low and furious, and only slightly damaged. She crossed her arms. Then tell me. I will never have children, he hissed. Never. Do you understand? No. He felt rage rising within him, roiling in his stomach, pressing against his skin until he thought he would burst. It wasn't rage against her. It wasn't even against himself. It was, as always, directed at the man whose presence, or lack thereof, had always managed to rule his life. My father, Simon said, desperately fighting for control, was not a loving man. Daphne's eyes held his. I know about your father, she said. That caught him by surprise. What do you know? I know that he hurt you, that he rejected you. Something flickered in her dark eyes, not quite pity, but close to it. I know that he thought you were stupid. Simon's heart slammed in his chest. He wasn't certain how he was able to speak, he wasn't certain how he was able to breathe, but he somehow managed to say, Then you know about... Your stammer, she finished for him. He thanked her silently for that. Ironically, stutter and stammer were two words he'd never been able to master. She shrugged. He was an idiot. Simon gaped at her, unable to comprehend how she could dismiss decades of rage with one blithe statement. You don't understand, he said, shaking his head. You couldn't possibly, not with a family like yours. The only thing that mattered to him was blood, blood and the title. And when I didn't turn out to be perfect, Daphne, he told people I was dead. The blood drained from her face. I didn't know it was like that, she whispered. It was worse, he bit off. I sent him letters. Hundreds of letters, begging him to come visit me. He didn't answer one. Simon, D did you know I didn't speak until I was four? No. Well, I didn't. 
and when he visited, he shook me and threatened to beat my voice out of me. That was my father. Daphne tried not to notice that he was beginning to stumble over his words. She tried to ignore the sick feeling in her stomach, the anger that rose within her at the hideous way Simon had been treated. But he's gone now, she said in a shaky voice. He's gone, and you're here. He said he couldn't even bear to look at me. He'd spent years praying for an heir. Not a son, he said, his voice rising dangerously. An heir? And for what? Hastings would go to a half-wit. His precious dukedom would be ruled by an idiot. But he was wrong, Daphne whispered. I don't care if he was wrong, Simon roared. All he cared about was the title. He never gave a single thought to me about how I must feel, trapped with a mouth that didn't work. Daphne stumbled back a step, unsteady in the presence of such anger. This was the fury of decades-old resentment. Simon very suddenly stepped forward and pressed his face very close to hers. But do you know what? he asked in an awful voice. I shall have the last laugh. He thought that there could be nothing worse than Hastings going to a half-wit. Simon, you're not... Are you even listening to me? he thundered. Daphne, frightened now, scurried back, her hand reaching for the doorknob in case she needed to escape. Of course I know I'm not an idiot, he spat out. And in the end, I think he knew it too. And I'm sure that brought him great comfort. Hastings was safe. Never mind that I was not suffering as I once had. Hastings, that's what mattered. Daphne felt sick. She knew what was coming next. Simon suddenly smiled. It was a cruel, hard expression, one she'd never seen on his face before. But Hastings dies with me, he said. All those cousins he was so worried about inheriting. He shrugged and let out a brittle laugh. They all had girls. Isn't that something? Simon shrugged. Maybe that was why my father suddenly decided I wasn't such an idiot. He knew I was his only hope. He knew he'd been wrong, Daphne said with quiet determination. She suddenly remembered the letters she'd been given by the Duke of Middlethorpe, the ones written to him by his father. She'd left them at Bridgerton House in London, which was just as well, since that meant she didn't have to decide what to do with them yet. It doesn't matter, Simon said flippantly. After I die, the title becomes extinct, and I, for one, couldn't be happier. With that, he stalked out of the room, exiting through his dressing room, since Daphne was blocking the door. Daphne sank down onto a chair, still wrapped in the soft linen sheet she'd yanked from the bed. What was she going to do? She felt tremors spread through her body, a strange shaking over which she had no control. And then she realised she was crying. Without a sound, without even a caught breath, she was crying. Dear God, what was she going to do? Chapter 17 
To say that men can be bull-headed would be insulting to the bull. Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 2nd of June, 1813. In the end, Daphne did the only thing she knew how to do. The Bridgertons had always been a loud and boisterous family, not a one of them prone to keeping secrets or holding grudges. So she tried to talk to Simon, to reason with him. The following morning, she had no idea where he had spent the night. Wherever it was, it hadn't been their bed. She found him in his study. It was a dark, overbearingly masculine room, probably decorated by Simon's father. Daphne was frankly surprised that Simon would feel comfortable in such surroundings. He hated reminders of the old duke. But Simon clearly was not uncomfortable. He was sitting behind his desk, his feet insolently propped up on the leather blotter that protected the rich cherry wood of the desktop. In his hand, he was holding a smoothly polished stone, turning it over and over in his hands. There was a bottle of whiskey on the desk next to him. She had a feeling it had been there all night. He hadn't, however, drunk much of it. Daphne was thankful for small favours. The door was ajar, so she didn't knock. But she wasn't quite so brave as to stride boldly in. Simon, she asked, standing back near the door. He looked up at her and quirked a brow. Are you busy? He set down the stone. Obviously not. She motioned to it. Is that from your travels? The Caribbean. A memento of my time on the beach. Daphne noticed that he was speaking with perfect elocution. There was no hint of the stammer that had become apparent the night before. He was calm now, almost annoyingly so. Is the beach very different there than it is here? she asked. He raised an arrogant brow. It's warmer. Oh, well, I had assumed as much. He looked at her with piercing, unwavering eyes. Daphne, I know you didn't seek me out to discuss the tropics. He was right, of course, but this wasn't going to be an easy conversation, and Daphne didn't think she was so much of a coward for wanting to put it off by a few moments. She took a deep breath. We need to discuss what happened last night. I'm sure you think we do. She fought the urge to lean forward and smack the bland expression from his face. I don't think we do. I know we do. He was silent for a moment before saying, I'm sorry if you feel that I have betrayed. It's not that exactly. But you must remember that I tried to avoid marrying you. That's certainly a nice way of putting it, she muttered. He spoke as if delivering a lecture. You know that I had intended never to marry. That's not the point, Simon. It's exactly the point. He dropped his feet to the floor, and his chair, which had been balancing on its two back legs, hit the ground with a loud thunk. Why do you think I avoided marriage with such determination? It was because I didn't want to take a wife, and then hurt her by denying her children. You were never thinking of your potential wife, she shot back. You were thinking of yourself. Perhaps, he allowed. But when that potential wife became you, Daphne... Everything changed. Obviously not, she said bitterly. He shrugged. You know I hold you in the highest esteem. I never wanted to hurt you. You're hurting me right now, she whispered. A flicker of remorse crossed his eyes, but it was quickly replaced with steely determination. If you recall, 
I refused to offer for you, even when your brother demanded it. Even, he added pointedly, when it meant my own death. Daphne didn't contradict him. They both knew he would have died on that dueling field. No matter what she thought of him now, how much she despised the hatred that was eating him up, Simon had too much honour ever to have shot at Antony. And Antony placed too much value on his sister's honour to have aimed anywhere but at Simon's heart. I did that, Simon said, because I knew I could never be a good husband to you. I knew you wanted children. You'd told me so on a number of occasions, and I certainly don't blame you. You come from a large and loving family. You could have a family like that too, he continued as if he hadn't heard her. Then, when you interrupted the duel and begged me to marry you, I warned you. I told you I wouldn't have children. You told me you couldn't have children, she interrupted, her eyes flashing with anger. There's a very big difference. Not, Simon said coldly, to me. I can't have children. My soul won't allow it. I see. Something shriveled inside Daphne at that moment and she was very much afraid it was her heart. She didn't know how she was meant to argue with such a statement. Simon's hatred of his father was clearly far stronger than any love he might learn to feel for her. Very well, she said in a clipped voice. This is obviously not a subject upon which you are open to discussion. He gave her one curt nod. She gave him one in return. Good day, then. And she left. Simon kept to himself for most of the day. He didn't particularly want to see Daphne. That did nothing but make him feel guilty. Not, he assured himself, that he had anything to feel guilty about. He had told her before their marriage that he could not have children. He had given her every opportunity to back out, and she had chosen to marry him anyway. He had not forced her into anything. It was not his fault if she had misinterpreted his words and thought that he was physically unable to sire brats. Still, even though he was plagued by this nagging sense of guilt every time he thought of her, which pretty much meant all day, and even though his gut twisted every time he saw her stricken face in his mind, which pretty much meant he spent the day with an upset stomach, he felt as if a great weight had been lifted from his shoulders now that everything was out in the open. Secrets could be deadly, and now there were no more between them. Surely that had to be a good thing. By the time night fell, he had almost convinced himself that he had done nothing wrong. Almost, but not quite. He had entered this marriage convinced that he would break Daphne's heart, and that had never sat well with him. He liked Daphne. Hell, he probably liked her better than any human being he'd ever known— and that was why he'd been so reluctant to marry her. He hadn't wanted to shatter her dreams. He hadn't wanted to deprive her of the family she so desperately wanted. He'd been quite prepared to step aside and watch her marry someone else, someone who would give her a whole houseful of children. Simon suddenly shuddered. The image of Daphne with another man was not nearly as tolerable as it had been just a month earlier. Of course not, he thought, trying to use the rational side of his brain. She was his wife now. She was his. Everything was different now. He had known how desperately she had wanted children, and he had married her, knowing full well that he would not give her any. 
But, he told himself, you warned her. She'd known exactly what she was getting into. Simon, who had been sitting in his study, tossing that stupid rock back and forth between his hands since supper, suddenly straightened. He had not deceived her. Not truly. He had told her that they wouldn't have children, and she had agreed to marry him anyway. He could see where she would feel a bit upset upon learning his reasons, but she could not say that she had entered this marriage with any foolish hopes or expectations. He stood. It was time they had another talk, this one at his behest. Daphne hadn't attended dinner, leaving him to dine alone, the silence of the night broken only by the metallic clink of his fork against his plate. He hadn't seen his wife since that morning. It was high time he did. She was his wife, he reminded himself. He ought to be able to see her whenever he damn well pleased. He marched down the hall and swung open the door to the Duke's bedroom, fully prepared to lecture her about something. The topic, he was sure, would come to him when necessary. But she wasn't there. Simon blinked, unable to believe his eyes. Where the hell was she? It was nearly midnight. She should be in bed. The dressing room. She had to be in the dressing room. The silly chit insisted upon donning her night robe every night, even though Simon wiggled her out of it mere minutes later. Daphne, he barked, crossing to the dressing room door. Daphne! No answer, and no light shining in the crack between the door and the floor. Surely she wouldn't dress in the dark. He pulled the door open. She most definitely wasn't present. Simon yanked on the bell pull. Hard. Then he strode out into the hall to await whichever servant was unfortunate enough to have answered his summons. It was one of the upstairs maids, a little blonde thing whose name he could not recall. She took one look at his face and blanched. Where is my wife? he barked. Your wife, your grace? Yes, he said impatiently. My wife. She stared at him blankly. I assume you know about whom I am speaking. She's about your height, long, dark hair. Simon would have said more, but the maid's terrified expression made him rather ashamed of his sarcasm. He let out a long, tense breath. Do you know where she is? He asked, his tone softer, although not what anyone would describe as gentle. Isn't she in bed, Your Grace? Simon jerked his head toward his empty room. Obviously not. But that's not where she sleeps, Your Grace. His eyebrows snapped together. I beg your pardon? Doesn't she? The maid's eyes widened in horror, then shot frantically around the hall. Simon had no doubt that she was looking for an escape route. Either that, or someone who might possibly save her from his thunderous temper. Spit it out, he barked. The maid's voice was very small. Doesn't she inhabit the Duchess's bedchamber? The Duchess's? He pushed down an unfamiliar bolt of rage. Since when? Since today, I suppose, Your Grace. We'd all assumed that you would occupy separate rooms at the end of your honeymoon. You did, did you? He growled. The maid started to tremble. Your parents did, Your Grace, and... We are not my parents! He roared. The maid jumped back a step. And... Simon added in a deadly voice, I am not my father. Of, of course, Your Grace. 
Would you mind telling me which room my wife has chosen to designate as the Duchess's bedchamber? The maid pointed one shaking finger at a door down the hall. Thank you. He took four steps away, then whirled around. You are dismissed. The servants would have plenty to gossip about on the morrow, what with Daphne moving out of their bedroom. He didn't need to give them any more by allowing this maid to witness what was sure to be a colossal argument. Simon waited until she had scurried down the stairs. Then he moved on angry feet down the hall to Daphne's new bedroom. He stopped outside her door, thought about what he'd say, realised he had no idea, and then went ahead and knocked. No response. He pounded. No response. He raised his fist to pound again when it occurred to him that maybe she hadn't even locked the door. Wouldn't he feel like a fool if... He twisted the knob. She had locked it. Simon swore swiftly and fluently under his breath. Funny how he'd never once in his life stuttered on a curse. Daphne! Daphne! His voice was somewhere between a call and a yell. Daphne! Finally, he heard footsteps moving in her room. Yes, came her voice. Let me in! A beat of silence, and then... No. Simon stared at the sturdy wooden door in shock. It had never occurred to him that she would disobey a direct order. She was his wife, damn it. Hadn't she promised to obey him? Daphne, he said angrily, open this door this instant. She must have been very close to the door, because he actually heard her sigh before saying, Simon, the only reason to let you into this room would be if I were planning to let you into my bed, which I'm not, so I would appreciate it. Indeed, I believe the entire household would appreciate it if you would take yourself off and go to sleep. Simon's mouth actually fell open. He began to mentally weigh the door and compute how many foot-pounds per second would be required to bash the bloody thing in. Daphne, he said, his voice so calm it frightened even him. If you do not open the door this instant, I shall break it down. You wouldn't, he said nothing just crossed his arms and glared, confident that she would know exactly what sort of expression he wore on his face. Wouldn't you? Again, he decided that silence was the most effective answer. I wish you wouldn't, she added in a vaguely pleading voice. He stared at the door in disbelief. You'll hurt yourself, she added. Then open the damned door, he ground out. Silence followed by a key slowly turning in the lock. Simon had just enough presence of mind not to throw the door violently open. Daphne was almost certainly directly on the other side. He shoved his way in and found her about five paces away from him, her arms crossed, her legs in a wide, militant stance. Don't you ever lock a door against me again, he spat out. She shrugged. She actually shrugged. I desired privacy. Simon advanced several steps. I want your things moved back into our bedroom by morning, and you will be moving back tonight. No. What the hell do you mean, no? What the hell do you think I mean, she countered. Simon wasn't sure what shocked and angered him more, that she was defying him, 
swore that she was cursing aloud. No, she continued in a louder voice, means no. You are my wife, he roared. You will sleep with me in my bed. No. Daphne, I'm warning you. Her eyes narrowed to slits. You have chosen to withhold something from me. Well, I have chosen to withhold something from you. Me. He was speechless, utterly speechless. She, however, was not. She marched to the door and motioned rather rudely for him to go through it. Get out of my room. Simon started to shake with rage. I own this room, he growled. I own you. You own nothing but your father's title, she shot back. You don't even own yourself. A low roar filled his ears, the roar of red-hot fury. Simon staggered back a step, fearing that if he did not, he might actually do something to hurt her. What the hell do you mean? he demanded. She shrugged again, damn her. You figure it out, she said. All of Simon's good intentions fled the room, and he charged forward, grabbing her by her upper arms. He knew his grip was too tight, but he was helpless against the searing rage that flooded his veins. Explain yourself, he said, between his teeth because he couldn't unclench his jaw. Now! Her eyes met his with such a level, knowing gaze that he was nearly undone. You are not your own man, she said simply. Your father is still ruling you from the grave. Simon shook with untold fury, with unspoken words. Your actions, your choices, she continued, her eyes growing very sad. They have nothing to do with you, with what you want or what you need. Everything you do, Simon, every move you make, every word you speak, it's all just to thwart him. Her voice broke as she finished with, And he's not even alive. Simon moved forward with a strange predatory grace. Not every move, he said in a low voice. Not every word. Daphne backed up, unnerved by the feral expression in his eyes. Simon, she asked hesitantly, suddenly devoid of the courage and bravado that had enabled her to stand up to him a man twice her size, and possibly thrice her strength. The tip of his index finger trailed down her upper arm. She was wearing a silk robe, but the heat and power of him burned through the fabric. He came closer, and one of his hands stole around her until it cupped her buttock and squeezed. When I touch you like this, he whispered, his voice perilously close to her ear, it has nothing to do with him. Daphne shuddered, hating herself for wanting him, hating him for making her want him. When my lips touch your ear, he murmured, catching her lobe between his teeth, it has nothing to do with him. She tried to push him away, but when her hands found his shoulders, all they could do was clutch. He started to push her, slowly, inexorably, toward the bed. And when I take you to bed, he added, his words hot against the skin of her neck, and we are skin to skin. It is just the two of... No! she cried out, shoving against him with all her might. He stumbled back, caught by surprise. When you take me to bed, she choked out, 
It is never just the two of us. Your father is always there. His fingers, which had crept up under the wide sleeve of her dressing gown, dug into her flesh. He said nothing, but he didn't have to. The icy anger in his pale blue eyes said everything. Can you look me in the eye, she whispered, and tell me that when you pull from my body and give yourself instead to the bed, you're thinking about me? His face was drawn and tight, and his eyes were focused on her mouth. She shook her head and shook herself from his grasp, which had gone slack. I didn't think so, she said in a small voice. She moved away from him, but also away from the bed. She had no doubt that he could seduce her if he so chose. He could kiss her and caress her and bring her to dizzying heights of ecstasy, and she would hate him in the morning. She would hate herself even more. The room was deadly silent as they stood across from each other. Simon was standing with his arms at his sides, his face a heartbreaking mixture of shock and hurt and fury, but mostly, Daphne thought, her heart cracking a little as she met his eyes. He looked confused. I think, she said softly, that you had better leave. He looked up, his eyes haunted. You're my wife. She said nothing. Legally, I own you. Daphne just stared at him as she said, That's true. He closed the space between them in a heartbeat, his hands finding her shoulders. I can make you want me, he whispered. I know. His voice dropped even lower, hoarse and urgent. And even if I couldn't, you're mine. You belong to me. I could force you to let me stay. Daphne felt about a hundred years old as she said, you would never do that. And he knew she was right. So all he did was wrench himself away from her and storm out of the room. Chapter 18 Is this author the only one who has noticed? Or have the gentle men of the ton been imbibing more than usual these days? Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 4th of June, 1813. Simon went out and got drunk. It wasn't something he did often. It wasn't even something he particularly enjoyed, but he did it anyway. There were plenty of pubs down near the water, only a few miles from Cliveden, and there were plenty of sailors there too, looking for fights. Two of them found Simon. He thrashed them both. There was an anger in him, a fury that had simmered deep in his soul for years. It had finally found its way to the surface, and it had taken very little provocation to set him to fighting. He was drunk enough by then, so that when he punched, he saw not the sailors with their sun-reddened skin, but his father. Every fist was slammed into that constant sneer of rejection, and it felt good. He'd never considered himself a particularly violent man, but damn, it felt good. By the time Simon was through with the two sailors, no one else dared approach him. The local folk recognised strength, but more importantly, they recognised rage, and they all knew that of the two, the latter was the more deadly. Simon remained in the pub until the first lights of dawn streaked the sky. He drank steadily from the bottle he'd paid for, and then, when it was time to go, 
rose on unsteady legs, tucked the bottle into his pocket, and made his way back home. He drank as he rode, the bad whisky burning straight to his gut. And as he got drunker and drunker, only one thought managed to burst through his haze. He wanted Daphne back. She was his wife, damn her. He'd gotten used to having her around. She couldn't just up and move out of their bedroom. He'd get her back. He'd woo her, and he'd win her, and... Simon let out a loud, unattractive belch. Well, it was going to have to be enough to woo her and win her. He was far too intoxicated to think of anything else. By the time he reached Castle Cliveden, he had worked himself into a fine state of drunken self-righteousness. And by the time he stumbled up to Daphne's door, he was making enough noise to raise the dead. Daphne! he yelled, trying to hide the slight note of desperation in his voice. He didn't need to sound pathetic. He frowned thoughtfully. On the other hand, maybe if he sounded desperate, she'd be more likely to open the door. He sniffled loudly a few times, then yelled again, Daphne! When she didn't respond in under two seconds, he leaned against the heavy door, mostly because his sense of balance was swimming in whiskey. Oh, Daphne, he sighed, his forehead coming to rest against the wood. If you... The door opened, and Simon went tumbling to the ground. Did you, did you have to open it so, so fast? he mumbled. Daphne, who was still yanking on her dressing gown, looked at the human heap on the floor and just barely recognised it as her husband. Good God, Simon, she said. What did you... She leaned down to help him, then lurched back when he opened his mouth and breathed on her. You're drunk, she accused. He nodded solemnly. Afraid so. Where have you been? she demanded. He blinked and looked at her as if he'd never heard such a stupid question. Out getting foxed, he replied, then burped. Simon, you should be in bed. He nodded again, this time with considerably more vigour and enthusiasm. Yes, yes I should. He tried to rise to his feet, but only made it as far as his knees before he tripped and fell back down onto the carpet. Hmm, he said, peering down at the lower half of his body. Hmm, that's strange. He lifted his face back to Daphne's and looked at her in utter confusion. I could have sworn those were my legs. Daphne rolled her eyes. Simon tried out his legs again, with the same results. My limbs don't seem to be working properly, he commented. Your brain isn't working properly, Daphne returned. What am I to do with you? He looked her way and grinned. Love me? You said you loved me, you know. He frowned. I don't think you can take that back. Daphne let out a long sigh. She should be furious with him. Blast it all, she was furious with him. But it was difficult to maintain appropriate levels of anger when he looked so pathetic. Besides, with three brothers, she'd had some experience with drunken nitwits. He was going to have to sleep it off. That's all there was to it. He'd wake up with a blistering headache, which would probably serve him right. 
and then he would insist upon drinking some noxious concoction that he was absolutely positive would eliminate his hangover completely. Simon, she asked patiently, how drunk are you? He gave her a loopy grin. Very. I thought as much, she muttered under her breath. She bent down and shoved her hands under his arms. Up with you now. We've got to get you to bed. But he didn't move. Just sat there on his fanny and looked up at her with an extremely foolish expression. Why do I need to get up? He slurred. Can't you sit with me? He threw his arms around her in a sloppy hug. Come and sit with me, Daphne. Simon. He patted the carpet next to him. It's nice down here. Simon, no. I cannot sit with you, she ground out, struggling out of his heavy embrace. You have to go to bed. She tried to move him again, with the same dismal outcome. Heavens above, she said under her breath. Why did you have to go out and get so drunk? He wasn't supposed to hear her words, but he must have done, because he cocked his head and said, I wanted you back. Her lips parted in shock. They both knew what he had to do to win her back, but Daphne thought he was far too intoxicated for her to conduct any kind of conversation on the topic. So she just tugged at his arm and said, We'll talk about it tomorrow, Simon. He blinked several times in rapid succession. Think it already is tomorrow. He craned his neck this way and that, peering toward the windows. The curtains were drawn, but the light of the new day was already filtering through. Is day all right? he mumbled. See? He waved his arm toward the window. Tomorrow already. Then we'll talk about it in the evening, she said, a touch desperately. She already felt as if her heart had been pushed through a windmill. She didn't think she could bear any more just then. Please, Simon, let's just leave it be for now. The thing is, Daffrey, he shook his head in much the same manner a dog shakes off water. Daphne, he said carefully. Daphne, Daphne. Daphne couldn't quite stop a smile at that. What, Simon? The problem, you see, he scratched his head. You just don't understand. What don't I understand? She said softly. Why I can't do it, he said. He raised his face until it was level with hers, and she nearly flinched at the haunted misery in his eyes. I never wanted to hurt you, Daff, he said hoarsely. You'd know that, don't you? She nodded. I know that, Simon. Good, because the thing is, he drew a long breath that seemed to shake his entire body. I can't do what you want. She said nothing. All my life, Simon said sadly. All my life he won. Did you know that? He always won. This time I get to win. In a long, awkward movement, he swung his arm in a horizontal arc and jabbed his thumb against his chest. Me! I want to win for once! Oh, Simon, she whispered, you won long ago. The moment you exceeded his expectations, you won. Every time you beat the odds, made a friend, 
or travelled to a new land, you won. You did all the things he never wanted for you. Her breath caught, and she gave his shoulders a squeeze. You beat him. You won. Why can't you see that? He shook his head. I don't want to become what he wanted, he said. Even though... <laughs> he hiccuped. Even though he never expected it of me, what he wanted was a perfect son. Someone who'd be the perfect duke, who'd then m marry the perfect duchess and have perfect children. Daphne's lower lip caught between her teeth. He was stuttering again. He must be truly upset. She felt her heart breaking for him, for the little boy who'd wanted nothing other than his father's approval. Simon cocked his head to the side and regarded her with a surprisingly steady gaze. He would have approved of you. Oh, Daphne said, not sure how to interpret that. But, he shrugged and gave her a secret, mischievous smile, I married you anyway. He looked so earnest, so boyishly serious, that it was a hard battle not to throw her arms around him and attempt to comfort him. But no matter how deep his pain, or how wounded his soul, he was going about this all wrong. The best revenge against his father would simply be to live a full and happy life, to achieve all those heights and glories his father had been so determined to deny him. Daphne swallowed a heavy sob of frustration. She didn't see how he could possibly lead a happy life if all of his choices were based on thwarting the wishes of a dead man. But she didn't want to get into all of that just then. She was tired, and he was drunk, and this just wasn't the right time. Let's get you to bed, she finally said. He stared at her for a long moment, his eyes filling with an ages-old need for comfort. Don't leave me, he whispered. Simon, she choked out. Please don't. He left. Everyone left. Then I left. He squeezed her hand. You stay. She nodded shakily and rose to her feet. You can sleep it off in my bed, she said. I'm sure you'll feel better in the morning. But you'll stay with me. It was a mistake. She knew it was a mistake, but still she said, I'll stay with you. Good, he wobbled himself upright, because I couldn't. I really... He sighed and turned anguished eyes to her. I need you. She led him to her bed, nearly falling over with him when he tumbled onto the mattress. Hold still, she ordered, kneeling to pull off his boots. She'd done this for her brothers before, so she knew to grab the heel, not the toe, but they were a snug fit, and she went sprawling on the ground when his foot finally slipped out. Good gracious, she muttered, getting up to repeat the aggravating procedure. And they say women are slaves to fashion. Simon made a noise that sounded suspiciously like a snore. Are you asleep? Daphne asked incredulously. She yanked at the other boot which came off with a bit more ease, then lifted his legs, which felt like dead weights, up onto the bed. He looked young and peaceful, with his dark lashes resting against his cheeks. Daphne reached out 
and brushed his hair off his forehead. Sleep well, my sweet, she whispered. But when she started to move, one of his arms shot out and wrapped around her. You said you would stay, he said accusingly. I thought you were asleep. Doesn't give you the right to break your promise. He tugged at her arm, and Daphne finally gave up resisting and settled down next to him. He was warm, and he was hers, and even if she had grave fears for their future, at that moment she couldn't resist his gentle embrace. Daphne awoke an hour or so later, surprised that she'd fallen asleep at all. Simon still lay next to her, snoring softly. They were both dressed, he in his whisky-scented clothes and she in her nightrobe. Gently she touched his cheek. What am I to do with you? she whispered. I love you, you know. I love you, but I hate what you're doing to yourself. She drew a shaky breath. And to me, I hate what you're doing to me. He shifted sleepily, and for one horrified moment she was afraid that he'd woken up. Simon, she whispered, then let out a relieved exhale when he didn't answer. She knew she shouldn't have spoken words aloud that she wasn't quite ready for him to hear, but he'd looked so innocent against the snowy white pillows. It was far too easy to spill her innermost thoughts when he looked like that. Oh, Simon, she sighed, closing her eyes against the tears that were pooling in her eyes. She should get up. She should absolutely, positively get up now and leave him to his rest. She understood why he was so dead set against bringing a child into this world, but she hadn't forgiven him, and she certainly didn't agree with him. If he woke up with her still in his arms, he might think she was willing to settle for his version of a family. Slowly, reluctantly, she tried to pull away, but his arms tightened around her, and his sleepy voice mumbled, No. Simon, I... He pulled her closer, and Daphne realised that he was thoroughly aroused. Simon, she whispered, her eyes flying open. Are you even awake? His response was another sleepy mumble, and he made no attempts at seduction, just snuggled her closer. Daphne blinked in surprise. She hadn't realised that a man could want a woman in his sleep. She pulled her head back so she could see his face, then reached out and touched the line of his jaw. He let out a little groan. The sound was hoarse and deep, and it made her reckless. With slow, tantalising fingers, she undid the buttons of his shirt, pausing just once to trace the outline of his navel. He shifted restlessly, and Daphne felt the strangest, most intoxicating surge of power. He was in her control, she realised. He was asleep, and probably still more than a little bit drunk, and she could do whatever she wanted with him. She could have whatever she wanted. A quick glance at his face told her that he was still sleeping, and she quickly undid his trousers. Underneath, he was hard and needy, and she wrapped her hand around him, feeling his blood leap beneath her fingers. Daphne, he gasped. His eyes fluttered open, and he let out a ragged groan. Oh, God, that feels so damned good. Shh, she crooned, slipping out of her silken robe. 
Let me do everything. He lay on his back, his hands fisted at his sides as she stroked him. He'd taught her much during their two short weeks of marriage, and soon he was squirming with desire, his breath coming in short pants. And God help her, but she wanted him too. She felt so powerful looming over him. She was in control, and that was the most stunning aphrodisiac she could imagine. She felt a fluttering in her stomach, then a strange sort of quickening, and she knew that she needed him. She wanted him inside her, filling her, giving her everything a man was meant to give to a woman. Oh, Daphne, he moaned, his head tossing from side to side. I need you. I need you now. She moved atop him, pressing her hands against his shoulders as she straddled him. Using her hand, she guided him to her entrance, already wet with need. Simon arched beneath her, and she slowly slid down his shaft until he was almost fully within her. More, he gasped. Now! Daphne's head fell back as she moved down that last inch. Her hands clutched at his shoulders as she gasped for breath. Then he was completely within her, and she thought she would die from the pleasure. Never had she felt so full, nor so completely a woman. She keened as she moved above him, her body arching and writhing with delight. Her hands splayed flat against her stomach as she twisted and turned, then slid upward toward her breasts. Simon let out a guttural moan as he watched her, his eyes glazing over, as his breath came hot and heavy over his parted lips. Oh, my God, he said in a hoarse, raspy voice. What are you doing to me? What have you? Then she touched one of her nipples, and his entire body bucked upwards. Where did you learn that? She looked down and gave him a bewildered smile. I don't know. More, he groaned. I want to watch you. Daphne wasn't entirely certain what to do, so she just let instinct take over. She ground her hips against his in a circular motion as she arched her back, causing her breasts to jut out proudly. She cupped both in her hands, squeezing them softly, rolling the nipples between her fingers, never once taking her eyes off Simon's face. His hips started to buck in a frantic, jerky motion, and he grasped desperately at the sheets with his large hands, and Daphne realised that he was almost there. He was always so careful to please her, to make certain that she reached her climax before he allowed himself the same privilege. But this time, he was going to explode first. She was close, but not as close as he was. Oh, Christ! He suddenly burst out, his voice harsh and primitive with need. I'm going to... I can't. His eyes pinned upon her with a strange, pleading sort of look, and he made a feeble attempt to pull away. Daphne bore down on him with all her might. He exploded within her, the force of his climax lifting his hips off the bed, pushing her up along with him. She planted her hands underneath him, using all of her strength to hold him against her. She would not lose him this time. She would not lose this chance. Simon's eyes flew open as he came, as he realised too late what he had done. But his body was too far gone. There was no stopping the power of his climax. If he'd been on top, he might have found the strength to pull away. 
but lying there under her, watching her tease her own body into a mass of desire, he was helpless against the raging force of his own need. As his teeth clenched and his body bucked, he felt her small hands slip underneath him, pressing him more tightly against the cradle of her womb. He saw the expression of pure ecstasy on her face, and then he suddenly realised. She had done this on purpose. She had planned this. Daphne had aroused him in his sleep, taken advantage of him while he was still slightly intoxicated, and held him to her while he poured his seed into her. His eyes widened and fixed on hers. How could you? he whispered. She said nothing, but he saw her face change, and he knew she'd heard him. Simon pushed her from his body, just as he felt her begin to tighten around him, savagely denying her the ecstasy he'd just had for himself. How could you? he repeated. You knew. You knew th that... that... Uh, uh, uh. But she had just curled up in a little ball, her knees tucked against her chest, obviously determined not to lose a single drop of him. Simon swore viciously as he yanked himself to his feet. He opened his mouth to pour invective over her, to castigate her for betraying him, for taking advantage of him. But his throat tightened, and his tongue swelled, and he couldn't even begin a word, much less finish one. You... He finally managed. Daphne stared at him in horror. Simon, she whispered. He didn't want this... He didn't want her looking at him like he was some sort of freak. Oh, God. Oh, God, he felt seven years old again. He couldn't speak. He couldn't make his mouth work. He was lost. Daphne's face filled with concern. Unwanted, pitying concern. Are you all right? she whispered. Can you breathe? D d d d d it was a far cry from don't pity me, but it was all he could do. He could feel his father's mocking presence, squeezing at his throat, choking his tongue. Simon, Daphne said, hurrying to his side. Her voice grew panicked. Simon, say something. She reached out to touch his arm, but he threw her off. Don't touch me, he exploded. She shrank back. I guess there are still some things you can say she said in a small, sad voice. Simon hated himself, hated the voice that had forsaken him, and hated his wife, because she had the power to reduce his control to rubble. This complete loss of speech, this choking, strangling feeling, he had worked his entire life to escape it, and now she had brought it all back with a vengeance. He couldn't let her do this. He couldn't let her make him like he'd once been. He tried to say her name, couldn't get anything out. He had to leave. He couldn't look at her. He couldn't be with her. He didn't even want to be with himself. But that, unfortunately, was beyond his meagre control. D don't come n near me, he gasped, jabbing his finger at her as he yanked on his trousers. Y y you did this. Did what? Daphne cried, pulling a sheet around her. Simon, stop this. What did I do that was so wrong? You wanted me. You know you wanted me. Th this, 
he burst out, pointing at his throat. Then he pointed toward her abdomen. That! Then, unable to bear the sight of her any longer, he stormed from the room. If only he could escape himself with the same ease. Ten hours later, Daphne found the following note. Pressing business at another of my estates requires my attention. I trust you will notify me if your attempts at conception were successful. My steward will give you my direction, should you need it. Simon. The single sheet of paper slipped from Daphne's fingers and floated slowly to the floor. A harsh sob escaped her throat, and she pressed her fingers to her mouth, as if that might possibly stem the tide of emotion that was churning within her. He'd left her. He'd actually left her. She'd known he was angry, known he might not even forgive her, but she hadn't thought he would actually leave. She'd thought, oh, even when he'd stormed out the door, she'd thought that they might be able to resolve their differences. But now she wasn't so sure. Maybe she'd been too idealistic. She'd egotistically thought that she could heal him, make his heart whole. Now she realised that she'd imbued herself with far more power than she actually possessed. She'd thought her love was so good, so shining, so pure, that Simon would immediately abandon the years of resentment and pain that had fuelled his very existence. How self-important she'd been. How stupid she felt now. Some things were beyond her reach. In her sheltered life, she'd never realised that until now. She hadn't expected the world to be handed to her upon a golden platter, but she'd always assumed that if she worked hard enough for something, treated everyone the way she would like to be treated, then she would be rewarded. But not this time. Simon was beyond her reach. The house seemed preternaturally quiet as Daphne made her way down to the yellow room. She wondered if all the servants had learned of her husband's departure and were now studiously avoiding her. They had to have heard bits and pieces of the argument the night before. Daphne sighed. Grief was even more difficult when one had a small army of onlookers. Or invisible onlookers, as the case may be, she thought, as she gave the bell-pull a tug. She couldn't see them, but she knew they were there, whispering behind her back and pitying her. Funny how she'd never given much thought to servants' gossip before. But now... She plopped down on the sofa with a pained little moan. Now she felt so wretchedly alone. What else was she supposed to think about? Your Grace. Daphne looked up to see a young maid standing hesitantly in the doorway. She bobbed a little curtsy and gave Daphne an expectant look. Tea, please, Daphne said quietly. No biscuits, just tea. The young girl nodded and ran off. As she waited for the maid to return, Daphne touched her abdomen, gazing down at herself with gentle reverence. Closing her eyes, she sent up a prayer. Please, God, please, she begged, let there be a child. She might not get another chance. She wasn't ashamed of her actions. She supposed she should be, but she wasn't. She hadn't planned it. She hadn't looked at him while he was sleeping and thought... He's probably still drunk. I can make love to him and capture his seed and he'll never know. It hadn't happened that way. Daphne wasn't quite sure how it had happened. 
but one moment she was above him, and the next she'd realised that he wasn't going to withdraw in time, and she'd made certain he couldn't. Or maybe... She closed her eyes, tight. Maybe it had happened the other way. Maybe she had taken advantage of more than the moment. Maybe she had taken advantage of him. She just didn't know. It had all melted together. Simon's stutter. Her desperate wish for a baby. His hatred of his father. It had all swirled and mixed in her mind, and she couldn't tell where one ended and the other began. And she felt so alone. She heard a sound at the door and turned, expecting the timid young maid back with tea. But in her stead was Mrs. Colson. Her face was drawn and her eyes were concerned. Daphne smiled wanly at the housekeeper. I was expecting the maid, she murmured. I had things to attend to in the next room, so I thought I'd bring the tea myself, Mrs. Colson replied. Daphne knew she was lying, but she nodded anyway. The maid said no biscuits, Mrs. Colson added, but I knew you'd skipped breakfast, so I put some on the tray anyway. That's very thoughtful of you. Daphne didn't recognise the timbre of her own voice. It sounded rather flat to her, almost as if it belonged to someone else. It was no trouble, I assure you. The housekeeper looked as if she wanted to say more, but eventually she just straightened and asked, Will that be all? Daphne nodded. Mrs. Coulson made her way to the door, and for one brief moment Daphne almost called out to her. She almost said her name and asked her to sit with her and share her tea, and she would have spilled her secrets and her shame, and then she would have spilled her tears, and not because she was particularly close to the housekeeper, just because she had no one else. But she didn't call out, and Mrs. Coulson left the room. Daphne picked up a biscuit and bit into it. Maybe, she thought, it was time to go home. Chapter 19 The new Duchess of Hastings was spotted in Mayfair today, Philippa Featherington saw the former Miss Daphne Bridgerton taking a bit of air as she walked briskly around the block. Miss Featherington called out to her, but the Duchess pretended not to hear. And we know the Duchess must have been pretending. For, after all, one would have to be deaf to let one of Miss Featherington's shouts go unnoticed. Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 9th of June, 1813 Heartache, Daphne eventually learned, never really went away. It just dulled. The sharp, stabbing pain that one felt with each breath eventually gave way to a blunter, lower ache, the kind that one could almost, but never quite, ignore. She left Castle Cliveden the day after Simon's departure, heading to London with every intention of returning to Bridgerton House. But going back to her family's house somehow seemed like an admission of failure, and so, at the last minute, she instructed the driver to take her to Hastings' house instead. She would be near her family, if she felt the need for their support and companionship, but she was a married woman now. She should reside in her own home. And so she introduced herself to her new staff, who accepted her without question, but not without a considerable amount of curiosity, 
and set about her new life as an abandoned wife. Her mother was the first to come calling. Daphne hadn't bothered to notify anyone else of her return to London, so this was not terribly surprising. Where is he? Violet demanded without preamble. My husband, I presume? No, your great-uncle Edmund, Violet practically snapped. Of course I mean your husband. Daphne didn't quite meet her mother's eyes as she said, I believe that he is tending to affairs at one of his country estates. You believe? Well, I know, Daphne amended. And do you know why you are not with him? Daphne considered lying. She considered brazening it out and telling her mother some nonsense about an emergency involving tenants and maybe some livestock or disease or anything. But in the end, her lip quivered and her eyes started to prick with tears and her voice was terribly small as she said, Because he did not choose to take me with him. Violet took her hands. Oh, Daph, she sighed. What happened? Daphne sank onto a sofa, pulling her mother along with her. More than I could ever explain. Do you want to try? Daphne shook her head. She'd never, not even once in her life, kept a secret from her mother. There had never been anything she didn't feel she could discuss with her. But there had never been this. She patted her mother's hand. I'll be all right. Violet looked unconvinced. Are you certain? No. Daphne stared at the floor for a moment. But I have to believe it anyway. Violet left, and Daphne placed her hand on her abdomen and prayed. Colin was the next to visit. About a week later, Daphne returned from a quick walk in the park to find him standing in her drawing room arms crossed, expression furious. Ah, Daphne said, pulling off her gloves. I see you've learned of my return. What the hell is going on? he demanded. Colin, Daphne reflected wryly, had clearly not inherited their mother's talent for subtlety in speech. Speak, he barked. She closed her eyes for a moment, just a moment, to try to relieve the headache that had been plaguing her for days. She didn't want to tell her woes to Colin. She didn't even want to tell him as much as she told her mother, although she supposed he already knew. News always travelled fast at Bridgerton House. She wasn't really sure where she got the energy, but there was a certain fortifying benefit to putting up a good front. So she squared her shoulders, raised a brow and said, And by that you mean... I mean, Colin growled, where is your husband? He is otherwise occupied, Daphne replied. It sounded so much better than he left me. Daphne! Colin's voice held no end of warning. Are you here alone? she asked, ignoring his tone. Antony and Benedict are in the country for the month, if that's what you mean, Colin said. Daphne very nearly sighed with relief. The last thing she needed just then was to face her eldest brother. She'd already prevented him from killing Simon once. She wasn't sure if she'd be able to manage the feat a second time. Before she could say anything, however, Colin added, Daphne, I am ordering you right now to tell me where the bastard is hiding. Daphne felt her spine stiffening. She might have the right to call her errant husband nasty names, 
but her brother certainly didn't. I assume, she said icily, that by that bastard you refer to my husband. You're damned right, I... I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Colin looked at her as if she'd suddenly sprouted horns. I beg your pardon. I don't care to discuss my marriage with you, so if you cannot refrain from offering your unsolicited opinions, you're going to have to leave. You can't ask me to leave, he said in disbelief. She crossed her arms. This is my house. Colin stared at her, then looked around the room. The drawing room of the Duchess of Hastings then looked back at Daphne, as if just realising that his little sister, whom he'd always viewed as a rather jolly extension of himself, had become her own woman. He reached out and took her hand. Duff, he said quietly, I'll let you handle this as you see fit. Thank you. For now, he warned, don't think I'll let this situation continue indefinitely. But it wouldn't. Daphne thought a half hour later, as Colin left the house. It couldn't continue indefinitely. Within a fortnight, she would know. Every morning, Daphne woke to find she was holding her breath. Even before her courses were due to arrive, she bit her lip, said a little prayer, and gingerly peeled back the covers of her bed and looked for blood. And every morning she saw nothing but snowy white linen. A week after her courses were due, she allowed herself the first glimmerings of hope. Her courses had never been perfectly punctual. They could, she reasoned, still arrive at any time. But still, she had never been quite this late. After another week, though, she found herself smiling each morning, holding on to her secret as she would a treasure. She wasn't ready to share this with anyone yet. Not her mother, not her brother's, and certainly not Simon. She didn't feel terribly guilty about withholding the news from him. After all, he had withheld his seed from her. But more importantly, she feared that his reaction would be explosively negative, and she just wasn't ready to let his displeasure ruin her perfect moment of joy. She did, however, jot off a note to his steward, asking that he forward Simon's new address to her. But then, finally... After the third week, her conscience got the better of her, and she sat down at her desk to write him a letter. Unfortunately for Daphne, the sealing wax hadn't even dried on her missive when her brother Antony, obviously returned from his sojourn in the country, came crashing into the room. Since Daphne was upstairs, in her private chamber, where she was not supposed to receive visitors, she didn't even want to think about how many servants he had injured on his way up. He looked furious, and she knew she probably shouldn't provoke him, but he always made her slightly sarcastic. So she asked, And how did you get up here? Don't I have a butler? You had a butler, he growled. Oh, dear. Where is he? Not here, obviously. There didn't seem any point in pretending she didn't know exactly who he was talking about. I'm going to kill him. Daphne stood, eyes flashing. No, you're not. Antony, who had been standing with his hands on his hips, leaned forward and speared her with a stare. I made a vow to Hastings before he married you. Did you know that? She shook her head. 
I reminded him that I had been prepared to kill him for damaging your reputation. Heaven help him if he damages your soul. He hasn't damaged my soul, Antony. Her hand strayed to her abdomen. Quite the opposite, actually. But if Antony found her words odd, she would never know, because his eyes strayed to her writing table, then narrowed. What is that? he asked. Daphne followed his line of vision to the small pile of paper that constituted her discarded attempts at a letter to Simon. It's nothing, she said, reaching forward to grab the evidence. You're writing him a letter, aren't you? Antony's already stormy expression grew positively thunderous. Oh, for the love of God, don't try to lie about it. I saw his name at the top of the paper. Daphne crumpled the wasted papers and dropped them into a basket under the desk. It's none of your business. Antony eyed the basket, as if he were about to lunge under the desk and retrieve the half-written notes. Finally, he just looked back at Daphne and said, I'm not going to let him get away with this. Antony, this isn't your affair. He didn't dignify that with a reply. I'll find him, you know. I'll find him and I'll kill... Oh, for goodness sake! Daphne finally exploded. This is my marriage, Antony, not yours. And if you interfere in my affairs, so help me God. I swear I will never speak to you again. Her eyes were steady and her tone was forceful. And Antony looked slightly shaken by her words. Very well, he muttered. I won't kill him. Thank you, Daphne said, rather sarcastically. But I will find him, Antony vowed, and I will make my disapproval clear. Daphne took one look at his face and knew that he meant it. Very well, she said, reaching for the completed letter that she'd tucked away in a drawer. I'll let you deliver this. Good. He reached for the envelope. Daphne moved it out of his reach. But only if you make me two promises. Which are? First, you must promise that you won't read this. He looked mortally affronted that she'd even suggested he would. Don't try that I'm so honourable expression with me, Daphne said with a snort. I know you, Antony Bridgerton, and I know that you would read this in a second if you thought you could get away with it. Antony glared at her. But I also know, she continued, that you would never break an explicit promise made to me. So I'll need your promise, Antony. This is hardly necessary, Daff. Promise, she ordered. Oh, all right, he grumbled. I promise. Good. She handed him the letter. He looked at it longingly. Secondly, Daphne said loudly, forcing his attention back to her, you must promise not to hurt him. Oh, now wait one second, Daphne, Antony burst out. You ask far too much. She held out her hand. I'll be taking that letter back. He shoved it behind his back. You already gave it to me. She smirked. I didn't give you his address. I can get his address, he returned. No, you can't. And you know it, Daphne shot back. He has no end of estates. It'll take you weeks to figure out which one he's visiting. Aha, Antony said triumphantly. So he's at one of his estates. You, my dear, let slip a vital clue. Is this a game? 
Daphne asked in amazement. Just tell me where he is. Not unless you promise. No violence, Antony. She crossed her arms. I mean it. All right, he mumbled. Say it. You're a hard woman, Daphne Bridgerton. It's Daphne Bassett, and I've had good teachers. I promise, he said, barely. His words weren't precisely crisp. I need a bit more than that, Daphne said. She uncrossed her arms and twisted her right hand in a rolling manner, as if to draw forth the words from his lips. I promise not to. I promise not to hurt your bloody idiot of a husband, Antony spat out. There, is that good enough? Certainly, Daphne said congenially. She reached into a drawer and pulled out the letter she'd received earlier that week from Simon Stewart, giving his address. Here you are. Antony took it with a decidedly ungraceful and ungrateful swipe of his hand. He glanced down, scanned the lines, then said, I'll be back in four days. You're leaving today? Daphne asked, surprised. I don't know how long I can keep my violent impulses in check, he drawled. Then, by all means, go today, Daphne said. He did. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't pull your lungs out through your mouth. Simon looked up from his desk to see a travel-dusty Antony Bridgerton, fuming in the doorway to his study. It's nice to see you too, Antony, he murmured. Antony entered the room with all the grace of a thunderstorm, planted his hands on Simon's desk and leaned forward menacingly. Would you mind telling me why my sister is in London, crying herself to sleep every night, while you're in... He looked around the office and scowled. Where the hell are we? Wiltshire, Simon supplied. While you're in Wiltshire, puttering around an inconsequential estate. Daphne's in London. You'd think, Antony growled, that as her husband you'd know that. You'd think a lot of things, Simon muttered, but most of the time you'd be wrong. It had been two months since he'd left Cliveden, Two months since he'd looked at Daphne and not been able to utter a word. Two months of utter emptiness. In all honesty, Simon was surprised it had taken Daphne this long to get in touch with him, even if she had elected to do so through her somewhat belligerent older brother. Simon wasn't exactly certain why, but he'd thought she would have contacted him sooner, if only to blister his ears. Daphne wasn't the sort to stew in silence when she was upset. He'd half expected her to track him down and explain in six different ways why he was an utter fool. And, truth be told, after about a month, he'd half wished she would. I would tear your bloody head off, Antony growled, breaking into Simon's thoughts with considerable force. If I hadn't promised Daphne, I wouldn't do you bodily harm. I'm sure that wasn't a promise easily made, Simon said. Antony crossed his arms and settled a heavy stare on Simon's face. Nor easily kept. Simon cleared his throat as he tried to figure out some way to ask about Daphne without seeming too obvious. He missed her. He felt like an idiot. He felt like a fool, but he missed her. 
He missed her laugh and her scent, and the way, sometimes in the middle of the night, she always managed to tangle her legs with his. Simon was used to being alone, but he wasn't used to being this lonely. Did Daphne send you to fetch me back? he finally asked. No. Antony reached into his pocket, pulled out a small ivory envelope and slapped it down on the desk. I caught her summoning a messenger to send you this. Simon stared at the envelope with growing horror. It could only mean one thing. He tried to say something neutral, such as, I see, but his throat closed up. I told her I'd be happy to conduct the letter to you, Antony said with considerable sarcasm. Simon ignored him. He reached for the envelope, hoping that Antony would not see how his fingers were shaking. But Antony did see. What the devil is wrong with you? he asked in an abrupt voice. You look like hell. Simon snatched the envelope and pulled it to him. Always a pleasure to see you too, he managed to quip. Antony gazed steadily at him, the battle between anger and concern showing clearly on his face. Clearing his throat a few times, Antony finally asked, in a surprisingly gentle tone, Are you ill? Of course not. Antony went pale. Is Daphne ill? Simon's head snapped up. Not that she's told me. Why? Does she look ill? Has she... No, she looks fine. Antony's eyes filled with curiosity. Simon, he finally asked, shaking his head. What are you doing here? It's obvious you love her, and much as I can't comprehend it, she seems to love you as well. Simon pressed his fingers to his temples, trying to stave off the pounding headache he never seemed to be without these days. There are things you don't know, he said wearily, shutting his eyes against the pain. Things you could never understand. Antony was silent for a full minute. Finally, just when Simon opened his eyes, Antony pushed away from the desk and walked back to the door. I won't drag you back to London, he said in a low voice. I should, but I won't. Daphne needs to know you came for her, not because her older brother had a pistol at your back. Simon almost pointed out that that was why he'd married her, but he bit his tongue. That wasn't the truth. Not all of it, at least. In another lifetime, he'd have been on bended knee, begging for her hand. You should know, however, Antony continued, that people are starting to talk. Daphne returned to London alone, barely a fortnight after your rather hasty marriage. She's keeping a good face about it, but it's got to hurt. No one has actually come out and insulted her, but there's only so much well-meaning pity a body can take. And that damned whistle-down woman has been writing about her. Simon winced. He'd not been back in England long, but it was long enough to know that the fictitious Lady Whistledown could inflict a great deal of damage and pain. Antony swore in disgust. Get yourself to a doctor, Hastings, and then get yourself back to your wife. With that, he strode out the door. Simon stared at the envelope in his hands for many minutes before opening it. Seeing Antony had been a shock. Knowing he'd just been with Daphne made Simon's heart ache. Bloody hell. 
He hadn't expected to miss her. This was not to say, however, that he wasn't still furious with her. She'd taken something from him that he quite frankly hadn't wanted to give. He didn't want children. He'd told her that. She'd married him knowing that. And she'd tricked him. Or had she? He rubbed his hands wearily against his eyes and forehead as he tried to remember the exact details of that fateful morning. Daphne had definitely been the leader in their lovemaking, but he distinctly recalled his own voice urging her on. He should not have encouraged what he knew he could not stop. She probably wasn't pregnant anyway, he reasoned. Hadn't it taken his own mother over a decade to produce a single living child? But when he was alone, lying in bed at night, he knew the truth. He hadn't fled just because Daphne had disobeyed him, or because there was a chance he'd sired a child. He'd fled because he couldn't bear the way he'd been with her. She'd reduced him to the stuttering, stammering fool of his childhood. She'd rendered him mute, brought back that awful choking feeling, the horror of not being able to say what he felt. He just didn't know if he could live with her, if it meant going back to being the boy who could barely speak. He tried to remind himself of their courtship, their mock courtship, he thought with a smile, and to remember how easy it had been to be with her, to talk with her. But every memory was tainted by where it had all led, to Daphne's bedroom that hideous morning, with him tripping over his tongue and choking on his own throat, and he hated himself like that. So he'd fled to another of his country estates. As a duke, he had a number of them. This particular house was in Wiltshire, which, he had reasoned, wasn't too terribly far from Clifton. He could get back in a day and a half if he rode hard enough. It wasn't so much like he'd run away, if he could go back so easily. And now it looked like he was going to have to go back. Taking a deep breath... Simon picked up his letter opener and slit the envelope. He pulled out a single sheet of paper and looked down. Simon, my efforts, as you termed them, were met with success. I have removed myself to London so that I might be near my family and await your directive there. Yours, Daphne. Simon didn't know how long he sat there behind his desk, barely breathing, the cream-coloured slip of paper hanging from his fingers. Then, finally, a breeze washed over him. Or perhaps the light changed, or the house creaked. But something broke him out of his reverie, and he jumped to his feet, strode into the hall, and bellowed for his butler. "'Have my carriage hitched!' he barked when the butler appeared. "'I'm going to London!' Chapter 20 The marriage of the season seems to have gone sour. The Duchess of Hastings, formerly Miss Bridgerton, returned to London nearly two months ago, and this author has seen neither hide nor hair of her new husband, the Duke. Rumour has it that he is not at Clifton, where the once happy couple took their honeymoon. Indeed, this author cannot find anyone who professes to know his whereabouts. If her grace knows she is not telling, and furthermore, 
One rarely has the opportunity to ask, as she has shunned the company of all except her rather large and extensive family. It is, of course, this author's place and indeed duty to speculate on the source of such rifts. But this author must confess that even she is baffled. They seemed so very much in love. Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 2nd of August, 1813. The trip took two days, which was two days longer than Simon would have liked to be alone with his thoughts. He'd brought a few books to read, hoping to keep himself distracted during the tedious journey, but whenever he managed to open one, it sat unread in his lap. It was difficult to keep his mind off Daphne. It was even more difficult to keep his mind off the prospect of fatherhood. Once he reached London, he gave his driver instructions to take him directly to Bridgerton House. He was travel-weary and probably could use a change of clothing, but he'd done nothing for the past two days but play out his upcoming confrontation with Daphne. It seemed foolish to put it off any longer than he had to. Once admitted to Bridgerton House, however, he discovered that Daphne wasn't there. "'What do you mean?' Simon asked in a deadly voice not particularly caring that the butler had done little to earn his ire. The Duchess isn't here. The butler took his deadly voice and raised him one curled upper lip. I mean, your grace. This was not said with particular graciousness. That she is not in residence. I have a letter from my wife. Simon thrust his hand into his pocket, but, damn it, didn't come up with the paper. Well, I have a letter from her somewhere, he grumbled, and it specifically states that she has removed herself to London. And she has, your grace. Then where the hell is she? Simon ground out. The butler merely raised a brow. At Hastings House, your grace. Simon clamped his mouth shut. There was little more humiliating than being bested by a butler. After all, the butler continued, clearly enjoying himself now. She is married to you, is she not? Simon glared at him. You must be quite secure in your position. Quite. Simon gave him a brief nod, since he couldn't quite bring himself to thank the man, and stalked off, feeling very much like a fool. Of course Daphne would have gone to Hastings' house. She hadn't left him, after all. She just wanted to be near her family. If he could have kicked himself on the way back to the carriage, he would have done so. Once inside, however, he did kick himself. He lived just across Grosvenor Square from the Bridgertons. He could have walked across the blasted green in half the time. Time, however, proved not to be particularly of the essence, because when he swung open the door to Hastings' house and stomped into the hall, he discovered that his wife was not at home. She's riding, Geoffrey said. Simon stared at his butler in patent disbelief. She's riding, he echoed. Yes, your grace, Jeffreys replied. Riding, on a horse. Simon wondered what the penalty was for strangling a butler. Where, he bit off, did she go? Hyde Park, I believe. Simon's blood began to pound, and his breath grew uneven. Riding? Was she bloody insane? She was pregnant, for God's sake. Even he knew that pregnant women weren't supposed to ride. Have a horse saddled for me, Simon ordered. Immediately. Any particular horse? Jeffreys inquired. 
A fast one, Simon snapped. And do it now. Or better yet, I'll do it. With that, he turned on his heel and marched out of the house. But about halfway to the stables, his panic seeped from his blood to his very bones, and Simon's determined stride turned into a run. It wasn't the same as riding astride, Daphne thought, but at least she was going fast. In the country, when she'd been growing up, she'd always borrowed Colin's breeches and joined her brothers on their hell-for-leather rides. Her mother usually suffered an attack of the vapours every time she saw her eldest daughter return covered with mud and quite frequently sporting a new and startling bruise. But Daphne hadn't cared. She hadn't cared where they were riding to or what they were riding from. It had all been about speed. In the city, of course, she couldn't don breeches and thus was relegated to the side saddle. But if she took her horse out early enough, when fashionable society was still abed, and if she made certain to limit herself to the more remote areas of Hyde Park, she could bend over her saddle and urge her horse to a gallop. The wind whipped her hair out of its bun and stung her eyes to tears, but at least it made her forget. Atop her favourite mare, tearing across the fields, she felt free. There was no better medicine for a broken heart. She'd long since ditched her groom, pretending she hadn't heard him when he'd yelled, Wait! Your Grace! Wait! She'd apologised to him later. The grooms at Bridgerton House were used to her antics and well aware of her skill atop a horse. This new man, one of her husband's servants, would probably worry. Daphne felt a twinge of guilt, but only a twinge. She needed to be alone. She needed to move fast. She slowed down as she reached a slightly wooded area and took a deep breath of the crisp autumn air. She closed her eyes for a moment, letting the sounds and smells of the park fill her senses. She thought of a blind man she'd once met, who'd told her that the rest of his senses had grown sharper since he'd lost his sight. As she sat there and inhaled the scents of the forest, she thought he might be right. She listened hard, first identifying the high-pitched chirp of the birds, then the soft scurrying feet of the squirrels as they hoarded nuts for the winter. Then she frowned and opened her eyes. Damn! That was definitely the sound of another rider approaching. Daphne didn't want company. She wanted to be alone with her thoughts and her pain, and she certainly didn't want to have to explain to some well-meaning society member why she was alone in the park. She listened again, identified the location of the oncoming rider, and took off in the other direction. She kept her horse to a steady trot, thinking that if she just got out of the other rider's way, he'd pass her by. But whichever way she went, he seemed to follow. She picked up speed, more speed than she should have in this lightly wooded area. There were too many low branches and protruding tree roots, but now Daphne was starting to get scared. Her pulse pounded in her ears as a thousand horrifying questions rocked through her head. What if this rider wasn't, as she'd originally supposed, a member of the Ton? What if he was a criminal? Or a drunk? It was early. There was no one about. If Daphne screamed, who would hear her? Was she close enough to her groom? Had he stayed put where she'd left him, or had he tried to follow? And if he had, had he even gone in the right direction? Her groom. She nearly cried out in relief. It had to be her groom. 
she swung her mare around to see if she could catch a glimpse of the rider. The Hastings livery was quite distinctly red. Surely she'd be able to see if... Smack! Every bit of air was violently forced from her body as a branch caught her squarely in the chest. A strangled grunt escaped her lips, and she felt her mare moving forward without her. And then she was falling. Falling. She landed with a bone-jarring thud, the autumn brown leaves on the ground providing scant cushioning. Her body immediately curled into a fetal position, as if by making herself as small as possible, she could make the hurt as small as possible. And, oh, God, she hurt. Damn it, she hurt everywhere. She squeezed her eyes shut and concentrated on breathing. Her mind flooded with curses she'd never dared speak aloud. But it hurt. Bloody hell, it hurt to breathe. But she had to. Breathe. Breathe, Daphne, she ordered. Breathe. Breathe. You can do it. Daphne. Daphne made no response. The only sounds she seemed able to make were whimpers. Even groans were beyond her capability. Daphne. Christ above. Daphne. She heard someone jump off a horse, then felt movement in the leaves around her. Daphne. Simon, she whispered in disbelief. It made no sense that he was here, but it was his voice, and even though she still hadn't pried her eyes open, it felt like him. The air changed when he was near. His hands touched her lightly, checking for broken bones. Tell me where it hurts, he said. Everywhere, she gasped. He swore under his breath, but his touch remained achingly gentle and soothing. Open your eyes, he ordered softly. Look at me. Focus on my face. She shook her head. I can't. You can. She heard him strip off his gloves, and then his warm fingers were on her temples, smoothing away the tension. He moved to her eyebrows, then the bridge of her nose. Shh, he crooned. Let it go. Just let the pain go. Open your eyes, Daphne. Slowly, and with great difficulty, she did so. Simon's face filled her vision, and for the moment she forgot everything that had happened between them. Everything but the fact that she loved him, and he was here, and he was making the hurt go away. Look at me, he said again, his voice low and insistent. Look at me, and don't take your eyes off of mine. She managed the tiniest of nods. She focused her eyes on his, letting the intensity of his gaze hold her still. Now, I want you to relax, he said. His voice was soft but commanding, and it was exactly what she needed. As he spoke, his hands moved across her body, checking for breaks or sprains. His eyes never once left hers. Simon kept speaking to her in low, soothing tones as he examined her body for injuries. She didn't appear to have suffered anything worse than a few bad bruises and having the wind knocked out of her. But one could never be too careful. And with the baby, the blood drained from his face. In his panic for Daphne, he'd forgotten all about the child she was carrying. His child. Their child. Daphne, he said slowly, carefully. Do you think you're all right? She nodded. Are you still in pain? Some, she admitted, swallowing awkwardly as she blinked. 
but it's getting better. Are you certain? She nodded again. Good, he said calmly. He was silent for several seconds, and then he fairly yelled. What in God's name did you think you were doing? Daphne's jaw dropped, and her eyelids started opening and closing with great rapidity. She made a strangled sort of sound that might have metamorphosed into an actual word, but Simon cut her off with more bellows. What the hell were you doing out here with no groom? And why were you galloping here where the terrain clearly does not allow it? His eyebrows slammed together. And for the love of God, woman, what were you doing on a horse? Riding, Daphne answered weakly. Don't you even care about our child? Didn't you give even a moment's thought to its safety? Simon, Daphne said, her voice very small. A pregnant woman shouldn't even get within ten feet of a horse. You should know better. When she looked at him, her eyes looked old. Why do you care? she asked flatly. You didn't want this baby. No, I didn't. But now that it's here, I don't want you to kill it. Well, don't worry. She bit her lip. It's not here. Simon's breath caught. What do you mean? Her eyes flitted to the side of his face. I'm not pregnant. You're... He couldn't finish the sentence. The strangest feeling sank into his body. He didn't think it was disappointment, but he wasn't quite sure. You lied to me, he whispered. She shook her head fiercely as she sat up to face him. No, she cried. No, I never lied. I swear. I thought I'd conceived. I truly thought I had, but... She choked on a sob and squeezed her eyes shut against an onslaught of tears. She hugged her legs to her body and pressed her face against her knees. Simon had never seen her like this, so utterly stricken with grief. He stared at her, feeling agonisingly helpless. All he wanted was to make her feel better, and it didn't much help to know that he was the cause of her pain. But what, Daff? he asked. When she finally looked up at him, her eyes were huge and full of grief. I don't know. Maybe I wanted a child so badly that I somehow willed my courses away. I was so happy last month. She let out a shaky breath, one that teetered precariously on the edge of a sob. I waited and waited, even got my woman's padding ready, and nothing happened. Nothing? Simon had never heard of such a thing. Nothing. Her lips trembled into a faintly self-mocking smile. I've never been so happy in my life to have nothing happen. Did you feel queasy? She shook her head. I felt no different, except that I didn't plead. But then, two days ago... Simon laid his hand on hers. I'm sorry, Daphne. No, you're not, she said bitterly, yanking her hand away. Don't pretend something you don't feel. And for God's sake, don't lie to me again. You never wanted this baby. She let out a hollow, brittle laugh. <laughs> this baby. Good God, I talk as if it ever actually existed. As if it were ever more than a product of my imagination. She looked down, and when she spoke again, her voice was achingly sad. And my dreams. 
Simon's lips moved several times before he managed to say, I don't like to see you so upset. She looked at him with a combination of disbelief and regret. I don't see how you could expect anything else. I... 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 He swallowed, trying to relax his throat. And finally, he just said the only thing in his heart. I want you back. She didn't say anything. Simon silently begged her to say something, but she didn't. And he cursed at the gods for her silence, because it meant that he would have to say more. When we argued, he said slowly, I lost control. I... I couldn't speak. He closed his eyes in agony as he felt his jaw tighten. Finally, after a long and shaky exhale, he said, I hate myself like that. Daphne's head tilted slightly as furrows formed in her brow. Is that why you left? He nodded once. It wasn't about what I did. His eyes met hers evenly. I didn't like what you did. But that wasn't why you left, she persisted. There was a beat of silence, and then he said, It wasn't why I left. Daphne hugged her knees to her chest, pondering his words. All this time, she thought he'd abandoned her because he hated her, hated what she'd done. But in truth, the only thing he hated was himself. She said softly, You know I don't think less of you when you stammer. I think less of myself. She nodded slowly. Of course he would. He was proud and stubborn, and all the ton looked up to him. Men curried his favour. Women flirted like mad. And all the while, he'd been terrified every time he'd opened his mouth. Well, maybe not every time, Daphne thought, as she gazed into his face. When they were together, he usually spoke so freely answered her so quickly that she knew he couldn't possibly be concentrating on every word. She put her hand on his. You're not the boy your father thought you were. I know that, he said, but his eyes didn't meet hers. Simon, look at me, she gently ordered. When he did, she repeated her words. You're not the boy your father thought you were. I know that he said again, looking puzzled and maybe just a bit annoyed. Are you sure? she asked softly. Damn it, Daphne, I know! His words tumbled into silence as his body began to shake. For one startling moment, Daphne thought he was going to cry, but the tears that pooled in his eyes never fell, and when he looked up at her, his body shuddering, all he said was, I hate him, Daphne. I... She moved her hands to his cheeks and turned his face to hers, forcing him to meet her steady gaze. That's all right, she said. It sounds as if he was a horrid man, but you have to let it go. I can't. You can. It's all right to have anger, but you can't let that be the ruling factor in your life. Even now, you're letting him dictate your choices. Simon looked away. Daphne's hands dropped from his face, but she made sure they rested on his knees. She needed this connection. In a strange way, she feared that if she let go of him right now, she'd lose him forever. 
Did you ever stop to wonder if you wanted a family? If you wanted a child of your own? You'd be such a wonderful father, Simon, and yet you won't even let yourself consider the notion. You think you're getting your revenge, but you're really just letting him control you from the grave. If I give him a child, he wins, Simon whispered. No, if you give yourself a child, you win, she swallowed convulsively. We all win. Simon said nothing, but she could see his body shaking. If you don't want a child because you don't want one, that's one thing. But if you deny yourself the joy of fatherhood because of a dead man, then you're a coward. Daphne winced as the insult crossed her lips, but it had to be said. At some point, you've got to leave him behind and live your own life. You've got to let go of the anger and... Simon shook his head, and his eyes looked lost and hopeless. Don't ask me to do that. It's all I had. Don't you see? It's all I had. I don't understand. His voice rose in volume. Why do you think I learned to speak properly? What do you think drove me? It was anger. It was always anger. Always to show him. Simon. A bubble of mocking laughter erupted from his throat. <laughs> Isn't that just too amusing? I hate him. I hate him so much. And yet he's the one reason I've managed to succeed. Daphne shook her head. That's not true, she said fervently. You would have succeeded no matter what. You're stubborn and brilliant, and I know you. You learned to speak because of you, not because of him. When he said nothing, she added in a soft voice, If he'd shown you love, it would have made it all the easier. Simon started to shake his head, but she cut him off by taking his hand and squeezing it. I was shown love, she whispered. I knew nothing but love and devotion when I was growing up. Trust me, it makes everything easier. Simon sat very still for several minutes, the only sound the low whoosh of his breath as he fought to control his emotions. Finally, just when Daphne was beginning to fear she'd lost him, he looked up at her with shattered eyes. I want to be happy, he whispered. You will be, she vowed, wrapping her arms around him. You will be. Chapter 21 The Duke of Hastings is back! Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 6th of August, 1813. Simon didn't speak as they slowly rode home. Daphne's mare had been found munching contentedly on a patch of grass about twenty yards away, and even though Daphne had insisted that she was fit to ride, Simon had insisted that he didn't care. After tying the mare's reins to his own gelding, he had boosted Daphne into his saddle, hopped up behind her, and headed back to Grosvenor Square. Besides, he needed to hold her. He was coming to realise that he needed to hold on to something in life, and maybe she was right. Maybe anger wasn't the solution. Maybe, just maybe, he could learn to hold on to love instead. When they reached Hastings' house, a groom ran out to take care of the horses, and so Simon and Daphne trudged up the front steps and entered the hall and found themselves being stared down by the three older Bridgerton brothers. 
What the hell are you doing in my house? Simon demanded. All he wanted to do was scoot up the stairs and make love to his wife, and instead he was greeted by this belligerent trio. They were standing with identical postures, legs spread, hands on hips, chins jutted out. If Simon hadn't been so damned irritated with a lot of them, he probably would have had the presence of mind to have been slightly alarmed. Simon had no doubt that he could hold his own against one of them, maybe two, but against all three, he was a dead man. We heard you were back, Antony said. So I am, Simon replied. Now leave. Not so fast, Benedict said, crossing his arms. Simon turned to Daphne. Which one of them may I shoot first? She threw a scowl at her brothers. I have no preference. We have a few demands before we'll let you keep Daphne, Colin said. What? Daphne howled. She is my wife, Simon roared, effectively obliterating Daphne's angry query. She was our sister first, Antony growled, and you've made her miserable. This isn't any of your business, Daphne insisted. You're our business, Benedict said. She's my business, Simon snapped. So now get the hell out of my house. When the three of you have marriages of your own, then you can presume to offer me advice, Daphne said angrily. But in the meantime, keep your meddling impulses to yourselves. I'm sorry, Daph, Antony said. But we're not budging on this. On what? she snapped. You have no place to budge one way or the other. This isn't your affair. Colin stepped forward. We're not leaving until we're convinced he loves you. The blood drained from Daphne's face. Simon had never once told her that he loved her. He'd shown it in a thousand different little ways, but he'd never said the words. When they came, she didn't want them at the hands of her overbearing brothers. She wanted them free and felt, from Simon's heart. Don't do this, Colin, she whispered, hating the pathetic, pleading note of her voice. You have to let me fight my own battles. Daph! Please, she pleaded. Simon marched between them. If you will excuse us, he said to Colin, and by extension to Antony and Benedict. He ushered Daphne to the other end of the hall, where they might talk privately. He would have liked to have moved to another room altogether, but he had no confidence that her idiot brothers wouldn't follow. I'm so sorry about my brothers, Daphne whispered, her words coming out in a heated rush. They're boorish idiots, and they had no business invading your house. If I could disown them, I would. After this display, I wouldn't be surprised if you never want children. Simon silenced her with a finger to her lips. First of all, it's our house, not my house. And as for your brothers, they annoy the hell out of me. But they're acting out of love. He leaned down just an inch, but it brought him close enough so that she could feel his breath on her skin. And who can blame them, he murmured. Daphne's heart stopped. Simon moved ever closer, until his nose rested on hers. I love you, Daph, he whispered. Her heart started again with a vengeance. You do? He nodded, his nose rubbing against hers. I couldn't help it. Her lips wobbled into a hesitant smile. 
That's not terribly romantic. It's the truth, he said, with a helpless shrug. You know better than anyone that I didn't want any of this. I didn't want a wife. I didn't want a family. And I definitely didn't want to fall in love. He brushed his mouth softly against hers, sending shivers down both of their bodies. But what I found... His lips touched hers again, much to my dismay. And again, was that it's quite impossible not to love you. Daphne melted into his arms. Oh, Simon, she sighed. His mouth captured hers, trying to show her with his kiss what he was still learning to express in words. He loved her. He worshipped her. He'd walk across fire for her. He still had the audience of her three brothers. Slowly breaking the kiss, he turned his face to the side. Antony, Benedict and Colin were still standing in the foyer. Antony was studying the ceiling. Benedict was pretending to inspect his fingernails, and Colin was staring quite shamelessly. Simon tightened his hold on Daphne, even as he shot a glare down the hall. What the hell are the three of you still doing in my house? Not surprisingly, none of them had a ready answer. Get out, Simon growled. Please. Daphne's tone didn't exactly suggest politeness. Right, Antony replied, smacking Colin on the back of the head. I believe our work here is done, boys. Simon started steering Daphne toward the stairs. I'm sure you can show yourselves out, he said over his shoulder. Antony nodded and nudged his brothers toward the door. Good, Simon said tersely. We'll be going upstairs. Simon, Daphne squealed. It's not as if they don't know what we're going to do, he whispered in her ear. But still, they're my brothers. God help us, he muttered. But before Simon and Daphne could even reach the landing, the front door burst open, followed by a stream of decidedly feminine invective. Mother, Daphne said, the word croaking in her throat. But Violet only had eyes for her sons. I knew I'd find you here, she accused. Of all the stupid, bullheaded... Daphne didn't hear the rest of her mother's speech. Simon was laughing too hard in her ear. He made her miserable, Benedict protested. As her brothers, it's our duty to respect her intelligence enough to let her solve her own problems. Violet snapped. And she doesn't look particularly unhappy right now. That's because... And if you say that's because you lot barged into her home like a herd of mentally deficient sheep, I'm disowning all three of you. All three men shut their mouths. Now then, Violet continued briskly, I believe it's time we left, don't you? When her sons didn't move quickly enough to suit her, she reached out and... Please, mother! Colin yelped. Not the... She grabbed him by his ear. Ear, he finished glumly. Daphne grabbed Simon's arm. He was laughing so hard now she was afraid he'd tumble down the steps. Violet herded her sons out the door with a loud, March! And then turned back to Simon and Daphne on the stairs. Glad to see you in London, Hastings, she called, gifting him with a wide, brilliant smile. Another week! and I would have dragged you here myself. Then she stepped outside and shut the door behind her.
Simon turned to Daphne, his body still shaking with laughter. Was that your mother? he asked, smiling. She has hidden depths. Clearly. Daphne's face grew serious. I'm sorry if my brother's forced... Nonsense, he said, cutting her off. Your brothers could never force me to say something I don't feel. He cocked his head and pondered that for a moment. Well, not without a pistol. Daphne smacked him in the shoulder. Simon ignored her and pulled her body against his. I meant what I said, he murmured, wrapping his arms around her waist. I love you. I've known it for some time now, but it's all right, Daphne said, laying her cheek against his chest. You don't need to explain. Yes, I do, he insisted. I... But the words wouldn't come. There was too much emotion inside, too many feelings rocking within him. Let me show you, he said hoarsely. Let me show you how much I love you. Daphne answered by tilting her face up to receive his kiss. And as their lips touched, she sighed. I love you too. Simon's mouth took hers with hungry devotion, his hands clutching at her back as if he were afraid she might disappear at any moment. Come upstairs, he whispered. Come with me now. She nodded, but before she could take a step, he swept her into the cradle of his arms and carried her up the stairs. By the time Simon reached the second floor, his body was rock-hard and straining for release. Which room have you been using? he gasped. Yours, she replied, sounding surprised that he'd even asked. He grunted his approval and moved swiftly into his, no, their room, kicking the door shut behind him. I love you he said, as they tumbled onto the bed. Now that he'd said the words once, they were bursting within him, demanding a voice. He needed to tell her, make sure she knew, make sure she understood what she meant to him. And if it took a thousand sayings, he didn't care. I love you, he said again, his fingers frantically working on the fastenings of her dress. I know, she said tremulously. She cupped his face in her hands and caught his eyes with hers. I love you too. Then she pulled his mouth down to hers, kissing him with a sweet innocence that set him afire. If I ever, ever hurt you again, he said fervently, his mouth moving to the corner of hers, I want you to kill me. Never, she answered, smiling. His lips moved to the sensitive spot where her jaw met her earlobe. Then maim me he murmured. Twist my arm. Sprain my ankle. Don't be silly, she said, touching his chin and turning his face back to hers. You won't hurt me. Love for this woman filled him. It flooded his chest, made his fingers tingle and stole his very breath. Sometimes, he whispered, I love you so much it scares me. If I could give you the world... You know I would do it, don't you? All I want is you, she whispered. I don't need the world, just your love. And maybe, she added with a wry smile, for you to take off your boots. Simon felt his face erupt into a grin. Somehow, his wife always seemed to know exactly what he needed. Just when his emotions were choking him, bringing him dangerously close to tears... She lightened the mood, made him smile. 
Your wish is my command, he said, and rolled to her side to yank the offending footwear off. One boot tumbled to the floor, the other skittered across the room. Anything else, your grace? he asked. She cocked her head coyly. Your shirt could go too, I suppose. He complied, and the linen garment landed on the nightstand. Will that be all? These, she said, hooking her finger around the waistband of his breeches, are definitely in the way. I agree, he murmured, shrugging them off. He crawled over her, on his hands and knees, his body a hot prison around her. Now what? Her breath caught. Well, you're quite naked. That is true, he concurred, his eyes burning down on hers. And I'm not. That is also true. He smiled like a cat. And a pity it is. Daphne nodded, completely without words. Sit up, he said softly. She did, and seconds later her dress was whipped over her head. Now that, he said hoarsely, staring hungrily at her breasts, is an improvement. They were now kneeling across from each other on the massive four-poster bed. Daphne stared at her husband, her pulse quickening at the sight of his broad chest, rising and falling with each heavy breath. With a trembling hand, she reached out and touched him, her fingers lightly skimming over his warm skin. Simon stopped breathing until her forefinger touched his nipple, and then his hand shot up to cover hers. I want you, he said. Her eyes flicked downward, and her lips curved ever so slightly. I know. No, he groaned, pulling her closer. I want to be in your heart. I want... His entire body shuddered when their skin touched. I want to be in your soul. Oh, Simon, she sighed, sinking her fingers in his thick, dark hair. You're already there. And then there were no more words, only lips and hands and flesh against flesh. Simon worshipped her in every way he knew how. He ran his hands along her legs and kissed the back of her knees. He squeezed her hips and tickled her navel, and when he was poised to enter her, his entire body straining against the most all-consuming desire he'd ever felt, he gazed down upon her with a reverence that brought tears to her eyes. I love you, he whispered. In all my life, it's been only you. Daphne nodded, and although she made no sound, her mouth formed the words, I love you too. He pushed forward, slowly, inexorably, and when he was settled fully within her body, he knew he was home. He looked down at her face. Her head was thrown back, her lips parted as she struggled for breath. He grazed her flushed cheeks with his lips. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, he whispered. I've never... I don't know how, she arched her back in response. Just love me, she gasped. Please, love me. Simon began to move his hips rising and falling in time's most ancient rhythm. Daphne's fingers pressed into his back, her nails digging into his skin every time he thrust further into her body. She moaned and mewled, and his body burned at the sounds of her passion. He was spiralling out of control, 
his movements growing jerky, more frenetic. I can't hold on much longer, he gasped. He wanted to wait for her, needed to know that he'd brought her bliss before he allowed himself his own release. But then, just when he thought his body would shatter from the effort of his restraint, Daphne shook beneath him, her most intimate muscles squeezing around him as she cried out his name. Simon's breath stopped in his throat as he watched her face. He'd always been so busy making sure he didn't spill his seed inside of her that he'd never seen her face as she climaxed. Her head was thrown back, the elegant lines of her throat straining as her mouth opened in a silent scream. He was awestruck. I love you, he said. Oh, God, how I love you. Then he plunged deeper. Daphne's eyes fluttered open as he resumed his rhythm. Simon? she asked, her voice tinged with a touch of urgency. Are you sure? They both knew what she meant. Simon nodded. I don't want you to do this just for me, she said. It has to be for you too. The strangest lump formed in his throat. It was nothing like his stutters, nothing like his stammers. It was, he realised, nothing but love. Tears stabbed at his eyes, and he nodded, utterly unable to speak. He plunged forward, exploding within her. It felt good. Oh, God, it felt good. Nothing in life had ever felt that good before. His arms finally gave out, and he collapsed atop her the only sound in the room the rasp of his ragged breathing. And then Daphne smoothed his hair from his forehead and kissed his brow. I love you, she whispered. I will always love you. Simon buried his face into her neck, breathing in the scent of her. She surrounded him, enveloped him, and he was complete. Many hours later, Daphne's eyelids fluttered open, she stretched her arms above her as she noticed that the curtains had all been pulled shut. Simon must have done that, she thought, with a yawn. Light filtered around the edges, bathing the room with a soft glow. She twisted her neck, working the kinks out, then slid out of bed and padded to the dressing room to fetch her robe. How unlike her to sleep in the middle of the day. But, she supposed, this hadn't been an ordinary day. She pulled on her robe, tying the silken sash around her waist. Where had Simon gone off to? She didn't think he'd left the bed too long before she had. She had a sleepy memory of lying in his arms that somehow seemed too fresh. The master suite consisted of five rooms altogether. Two bedrooms, each with its own dressing room off to the side, connected by a large sitting room. The door to the sitting room was ajar, and bright sunlight streamed through the aperture, suggesting that the curtains inside had been pulled open. Moving on deliberately quiet feet, Daphne walked to the open doorway and peered inside. Simon was standing by the window, staring out over the city. He'd donned a lush burgundy dressing gown, but his feet were still bare. His pale blue eyes held a reflective look, unfocused and just the slightest bit bleak. Daphne's brow wrinkled with concern. She crossed the room toward him, quietly saying, Good afternoon, when she was but a foot away. Simon turned at the sound of her voice, 
and his haggard face softened at the sight of her. Good afternoon to you too, he murmured, pulling her into his arms. Somehow she ended up with her back pressed up against his broad chest, gazing out over Grosvenor Square as Simon rested his chin on the top of her head. It took Daphne several moments before she worked up the courage to ask, Any regrets? She couldn't see him, but she felt his chin rub against her scalp as he shook his head. No regrets, he said softly. Just thoughts. Something about his voice didn't sound quite right, and so Daphne twisted in his arms until she could see his face. Simon, what's wrong? she whispered. Nothing. But his eyes didn't meet hers. Daphne led him to a love seat and sat tugging on his arm until he settled in beside her. If you're not ready to be a father yet, she whispered, that's all right. It's not that. But she didn't believe him. He'd answered too quickly, and there'd been a choked sound to his voice that made her uneasy. I don't mind waiting, she said. Truth be told, she added shyly, I wouldn't mind having a little time just for the two of us. Simon didn't say anything, but his eyes grew pained, and then he closed them as he brought his hand to his brow and rubbed. A ripple of panic washed over Daphne, and she started talking faster. It wasn't so much that I wanted a baby right away, she said. I just would like one eventually, that's all. And I think you might too, if you let yourself consider it. I was upset because I hated that you were denying us a family just to spite your father. It's not... Simon laid a heavy hand on her thigh. Daphne, stop, he said. Please. His voice held just enough agonised emotion to silence her immediately. She caught her lower lip between her teeth and chewed nervously. It was his turn to speak. There was obviously something big and difficult squeezing at his heart, and if it took all day for him to find the words to explain it, she could wait. She could wait forever for this man. I can't say I'm excited about having a child, Simon said slowly. Daphne noticed his breathing was slightly laboured, and she placed her hand on his forearm to offer comfort. He turned to her with eyes that pleaded for understanding. I've spent so long intending never to have one, you see. He swallowed. I don't know even how to begin to think about it. Daphne offered him a reassuring smile that in retrospect she realised was meant for both of them. You'll learn, she whispered, and I'll learn with you. It's not that, he said, shaking his head. He let out an impatient breath. I don't want to live my life just to spite my father. He turned to her, and Daphne was nearly undone by the sheer emotion burning on his face. His jaw was trembling, and a muscle worked frantically in his cheek. There was incredible tension in his neck, as if every ounce of his energy was devoted to the task of delivering this speech. Daphne wanted to hold him, to comfort the little boy inside. She wanted to smooth his brow and squeeze his hand. She wanted to do a thousand things, but instead she just held silent, encouraging him with her eyes to continue. You were right, he said, 
the words tumbling from his mouth. All along you've been right. About my father. Th that I was letting him win. Oh, Simon, she murmured. But what? His face, his strong, handsome face, which was always so firm, always so in control, crumpled. What if, if we have a child, and it comes out like me? For a moment, Daphne couldn't speak. Her eyes tingled with unshed tears, and her hand moved unbidden to her mouth, covering lips that had parted in shock. Simon turned away from her, but not before she saw the utter torment in his eyes, not before she heard his breath catch, or the shaky exhale he finally expelled in an attempt to hold himself together. If we have a child who stutters, Daphne said carefully, then I shall love him and help him. And she swallowed convulsively, praying that she was doing the right thing. And I shall turn to you for advice, because, obviously, you have learned how to overcome it. He turned to face her with surprising swiftness. I don't want my child to suffer as I have suffered. A strange little smile moved across Daphne's face without her even realising it, as if her body had realised before her mind that she knew exactly what to say. But he wouldn't suffer, she said, because you'll be his father. Simon's face did not change expression, but his eyes shone with an odd, new, almost hopeful light. Would you reject a child who stuttered? Daphne asked quietly. Simon's negative reply was strong, swift, and accompanied by just a touch of blasphemy. She smiled softly. Then I have no fears for our children. Simon held still for one moment more, and then, in a rush of movement, pulled her into his arms, burying his face in the crook of her neck. I love you, he choked out. I love you so much. And Daphne was finally certain that everything was going to be all right. Several hours later, Daphne and Simon were still sitting on the love seat in the sitting room. It had been an afternoon for holding hands, for resting one's head on the other's shoulder. Words hadn't been necessary. For both, it had been enough simply to be next to the other. The sun was shining, the birds were chirping, and they were together. It was all they needed. But something was niggling at the back of Daphne's brain, and it wasn't until her eyes fell on a writing set on the desk that she remembered. The letters from Simon's father. She closed her eyes and exhaled, summoning the courage she knew she'd need to hand them over to Simon. The Duke of Middlethorpe had told her, when he'd asked her to take the packet of letters, that she'd know when the time was right to give them to him. She disentangled herself from Simon's heavy arms and padded over to the Duchess's chamber. Where are you going? Simon asked sleepily. He'd been dozing in the warm afternoon sun. I... I have to get something. He must have heard the hesitation in her voice, because he opened his eyes and craned his body around to look at her. What are you getting? he asked curiously. Daphne avoided answering his question by scurrying into the next room. I'll just be a moment, she called out. She'd kept the letters, 
tied together by a red and gold ribbon, the ancestral colours of Hastings, in the bottom drawer of her desk. She'd actually forgotten about them for her first few weeks back in London, and they'd lain untouched in her old bedroom at Bridgerton House. But she'd stumbled across them on a visit to see her mother. Violet had suggested she go upstairs to gather a few of her things, and while Daphne was collecting old perfume bottles and the pillowcase she'd stitched at age ten, she found them again. Many a time she'd been tempted to open one up, if only to better understand her husband. And, truth be told, if the envelopes hadn't been closed with sealing wax, she probably would have tossed her scruples over her shoulder and read them. She picked up the bundle and walked slowly back to the sitting room. Simon was still on the couch, but he was up and alert and watching her curiously. These are for you, she said, holding up the bundle as she walked to his side. What are they? he asked. But from the tone of his voice, she was fairly certain he already knew. Letters from your father, she said. Middlethorpe gave them to me. Do you remember? He nodded. I also remember giving him orders to burn them. Daphne smiled weakly. He apparently disagreed. Simon stared at the bundle, anywhere but at her face. And so apparently did you, he said in a very quiet voice. She nodded and sat next to him. Do you want to read them? Simon thought about his answer for several seconds and finally settled on complete honesty. I don't know. It might help you to finally put him behind you. Or it might make it worse. It might, she agreed. He stared at the letters, bundled up by a ribbon, resting innocently in her hands. He expected to feel animosity. He expected to feel rage. But instead, all he felt was nothing. It was the strangest sensation. There before him was a collection of letters, all written in his father's hand, and yet he felt no urge to toss them in the fire or tear them to bits, and at the same time no urge to read them. I think I'll wait, Simon said with a smile. Daphne blinked several times, as if her eyes could not believe her ears. You don't want to read them, she asked. He shook his head. And you don't want to burn them? He shrugged. Not particularly. She looked down at the letters, then back at his face. What do you want to do with them? Nothing. Nothing? He grinned. That's what I said. Oh. She looked quite adorably befuddled. Do you want me to put them back in my desk? If you like. And they'll just sit there. He caught hold of the sash on her dressing robe and started pulling her toward him. Mm-hmm. But, she spluttered, but, but... One more but, he teased, and you're going to start to sound like me. Daphne's mouth fell open. Simon wasn't surprised by her reaction. It was the first time in his life he'd ever been able to make a joke out of his difficulties. The letters can wait he said, just as they fell off her lap onto the floor. I've just finally managed, thanks to you, to boot my father from my life. He shook his head, smiling as he did so. Reading those now would just invite him back in. But don't you want to see what he had to say? 
she persisted. Maybe he apologised. Maybe he even grovelled at your feet. She bent down for the bundle, but Simon pulled her tightly against him so she couldn't reach. Simon! she yelped. He arched one brow. Yes? What are you doing? Trying to seduce you. Am I succeeding? Her face coloured. Probably, she mumbled. Only probably. Damn, I must be losing my touch. His hand slid under her bottom, which prompted a little squeal. I think your touch is just fine, she said hastily. Only fine? He pretended to wince. Fine is so pale a word, don't you think? Almost one. Well, she allowed, I might have misspoken. Simon felt a smile forming in his heart. By the time it spread to his lips, he was on his feet and tugging his wife in the general direction of his four-poster bed. Daphne, he said, trying to sound businesslike, I have a proposition. A proposition? she queried, raising her brows. A request, he amended. I have a request. She cocked her head and smiled. What kind of request? He nudged her through the doorway and into the bedroom. It's actually a request in two parts. How intriguing. The first part involves you, me, and... He picked her up and tossed her onto the bed amidst a fit of giggles. This sturdy antique of a bed. Sturdy? He growled as he crawled up beside her. It had better be sturdy. She laughed and squealed as she scooted out of his grasp. I think it's sturdy. What's the second part of your request? That, I'm afraid, involves a certain commitment of time on your part. Her eyes narrowed, but she was still smiling. What sort of commitment of time? In one stunningly swift move, he pinned her to the mattress. About nine months. Her lips softened with surprise. Are you sure? That it takes nine months. He grinned. That's what I've always been told. But the levity had left her eyes. You know that's not what I mean, she said softly. I know, he replied, meeting her serious gaze with one of his own. But yes, I'm sure. And I'm scared to death, and thrilled to the marrow, and a hundred other emotions I never let myself feel before you came along. Tears pricked her eyes. That's the sweetest thing you've ever said to me. It's the truth, he vowed. Before I met you, I was only half alive. And now, she whispered. And now, he echoed. Now suddenly means happiness and joy and a wife I adore. But do you know what? She shook her head, too overcome to speak. He leaned down and kissed her. Now doesn't even compare to tomorrow. And tomorrow couldn't possibly compete with the next day. As perfect as I feel this very moment, tomorrow is going to be even better. Ah, oh, Daph, he murmured, moving his lips to hers. Every day I'm going to love you more. I promise you that. Every day. Epilogue It's a boy for the Duke and Duchess of Hastings. After three girls, society's most besotted couple has finally produced an heir. 
This author can only imagine the level of relief in the Hastings household. After all, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a married man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of an heir. The name of the new babe has yet to be made public, although this author feels herself uniquely qualified to speculate. After all, with sisters named Amelia, Belinda, and Caroline, could the new Earl Cliveden be called anything but David? Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 15th of December, 1817. Simon threw up his arms in amazement, the single-sheet newspaper flying across the room. How does she know this? he demanded. We've told no one of our decision to name him David. Daphne tried not to smile as she watched her husband sputter and storm about the room. It's just a lucky guess, I'm sure, she said, turning her attention back to the newborn in her arms. It was far too early to know if his eyes would remain blue or turn brown like his older sister's, but already he looked so like his father. Daphne couldn't imagine that his eyes would spoil the effect by darkening. She must have a spy in our household, he said, planting his hands on his hips. She must. I'm sure she doesn't have a spy in our household, Daphne said without looking up at him. She was too interested in the way David's tiny hand was gripping her finger. But Daphne finally lifted her head. Simon, you're being ridiculous. It's just a gossip column. Whistle down, he grumbled. I've never heard of any whistle dance. I'd like to know who this blasted woman is. You and the rest of London, Daphne said under her breath. Someone should put her out of business once and for all. If you wish to put her out of business, Daphne could not resist pointing out, you shouldn't support her by buying her newspaper. I... And don't even try to say that you buy whistle down for me. You read it, Simon muttered. And so do you. Daphne dropped a kiss on the top of David's head. Usually well before I can get my hands on it. Besides, I'm rather fond of Lady Whistledown these days. Simon looked suspicious. Why? Did you read what she wrote about us? She called us London's most besotted couple. Daphne smiled wickedly. I rather like that. Simon groaned. That's only because Philippa Featherington... She's Philippa Burbrook now, Daphne reminded him. Well, whatever her name, she has the bloodiest big mouth in London. And ever since she heard me calling you dear heart at the theatre last month, I have not been able to show my face at my clubs. Is it so very unfashionable to love one's wife, then? Daphne teased. Simon pulled a face, looking rather like a disgruntled young boy. Never mind, Daphne said. I don't want to hear your answer. Simon's smile was an endearing cross between sheepish and sly. Here, she said, holding David up. Do you want to hold him? Of course. Simon crossed the room and took the baby into his arms. He cuddled him for several moments, then glanced over at Daphne and grinned. I think he looks like me. I know he does. Simon kissed him on the nose and whispered, Don't you worry, my little man. I shall love you always. I'll teach you your letters and your numbers and how to sit on a horse. 
and I shall protect you from all the awful people in this world, especially that whistle-down woman. And in a small, elegantly furnished chamber, not so very far from Hastings' house, a young woman sat at her desk with a quill and a pot of ink and pulled out a piece of paper. With a smile on her face, she set her quill to paper and wrote, Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, 19th of December, 1817. Ah, gentle reader, this author is pleased to report. The End Dear reader, have you ever wondered what happened to your favourite characters after you closed the final page? Wanted just a little bit more of a favourite novel? I have, and if the questions from my readers are any indication, I'm not the only one. So, after countless requests from Bridgerton fans, I decided to try something a little different, and I wrote a second epilogue for each of the novels. These are the stories that come after the stories. At first, the Bridgerton second epilogues were available exclusively online. Later they were published, along with a novella about Violet Bridgerton, in a collection called The Bridgertons, Happily Ever After. Now, for the first time, each second epilogue is being included with the novel it follows. I hope you enjoy Daphne and Simon as they continue their journey. The Duke and I, the second epilogue. Mathematics had never been Daphne Bassett's best subject, but she could certainly count to thirty, and as thirty was the maximum number of days that usually elapsed between her monthly courses, the fact that she was currently looking at her desk calendar and counting to forty-three was cause for some concern. It can't be possible, she said to the calendar, half expecting it to reply. She sat down slowly, trying to recall the events of the past six weeks. Maybe she'd counted wrong. She'd bled while she was visiting her mother, and that had been on March 25th and 26th, which meant that... She counted again, physically this time, poking each square on the calendar with her index finger. Forty-three days. She was pregnant. Good God! Once again... The calendar had little to say on the matter. No. No, it couldn't be. She was forty-one years old. Which wasn't to say that no woman in the history of the world had given birth at forty-two. But it had been seventeen years since she'd last conceived. Seventeen years of rather delightful relations with her husband, during which time they had done nothing, absolutely nothing, to block conception. Daphne had assumed she was simply done being fertile. She'd had her four children in rapid succession, one a year for the first four years of her marriage, then nothing. She had been surprised when she realised that her youngest had reached his first birthday and she was not pregnant again. And then he was two, then three, and her belly remained flat. And Daphne looked at her brood, Amelia, Belinda, Caroline and David, and decided she had been blessed beyond measure. Four children healthy and strong, with a strapping little boy who would one day take his father's place as the Duke of Hastings. Besides, Daphne did not particularly enjoy being pregnant. Her ankles swelled, and her cheeks got puffy, 
and her digestive tract did things that she absolutely did not wish to experience again. She thought of her sister-in-law, Lucy, who positively glowed throughout pregnancy, which was a good thing, as Lucy was currently 14 months pregnant with her fifth child, or nine months, as the case might be. But Daphne had seen her just a few days earlier, and she looked as if she were 14 months along. Huge, staggeringly huge, but still glowing, and with astonishingly dainty ankles. I can't be pregnant, Daphne said, placing a hand on her flat belly. Maybe she was going through the change. Forty-one did seem a bit young, but then again, it wasn't one of those things anyone ever talked about. Maybe lots of women stopped their monthly courses at forty-one. She should be happy. Grateful. Really, bleeding was such a bother. She heard footsteps coming toward her in the hallway, and she quickly slid a book on top of the calendar, although what she thought she might be hiding she had no idea. It was just a calendar. There was no big red X, followed by the notation, Bled this day. Her husband strode into the room. Oh, good, there you are. Amelia has been looking for you. For me? If there is a merciful God, she is not looking for me, Simon returned. Oh, dear, Daphne murmured. Normally, she'd have a more quick-witted response, but her mind was still in the possibly pregnant, possibly growing very old, fog. Something about a dress. The pink one or the green one? Simon stared at her. Really? No, of course you wouldn't know, she said distractedly. He pressed his fingers to his temples and sank into a nearby chair. When will she be married? Not until she's engaged. And when will that be? Daphne smiled. She had five proposals last year. You were the one who insisted that she hold out for a love match. I did not hear you disagreeing. I did not disagree. He sighed. How is it we have managed to have three girls out in society at the same time? Procreative industriousness at the outset of our marriage, Daphne answered pertly, then remembered the calendar on her desk. The one with the red X that no one could see but her. Industriousness, hmm? He glanced over at the open door. An interesting choice of words. She took one look at his expression and felt herself turn pink. Simon, it's the middle of the day. His lips slid into a slow grin. I don't recall that stopping us when we were at the height of our industriousness. If the girls come upstairs, he bound to his feet. I'll lock the door. Oh, good heavens, they'll know. He gave the lock a decisive click and turned back to her with an arched brow. And whose fault is that? Daphne drew back. Just a tiny bit. There is no way I am sending any of my daughters into marriage as hopelessly ignorant as I was. Charmingly ignorant, he murmured, crossing the room to take her hand. She allowed him to tug her to her feet. You didn't think it was so charming when I assumed you were impotent, he winced. Many things in life are more charming in retrospect. Simon, he nuzzled her ear. Daphne. His mouth moved along the line of her throat, and she felt herself melting. Twenty-one years of marriage, and still 
At least draw the curtains, she murmured. Not that anyone could possibly see in, with the sun shining so brightly, but she would feel more comfortable. They were in the middle of Mayfair, after all, with her entire circle of acquaintances quite possibly strolling outside the window. He positively dashed over to the window, but pulled shut only the sheer scrim. I like to see you, he said with a boyish smile. And then, with remarkable speed and agility, he adjusted the situation so that he was seeing all of her, and she was on the bed, moaning softly as he kissed the inside of her knee. Oh, Simon, she sighed. She knew exactly what he was going to do next. He'd move up, kissing and licking his way along her thigh, and he did it so well. What are you thinking about? he murmured. Right now, she asked, trying to blink her way out of her daze. He had his tongue at the crease between her leg and her abdomen, and he thought she could think. Do you know what I'm thinking? he asked. If it's not about me, I'm going to be terribly disappointed. He chuckled, moved his head so that he could drop a light kiss on her belly button, then scooted up to brush his lips softly against hers. I was thinking how marvellous it is to know another person so completely. She reached out and hugged him. She couldn't help it. She buried her face in the warm crook of his neck, inhaled the familiar scent of him, and said, I love you. I adore you. Oh, so he was going to make a competition of it, was he? She pulled away, just far enough to say, I fancy you. He quirked a brow. You fancy me? It was the best I could summon on such short notice. She gave a tiny shrug. And besides, I do. Very well. His eyes darkened. I worship you. Daphne's lips parted. Her heart thumped, then flipped, and any facility she might have possessed for synonym retrieval flew right out of her. I think you've won, she said, her voice so husky she barely recognised it. He kissed her again, long, hot, and achingly sweet. Oh, I know I have. Her head fell back as he made his way down to her belly. You still have to worship me, she said. He moved lower. In that, Your Grace, I am ever your servant. And that was the last thing either of them said for quite some time. Several days later, Daphne found herself staring at her calendar once more. It had been forty-six days now since she'd last bled, and she still had not said anything to Simon. She knew that she should, but it felt somewhat premature. There could be another explanation for the lack of her courses. One had only to recall her last visit with her mother. Violet Bridgerton had been constantly fanning herself, insisting that the air was stifling, even though Daphne had found it to be perfectly pleasant. The one time Daphne had asked someone to light a fire... Violet had countermanded her with such ferocity that Daphne had half expected her to guard the grate with a poker. Do not so much as strike a match, Violet had growled, to which Daphne had wisely replied, I do believe I shall fetch a shawl. She looked at her mother's housemaid, shivering next to the fireplace. Er, uh, and perhaps you should too. 
that she did not feel hot now. She felt... she did not know what she felt. Perfectly normal, really. Which was suspicious, as she had never felt the least bit normal while pregnant before. Mama! Daphne flipped over her calendar and looked up from her writing desk, just in time to see her second daughter, Belinda, pause at the entrance of the room. Come in, Daphne said, welcoming the distraction. Please. Belinda sat down in a nearby comfortable chair, her bright blue eyes meeting her mother's with her usual directness. You must do something about Caroline. I must, Daphne queried, her voice lingering ever so slightly longer on the I. Belinda ignored the sarcasm. If she does not stop talking about Frederick Snowman Formsby, I shall go mad. Can't you simply ignore her? His name is Frederick Snowman Formsby. Daphne blinked. Snowman, Mama. Snowman. It is unfortunate, Daphne allowed. But, Lady Belinda Bassett, do not forget that you could be likened to a rather droopy hound. Belinda's gaze grew very jaded, and it became instantly clear that someone had indeed likened her to a basset hound. Oh, Daphne said, somewhat surprised that Belinda had never told her about it. I'm so sorry. It was long ago, Belinda said with a sniff, and I assure you it was not said more than once. Daphne pressed her lips together, trying not to smile. It was definitely not good form to encourage fisticuffs, but as she had fought her way to adulthood with seven siblings, four of them brothers, she could not help but utter a quiet, Well done. Belinda gave her a regal nod, then said, Will you have a talk with Caroline? What is it you wish for me to say? I don't know. Whatever it is you usually say, it always seems to work. There was a compliment in there somewhere, Daphne was fairly certain, but before she could dissect the sentence, her stomach did a nasty flip, followed by the oddest sort of squeeze, and then, Excuse me, she yelped, and she made it to the washroom just in time to reach the chamber pot. Oh, dear God, this wasn't the change. She was pregnant. Mama? Daphne flicked her hand back at Belinda, trying to dismiss her. Mama, are you all right? Daphne retched again. I'm getting farther, Belinda announced. No, Daphne fairly howled. Was it the fish? Because I thought the fish tasted a bit dodgy. Daphne nodded, hoping that would be the end of it. Oh, wait a moment. You didn't have the fish. I remember it quite distinctly. Oh, bugger Belinda and her bloody attention to detail. It was not the most maternal of sentiments, Daphne thought, as she once again heaved her innards, but she was not feeling particularly charitable at the moment. You had the squab. I had the fish, and so did David, but you and Caroline ate only squab, and I think Father and Amelia had both, and we all had the soup, although... Stop! Daphne begged. She didn't want to talk about food, even the mere mention. I think I had better get Father... Belinda said again. No, I'm fine, Daphne gasped, still jerking her hand behind her in a shushing motion. She didn't want Simon to see her like this. He would know instantly what was about. 
or perhaps more to the point, what was about to happen. In seven and a half months, give or take a few weeks. Very well, Belinda conceded, but at least let me fetch your maid. You should be in bed. Daphne threw up again. After you're through, Belinda corrected, you should be in bed once you're through with the... that... My maid, Daphne finally agreed. Mariah would deduce the truth instantly, but she would not say a word to anyone, servants or family. And perhaps more pressing, Mariah would know exactly what to bring as a remedy. It would taste vile and smell worse, but it would settle her stomach. Belinda dashed off, and Daphne, once she was convinced there could be nothing left in her stomach, staggered to her bed. She held herself extremely still. Even the slightest rocking motion made her feel as if she were at sea. I'm too old for this, she moaned, because she was. Surely she was. If she remained true to form, and really, why should this confinement be any different from the previous four, she would be gripped by nausea for at least two more months. The lack of food would keep her slender, but that would last only until midsummer when she would double in size, practically overnight. Her fingers would swell to the point that she could not wear her rings, she would not fit into any of her shoes, and even a single flight of stairs would leave her gasping for breath. She would be an elephant, a two-legged, chestnut-haired elephant. Your grace! Daphne could not lift her head, so she lifted her hand instead, a pathetic, silent greeting to Mariah, who was by now standing by the bed, staring down at her with an expression of horror that was quickly sliding into one of suspicion. Your grace, Mariah said again, this time with unmistakable inflection. She smiled. I know, Daphne said. I know. Does the Duke know? Not yet. Well, you won't be able to hide it for long. He leaves this afternoon for a few nights at Clifton, Daphne said. I will tell him when he returns. You should tell him now, Mariah said. Twenty years of employment did give a maid some license to speak freely. Daphne carefully edged herself up into a reclining position, stopping once to calm a wave of nausea. It might not take, she said. At my age, they very often don't. Oh, I think it's taken, Mariah said. Have you looked in the mirror yet? Daphne shook her head. You're green. It might not... You're not going to throw the baby up. Mariah. Mariah crossed her arms and speared Daphne with a stare. You know the truth, Your Grace. You just don't want to admit it. Daphne opened her mouth to speak, but she had nothing to say. She knew Mariah was right. If the baby hadn't taken, Mariah said a bit more gently, you wouldn't be feeling so sickly. My mum had eight babies after me, and four losses early on. She never was sick, not even once, with the ones that didn't take. Daphne sighed and then nodded, conceding the point. I'm still going to wait, though, she said. Just a bit longer. She wasn't sure why she wanted to keep this to herself for a few more days, but she did. And as she was the one whose body was currently trying to turn itself inside out she rather thought it was her decision to make. Oh, I almost forgot, Mariah said. We received word from your brother. 
He's coming to town next week. Colin? Daphne asked. Maria nodded. With his family. They must stay with us, Daphne said. Colin and Penelope did not own a home in town, and to economise, they tended to stay with either Daphne or their oldest brother, Anthony, who had inherited the title and all that went with it. Please ask Belinda to pen a letter on my behalf, insisting that they come to Hastings' house. Maria gave a nod and departed. Daphne moaned and went to sleep. By the time Colin and Penelope arrived, with their four darling children in tow, Daphne was throwing up several times a day. Simon still didn't know about her condition. He'd been delayed in the country. Something about a flooded field, and now he wasn't due back until the end of the week. But Daphne wasn't going to let a queasy belly get in the way of greeting her favourite brother. Colin! she exclaimed her smile growing positively giddy at the familiar sight of his sparkling green eyes. It has been much too long. I fully agree, he said, giving her a quick hug while Penelope attempted to shoo their children into the house. No, you may not chase that pigeon, she said sternly. So sorry, Daphne, but... She dashed back out onto the front steps, neatly nabbing seven-year-old Thomas by the collar. Be grateful your urchins are grown. Colin said with a chuckle as he took a step back. We can't keep... Good God, Daff, what's wrong with you? Trust a brother to dispense with tact. You look awful, he said, as if he hadn't made that clear with his first statement. Just a bit under the weather, she mumbled. I think it was the fish. Uncle Colin! Colin's attention was thankfully distracted by Belinda and Caroline, who were racing down the stairs with a decided lack of ladylike grace. You, he said with a grin, pulling one into a hug. And you? He looked up. Where's the other you? Amelia's off shopping, Belinda said, before turning her attention to her little cousins. Agatha had just turned nine. Thomas was seven, and Jane was six. Little Georgie would be three the following month. You're getting so big. Belinda said to Jane, beaming down at her. I grew two inches in the last month, she announced. In the last year, Penelope corrected gently. She couldn't quite reach Daphne for a hug, so she leaned over and squeezed her hand. I know your girls were quite grown up last time I saw them, but I swear I am still surprised by it every time. So am I, Daphne admitted. She still woke some mornings, half expecting her girls to be in pinafores. The fact that they were ladies, fully grown, it was baffling. Well, you know what they say about motherhood, Penelope said. They, Daphne murmured. Penelope paused just long enough to shoot her a wry grin. The years fly by and the days are endless. That's impossible, Thomas announced. Agatha let out an aggrieved sigh. Oh, he's so literal. Daphne reached out to ruffle Agatha's light brown hair. Are you really only nine? She adored Agatha, always had. There was something about that little girl, so serious and determined, that had always touched her heart. Agatha, being Agatha, immediately recognised the question as rhetorical and popped up to her tiptoes to give her aunt a kiss. Daphne returned the gesture with a peck on the cheek, 
then turned to the young family's nurse, standing near the doorway, holding little Georgie. And how are you, you darling thing, she cooed, reaching out to take the boy into her arms. He was plump and blonde, with pink cheeks and a heavenly baby smell, despite the fact that he wasn't really a baby any longer. You look scrumptious, she said, pretending to take a nibble of his neck. She tested the weight of him, rocking slightly back and forth in that instinctive motherly way. You don't need to be rocked any more, do you? she murmured, kissing him again. His skin was so soft, and it took her back to her days as a young mother. She'd had nurses and nannies, of course, but she couldn't even count the number of times she'd crept into the children's rooms to sneak a kiss on the cheek and watch them sleep. Ah, oh, well, she was sentimental. This was nothing new. How old are you now, Georgie? she asked, thinking that maybe she could do this again. Not that she had much choice, but still, she felt reassured, standing here with this little boy in her arms. Agatha tugged on her sleeve and whispered, He doesn't talk. Daphne blinked. I beg your pardon. Agatha glanced over at her parents, as if she wasn't sure she should be saying anything. They were busy chatting with Belinda and Caroline and took no notice. He doesn't talk, she said again. Not a word. Daphne pulled back slightly so that she could look at Georgie's face again. He smiled at her, his eyes crinkling at the corners exactly the same way Collins did. Daphne looked back at Agatha. Does he understand what people say? Agatha nodded. Every word. I'm sure of it. Her voice dropped to a whisper. I think my mother and father are concerned. A child nearing his third birthday without a word? Daphne was sure they were concerned. Suddenly, the reason for Colin and Penelope's unexpected trip to town became clear. They were looking for guidance. Simon had been just the same way as a child. He hadn't spoken a word until he was four. And then he'd suffered a debilitating stutter for years. Even now, when he was particularly upset about something, it would creep back over him, and she'd hear it in his voice. A strange pause, a repeated sound, a halting catch. He was still self-conscious about it, although not nearly so much as he had been when they'd first met. But she could see it in his eyes, a flash of pain, or maybe anger, at himself at his own weakness. Daphne supposed that there were some things people never got past. Not completely. Reluctantly, Daphne handed Georgie back to his nurse and urged Agatha toward the stairs. Come along, darling, she said. The nursery is waiting. We took out all of the girls' old toys. She watched with pride as Belinda took Agatha by the hand. You may play with my favourite doll. Belinda said with great gravity. Agatha looked up at her cousin with an expression that could only be described as reverence and then followed her up the stairs. Daphne waited until all the children were gone and then turned back to her brother and his wife. Tea? she asked. Or do you wish to change out of your travelling clothes? Tea, Penelope said with the sigh of an exhausted mother. Please. Colin nodded his agreement and together they went into the drawing room. Once they were seated, 
Daphne decided there was no point in being anything but direct. This was her brother, after all, and he knew he could talk to her about anything. "'You're worried about Georgie,' she said. It was a statement, not a question. "'He hasn't said a word,' Penelope said quietly. Her voice was even, but her throat caught in an uncomfortable swallow. "'He understands us,' Colin said. "'I'm sure of it.' Just the other day I asked him to pick up his toys, and he did so, immediately. Simon was the same way, Daphne said. She looked from Colin to Penelope and back. I assume that is why you came, to speak with Simon. We hoped he might offer some insight, Penelope said. Daphne nodded slowly. I'm sure he will. He was detained in the country, I'm afraid, but he is expected back before the week's end. There is no rush, Colin said. Out of the corner of her eye, Daphne saw Penelope's shoulders slump. It was a tiny motion, but one any mother would recognise. Penelope knew there was no rush. They had waited nearly three years for Georgie to talk. A few more days wouldn't make a difference. And yet she wanted so desperately to do something, to take an action, to make her child whole. To have come this far, only to find that Simon was gone. It had to be discouraging. I think it is a very good sign that he understands you, Daphne said. I would be much more concerned if he did not. Everything else about him is completely normal, Penelope said passionately. He runs, he jumps, he eats. He even reads, I think. Colin turned to her in surprise. He does? I believe so, Penelope said. I saw him with Thomas's primer last week. He was probably just looking at the illustrations, Colin said gently. That's what I thought, but then I watched his eyes. They were moving back and forth, following the words. They both turned to Daphne, as if she might have all the answers. I suppose he might be reading, Daphne said, feeling rather inadequate. She wanted to have all the answers. She wanted to say something to them other than, I suppose, or perhaps. He's rather young, but there's no reason he couldn't be reading. He's very bright, Penelope said. Colin gave a look that was mostly indulgent. Darling. He is. And Thomas read when he was four. Agatha too. Actually, Colin admitted thoughtfully. Agatha did start to read at three. Nothing terribly involved, but I know she was reading short words. I remember it quite well. Georgie is reading, Penelope said firmly. I am sure of it. Well then, that means we have even less to be concerned about, Daphne said with determined good cheer. Any child who is reading before his third birthday will have no trouble speaking when he is ready to do so. She had no idea if this was actually the case, but she rather thought it ought to be, and it seemed reasonable. And if Georgie turned out to have a stutter, just like Simon, his family would still love him and adore him and give him all the support he needed to grow into the wonderful person she knew he would be. He'd have everything Simon hadn't had as a child. It will be all right, Daphne said, leaning forward to take Penelope's hand in hers, You'll see. Penelope's lips pressed together, and Daphne saw her throat tighten. 
She turned away, wanting to give her sister-in-law a moment to compose herself. Colin was munching on his third biscuit and reaching for a cup of tea, so Daphne decided to direct her next question to him. Is everything well with the rest of the children? she asked. He swallowed his tea. Quite well. And yours? David has got into a bit of mischief at school, but he seems to be settling down. Colin picked up another biscuit. And the girls aren't giving you fits? Daphne blinked with surprise. No, of course not. Why do you ask? You look terrible, he said. Colin! Penelope interjected. He shrugged. She does. I asked about it when we first arrived. But still, his wife admonished. You shouldn't. If I can't say something to her, who can? He said plainly. Or more to the point, who will? Penelope dropped her voice to an urgent whisper. It's not the sort of thing one talks about. He stared at her for a moment. Then he looked at Daphne. Then he turned back to his wife. I have no idea what you're talking about, he said. Penelope's lips parted, and her cheeks went a bit pink. She looked over at Daphne, as if to say, Well? Daphne just sighed. Was her condition that obvious? Penelope gave Colin an impatient look. She's... She turned back to Daphne. You are, aren't you? Daphne gave a tiny nod of confirmation. Penelope looked at her husband with a certain degree of smugness. She's pregnant. Colin froze for about one half a second before continuing on in his usual unflappable manner. No, she's not. She is, Penelope replied. Daphne decided not to speak. She was feeling queasy anyway. Her youngest is 17, Colin pointed out. He glanced over at Daphne. He is, isn't he? Sixteen, Daphne murmured. Sixteen, he repeated, directing this at Penelope. Still. Still? Still, Daphne yawned. She couldn't help it. She was just exhausted these days. Colin, Penelope said, in that patient yet vaguely condescending tone that Daphne loved to hear directed at her brother. David's age hardly has anything to do with... I realise that, he cut in, giving her a vaguely annoyed look. But don't you think, if she were going to... He waved a hand in Daphne's general direction, leaving her to wonder if he could not bring himself to utter the word pregnant in relation to his own sister. He cleared his throat. Well, there wouldn't have been a sixteen-year gap. Daphne closed her eyes for a moment, then let her head settle against the back of the sofa. She really should feel embarrassed. This was her brother, and even if he was using rather vague terms, he was talking about the most intimate aspects of her marriage. She let out a tired little noise, something between a sigh and a hum. She was too sleepy to be embarrassed, and maybe too old, too. Women ought to be able to dispense with maidenly fits of modesty when they passed forty. Besides... Colin and Penelope were bickering, and that was a good thing. It took their minds off Georgie. Daphne found it rather entertaining, really. It was lovely to watch any of her brothers stuck in a stalemate with his wife. 
41 definitely wasn't too old to feel just a little bit of pleasure at the discomfort of one's brothers. Although, she yawned again, it would be more entertaining if she were a bit more alert to enjoy it. Still... Did she fall asleep? Colin stared at his sister in disbelief. I think she did, Penelope replied. He stretched toward her, craning his neck for a better view. There are so many things I could do to her right now, he mused. Frogs, locusts, rivers turning to blood. Colin! It's so tempting. It's also proof, Penelope said with a hint of a smirk. Proof? She's pregnant, just like I said. When he did not agree with her quickly enough, she added, Have you ever known her to fall asleep in the middle of a conversation? Not since... He cut himself off. Penelope's smirk grew significantly less subtle. Exactly. I hate when you're right, he grumbled. I know. Pity for you, I so often am. He glanced back over at Daphne, who was starting to snore. I suppose we should stay with her, he said, somewhat reluctantly. I'll ring for her maid, Penelope said. Do you think Simon knows... Penelope glanced over her shoulder once she reached the bell pull. I have no idea. Colin just shook his head. Poor bloke is in for the surprise of his life. When Simon finally returned to London, fully one week delayed, he was exhausted. He had always been a more involved landowner than most of his peers, even as he found himself approaching the age of fifty. And so, when several of his fields flooded, including one that provided the sole income for a tenant family, he rolled up his sleeves and got to work alongside his men. Figuratively, of course. All sleeves had most definitely been down. It had been bloody cold in Sussex. Worse when one was wet, which, of course, they all had been. What with the flood and all. So he was tired, and he was still cold, he wasn't sure his fingers would ever regain their previous temperature, and he missed his family. He would have asked them to join him in the country, but the girls were preparing for the season, and Daphne had looked a bit peaked when he left. He hoped she wasn't coming down with a cold. When she got sick, the entire household felt it. She thought she was a stoic. He had once tried to point out that a true stoic wouldn't go about the house repeatedly saying, no, no, I'm fine, as she sagged into a chair. Actually, he had tried to point this out twice. The first time he said something she had not responded. At the time, he thought she hadn't heard him. In retrospect, however, it was far more likely that she had chosen not to hear him, because the second time he said something about the true nature of a stoic, her response had been such that, well... Let it be said that when it came to his wife and the common cold, his lips would never again form words other than You poor, poor dear, and May I fetch you some tea? There were some things a man learned after two decades of marriage. When he stepped into the front hall, the butler was waiting, his face in its usual mode, that is to say, completely devoid of expression. Thank you, Jeffreys, Simon murmured handing him his hat. Your brother-in-law is here, Jeffreys told him. Simon paused. Which one? He had seven, 
Mr. Colin Bridgerton, your grace, with his family. Simon cocked his head. Really? He didn't hear chaos and commotion. They are out, your grace. And the Duchess? She is resting. Simon could not suppress a groan. She's not ill, is she? Jeffreys, in a most un-Jeffreys-like manner, blushed. I could not say, your grace. Simon regarded Jeffreys with a curious eye. Is she ill or isn't she? Jeffreys swallowed, cleared his throat, and then said, I believe she is tired, your grace. Tired, Simon repeated, mostly to himself, since it was clear that Jeffreys would expire of inexplicable embarrassment if he pursued the conversation further. Shaking his head, he headed upstairs, adding, Of course she's tired. Colin's got four children under the age of ten, and she probably thinks she's got to mother the lot while they're here. Maybe he'd have a lie-down next to her. He was exhausted too, and he always slept better when she was near. The door to their room was shut when he got to it, and he almost knocked. It was a habit to do so at a closed door, even if it did lead to his own bedchamber. But at the last moment, he instead gripped the doorknob and gave a soft push. She could be sleeping. If she truly was tired, he ought to let her rest. Stepping lightly, he entered the room. The curtains were part way drawn, and he could see Daphne lying in bed, still as a bone. He tiptoed closer. She did look pale, although it was hard to tell in the dim light. He yawned and sat on the opposite side of the bed, leaning forward to pull off his boots. He loosened his cravat and then slid it off entirely, scooting himself toward her. He wasn't going to wake her, just snuggle up for a bit of warmth. He'd missed her. Settling in with a contented sigh, he put his arm around her, resting its weight just below her ribcage, and... Daphne shot up like a bullet and practically hurled herself from the bed. Daphne! Simon sat up too, just in time to see her race for the chamber pot. The chamber pot? Oh dear, he said, wincing as she retched. Fish! Don't say that word! She gasped. Must have been fish. They really needed to find a new fishmonger here in town. He crawled out of bed to find a towel. Can I get you anything? She didn't answer. He hadn't really expected her to. Still, he held out the towel, trying not to flinch when she threw up for what had to be the fourth time. You poor, poor dear, he murmured. I'm so sorry this happened to you. You haven't been like this since... Since... Oh, dear God. Daphne! His voice shook. Hell, his whole body shook. She nodded. But how? The usual way, I imagine, she said, gratefully taking the towel. But it's been... it's been... He tried to think. He couldn't think. His brain had completely ceased working. I think I'm done, she said. She sounded exhausted. Could you get me a bit of water? Are you certain? If he recalled correctly, the water would pop right back up and into the chamber pot. It's over there, she said, motioning weakly to a pitcher on a table. I'm not going to swallow it. He poured her a glass and waited while she swished out her mouth. Well, he said, clearing his throat several times, 
I, uh... He coughed again. He could not get a word out to save his life. And he couldn't blame his stutter this time. Everyone knows, Daphne said, placing her hand on his arm for support as she moved back to bed. Everyone, he echoed. I hadn't planned to say anything until you returned, but they guessed. He nodded slowly, still trying to absorb it all. A baby, at his age, at her age. It was, it was, it was amazing. Strange how it came over him so suddenly. But now, after the initial shock wore off, all he could feel was pure joy. This is wonderful news, he exclaimed. He reached out to hug her, then thought better of it when he saw her pasty complexion. You never cease to delight me, he said, instead giving her an awkward pat on the shoulder. She winced and closed her eyes. Don't rock the bed, she moaned. You're making me seasick. You don't get seasick, he reminded her. I do when I'm expecting. You're an odd duck, Daphne Bassett, he murmured, and then stepped back to A, stop rocking the bed, and B, remove himself from her immediate vicinity, should she take exception to the duck comparison. There was a certain history to this. While heavily pregnant with Amelia, she had asked him if she was radiant or if she just looked like a waddling duck. He told her she'd looked like a radiant duck. This had not been the correct answer. He cleared his throat and said, You poor, poor dear. Then he fled. Several hours later, Simon was seated at his massive oak desk, his elbows resting atop the smooth wood, his right index finger ringing the top of the brandy snifter that he had already refilled twice. It had been a momentous day. An hour or so after he'd left Daphne to her nap, Colin and Penelope had returned with their progeny, and they'd all had tea and biscuits in the breakfast room. Simon had started for the drawing room, but Penelope had requested an alternative, some place without expensive fabrics and upholstery. Little Georgie had grinned up at him at that, his face still smeared with a substance Simon hoped was chocolate. As Simon regarded the blanket of crumbs spilling from the table to the floor, along with the wet napkin they'd used to sop up Agatha's overturned tea, he remembered that he and Daphne had always taken their tea here when the children were small. Funny how one forgot such details. Once the tea party had dispersed, however, Colin had asked for a private word. They had repaired to Simon's study, and it was there that Colin confided in him about Georgie. He wasn't talking. His eyes were sharp. Colin thought he was reading, but he wasn't talking. Colin had asked for his advice, and Simon realised he had none. He'd thought about this, of course. It had haunted him every time Daphne had been pregnant, straight through until each of his children had begun to form sentences. He supposed it would haunt him now. There would be another baby, another soul to love desperately and worry over. All he'd known to tell Colin was to love the boy, to talk to him and praise him and take him riding and fishing and all those things a father ought to do with a son, all those things his father had never done with him. He didn't think about him often these days, his father. He had Daphne to thank for that. 
Before they'd met, Simon had been obsessed with revenge. He'd wanted so badly to hurt his father, to make him suffer the way he had suffered as a boy, with all the pain and anguish of knowing he had been rejected and found wanting. It hadn't mattered that his father was dead. Simon had thirsted for vengeance all the same, and it had taken love, first with Daphne and then with his children, to banish that ghost. He'd finally realised that he was free when Daphne had given him a bundle of letters from his father that had been entrusted into her care. He hadn't wanted to burn them. He hadn't wanted to rip them to shreds. He hadn't particularly wanted to read them either. He'd looked down at the stack of envelopes, tied neatly with a red and gold ribbon, and realised that he felt nothing. Not anger, not sorrow, not even regret. It had been the greatest victory he could have imagined. He wasn't sure how long the letters had sat in Daphne's desk. He knew she'd put them in her bottom drawer, and every now and then he'd taken a peek to see if they were still there. But eventually, even that had tapered off. He hadn't forgotten about the letters. Every now and then something would happen that would spring them to mind. But he'd forgotten about them with such constancy. And they had probably been absent from his mind for months when he opened his bottom desk drawer and saw that Daphne had moved them there. That had been twenty years ago. And although he still lacked the urge to burn or shred, he'd also never felt the need to open them. Until now. Well, no, maybe. He looked at them again, still tied in that bow. Did he want to open them? Could there be anything in his father's letters that might be of help to Colin and Penelope as they guided Georgie through what might be a difficult childhood? No, it was impossible. His father had been a hard man, unfeeling and unforgiving. He'd been so obsessed with his heritage and title that he'd turned his back on his only child. There could be nothing, nothing that he might have written that could help Georgie. Simon picked up the letters. The papers were dry. They smelled old. The fire in the grate felt new, hot and bright and redemptive. He stared at the flames until his vision blurred, just sat there for endless minutes, clutching his father's final words to him. They had not spoken for over five years when his father died. If there was anything the old duke had wanted to say to him, it would be here. Simon? He looked up slowly, barely able to pull himself from his daze. Daphne was standing in the doorway, her hand resting lightly on the edge of the door. She was dressed in her favourite pale blue dressing gown. She'd had it for years. Every time he asked if she wanted to replace it, she refused. Some things were best soft and comfortable. "'Are you coming to bed?' she asked. He nodded, coming to his feet. Soon. I was just... He cleared his throat, because the truth was, he wasn't sure what he'd been doing. He wasn't even sure what he'd been thinking. How are you feeling? he asked her. Better. It's always better in the evening. She took a few steps forward. I had a bit of toast, and even some jam, and I... She stopped, the only movement in her face, the quick blink of her eyes... She was staring at the letters. He hadn't realised he was still holding them when he stood. 
Are you going to read them? she asked quietly. I thought, perhaps... he swallowed. I don't know. But why now? Colin told me about Georgie. I thought there might be something in here. He moved his hand slightly, holding the stack of letters just a little bit higher. Something that might help him. Daphne's lips parted, but several seconds passed before she was able to speak. I think you might be one of the kindest, most generous men I have ever known. He looked at her in confusion. I know you don't want to read those, she said. I really don't care. No, you do, she interrupted gently. Not enough to destroy them, but they still mean something to you. I hardly ever think about them, he said. It was the truth. I know. She reached out and took his hand, her thumb moving lightly over his knuckles. But just because you let go of your father, it doesn't mean he never mattered. He didn't speak. He didn't know what to say. I'm not surprised that if you do finally decide to read them, it will be to help someone else. He swallowed, then grasped her hand like a lifeline. Do you want me to open them? He nodded, wordlessly handing her the stack. Daphne moved to a nearby chair and sat, tugging at the ribbon until the bow fell loose. Are these in order? she asked. I don't know, he admitted. He sat back down behind his desk. It was far enough away that he couldn't see the pages. She gave an acknowledging nod, then carefully broke the seal on the first envelope. Her eyes moved along the lines, or at least he thought they did. The light was too dim to see her expression clearly, but he had seen her reading letters enough times to know exactly what she must look like. He had terrible penmanship, Daphne murmured. Did he? Now that he thought about it, Simon wasn't sure he'd ever seen his father's handwriting. He must have done at some point, but it wasn't anything he recalled. He waited a bit longer, trying not to hold his breath as she turned the page. He didn't write on the back, she said with some surprise. He wouldn't, Simon said. He would never do anything that smacked of economisation. She looked up, her brows arched. The Duke of Hastings does not need to economise, Simon said dryly. Really? She turned to the next page, murmuring, I shall have to remember that the next time I go to the dressmaker. He smiled. He loved that she could make him smile at such a moment. After another few moments, she refolded the papers and looked up. She paused briefly, perhaps in case he wanted to say anything, and then, when he did not, said, It's rather dull, actually. Dull? He wasn't sure what he had been expecting, but not this. Daphne gave a little shrug. It's about the harvest, and an improvement to the east wing of the house, and several tenants he suspects of cheating him. She pressed her lips together disapprovingly. They weren't, of course, it is Mr. Meller and Mr. Betham. They would never cheat anyone. Simon blinked. He'd thought his father's letters might include an apology. Or, if not that, then more accusations of inadequacy. It had never occurred to him that his father might have simply sent him an accounting of the estate. Your father was a very suspicious man, Daphne muttered. 
Oh, yes. Shall I read the next? Please do. She did, and it was much the same, except this time it was about a bridge that needed repairing and a window that had not been made to his specifications. And on it went. Rents, accounts, repairs, complaints. There was the occasional overture, but nothing more personal than, I am considering hosting a shooting party next month. Do let me know if you're interested in attending. It was astounding. His father had not only denied his existence when he'd thought him a stuttering idiot, he'd managed to deny his own denial once Simon was speaking clearly and up to snuff. He acted as if it had never happened, as if he had never wished his own son were dead. Good God, Simon said, because something had to be said. Daphne looked up. Hmm? Nothing, he muttered. It's the last one, she said, holding the letter up. He sighed. Do you want me to read it? Of course, he said sarcastically. It might be about rents or accounts. Or a bad harvest, Daphne quipped, obviously trying not to smile. Or that, he replied. Rents, she said, once she'd finished reading. And accounts. The harvest? She smiled slightly. It was good that season. Simon closed his eyes for a moment, as a strange tension eased from his body. It's odd, Daphne said. I wonder why he never mailed these to you. What do you mean? Well, he didn't. Don't you recall? He held on to all of them, then gave them to Lord Middlethorpe before he died. I suppose it was because I was out of the country. He wouldn't have known where to send them. Oh, yes, of course. She frowned. Still, I find it interesting that he would take the time to write you letters with no hope of sending them to you. If I were going to write letters to someone I couldn't send them to, it would be because I had something to say, something meaningful that I would want them to know, even after I was gone. One of the many ways in which you are unlike my father, Simon said. She smiled ruefully. Well, yes, I suppose. She stood, setting the letters down on a small table. Shall we go to bed? He nodded and walked to her side. But before he took her arm, he reached down, scooped up the letters, and tossed them into the fire. Daphne let out a little gasp as she turned in time to see them blacken and shrivel. There's nothing worth saving, he said. He leaned down and kissed her, once on the nose and then once on the mouth. Let's go to bed. What are you going to tell Colin and Penelope? she asked as they walked arm in arm toward the stairs. About Georgie? The same thing I told them this afternoon. He kissed her again, this time on her brow. Just love him. That's all they can do. If he talks, he talks. If he doesn't, he doesn't. But either way, it will all be fine, as long as they just love him. You, Simon Arthur Fitzranulf Bassett, are a very good father. He tried not to puff with pride. You forgot the Henry. What? Simon Arthur Henry Fitzranulf Bassett. She puffed that. You have too many names. But not too many children. He stopped walking and tugged her toward him until they were face to face. 
he rested one hand lightly on her abdomen. Do you think we can do it all once more? She nodded. As long as I have you. No, he said softly. As long as I have you. The End This is Rosalind Landor. We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Duke and I by Julia Quinn. Recorded Books offers a wide selection of bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories and more. So look for us at your public library or on download sites online. And thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. The End You've been listening to The Duke and I by Julia Quinn, narrated by Rosalind Landor.